They say there was a big river, Shiana said. Audrey heard the lilting note of derision in Shiana's voice. The child learned quickly. Waff turned and scowled at them. He heard it too. What was he thinking about Shiana now? Audrey held Shiana's shoulder with one hand and pointed with the other. There was a bridge right there. The great wall of the Sarir was left open there to permit the passage of the Idaho River. The bridge spanned that break. Shiana sighed. A real river, she whispered. Not a canat, and too big for a canal, Odraid said. I've never seen a river, Shiana said. That was where they dumped Shai Hulud into the river, Odraid said. She gestured to her left. Over on this side, many kilometers in that direction, he built his palace. There's nothing over there but sand, Shiana said. The palace was torn down in the famine times, Odraid said. People thought there was a hoard of spice in it. They were wrong, of course. He was much too clever for that. Shiana leaned close to Odraid and whispered. There is a great treasure of spice, though. The chantings tell about it. I've heard it many times. My... They say it's in a cave. Odraid smiled. Shiana referred to the oral history, of course. And she had almost said, my father, meaning her real father who had died in this desert. Odraid already had lured that story from the girl. Still whispering close to Odraid's ear, Shiana said, Why is that little man with us? I don't like him. It is necessary for the demonstration, Odraid said. Waff took that moment to step off the causeway onto the fine, soft slope of open sand. He moved with care but no visible hesitation. Once on the sand he turned, his eyes glistening in the hot sunlight, and stared first at Shiana and then at Odraid. Still that awe in him when he looks at Shiana, Odraid thought. What great things he believes he will discover here. He will be restored. And the prestige. Shiana sheltered her eyes with one hand and studied the desert. Shaitan likes the heat, Shiana said. People hide inside when it's hot, but that's when Shaitan comes. Not Shai Hulud, Odraid thought. Shaitan. You predicted it well, tyrant. What else did you know about our times? Was it really the tyrant out there, dormant in all of his worm descendants? None of the analyses Odraid had studied gave a sure explanation of what had driven one human being to make himself into a symbiote with that original worm of Arrakis. What went through his mind in the millennia of that awful transformation? Was any of that even the smallest fragment preserved in today's Rakian worms. He is near, mother, Shiana said. Do you smell him? Waff peered apprehensively at Shiana. Odraid inhaled deeply, a rich swelling of cinnamon on the bitter flint undertones, fire, brimstone, the crystal-banked inferno of the great worm. She stooped and brought up a pinch of blown sand to her tongue. All of the background was there, the dune of other memory and the rackets of this day. Shiana pointed at an angle to her left, directly into the light breeze from the desert. Out there, we must hurry. Without waiting for permission from Odraid, Shiana ran lightly down the causeway past Waff and out onto the first dune. She stopped there until Odraid and Waff caught up with her. Off the dune face she led them, up another with sand clogging their passage, out along a great curving barricade, with wisps of dusty saltation blowing from its crest. Soon they had put almost a kilometre between themselves 
and the water-girded security of Daris Balat. Again, Shiana stopped. Waf came to a panting halt behind her. Perspiration glistened where his still-suit hood crossed his brow. Odraid stopped to pace behind Waf. She took deep, calming breaths while she peered past Waf to where Shiana's attention was fixed. A furious tide of sand had poured across the desert beyond the dune where they stood, driven by a storm wind. Bedrock lay exposed in a long, narrow avenue of giant boulders, which lay scattered and upturned like the broken building blocks of a mad Promethean. Through this wild maze, the sand had poured like a river, leaving its signature in deep scratches and gouges, then plunging off a low escarpment to lose itself in more dunes. Down there, Shiana said, pointing at the avenue of bedrock. Off their dune she went, sliding and scrambling in spilled sand. At the bottom she stopped beside a boulder at least twice her height. Waf and Odraid paused just behind her. The slip face of another giant barracan, sinuous as the back of a sporting whale, lifted into the silver-blue sky beside them. Odraid used the pause to recompose her oxygen balance. That mad run had made great demands on flesh. Waf, she noted, was red-faced and breathing deeply. The flinty cinnamon smell was oppressive in the confined passage. Waf sniffed and rubbed at his nose with the back of a hand. Shiana lifted herself on one toe, pivoted and darted ten paces across the rocky avenue. She put one foot up on the sandy incline of the outer dune and lifted both arms to the sky. Slowly at first, and then with increasing tempo, she began to dance, moving up onto the sand. The thopter sounds grew louder overhead. Listen, Shiana called, not pausing in her dance. It was not to the thopters that she called their attention. Odraid turned her head to present both ears to a new sound intruding on their rock-tumbled maze. A sibilant hiss, subterranean and muted by sand, it became louder with shocking swiftness. There was heat in it, a noticeable warming of the breeze that twisted down their rocky avenue. The hissing swelled to a crescendo roar. Abruptly, the crystal-ringed gaping of a gigantic mouth lifted over the dune directly above Shiana. Shaitan! Shiana screamed, not breaking the rhythm of her dance. Here I am, Shaitan! As it crested the dune, the worm dipped its mouth downward toward Shiana. Sand cascaded around her feet, forcing her to stop her dance. The smell of cinnamon filled the rocky defile. The worm stopped above them. Messenger of God, Waff breathed. Heat dried the perspiration on Adraid's exposed face and made the automatic insulation of her stillsuit puff outward perceptibly. She inhaled deeply, sorting the components behind that cinnamon assault. The air around them was sharp with ozone and swiftly oxygen-rich. Her senses at full alert, Odraid stored impressions. If I survive, she thought. Yes, this was valuable data. The day might come when others would use it. Shiana backed out of the spilled sand onto the exposed rock. She resumed her dance, moving more wildly, flinging her head at each turn. Hair whipped across her face, and each time she whirled to confront the worm, she screamed, Shaitan! Daintily, like a child on unfamiliar ground, the worm once more moved forward. It slid across the dune crest, curled itself down onto the exposed rock, and presented its burning mouth slightly above and about two paces from Shiana. As it stopped, Odraid became conscious of the deep furnace rumbling of the worm. 
she could not tear her gaze away from the reflections of lambent orange flames within the creature. It was a cave of mysterious fire. Shiana stopped her dance. She clenched both fists at her sides and stared back at the monster she had summoned. Odraid took timed breaths, the controlled pacing of a reverend mother gathering all of her powers. If this was the end, well, she had obeyed Taraza's orders. Let the mother superior learn what she would from the watchers overhead. Hello, Shaitan, Shiana said. I have brought a reverend mother and a man of the Tleilaxu with me. Waff slumped to his knees and bowed. Odraid slipped past him to stand beside Shiana. Shiana breathed deeply. Her face was flushed. Odraid heard the click ticking of their overworked still suits. The hot, cinnamon-drenched air around them was charged with the sounds of this meeting, all dominated by the murmurous burning within the quiescent worm. Waff came up beside Odraid, his trance-like gaze fixed on the worm. I am here, he whispered. Odraid silently cursed him. Any unwarranted noise could attract this beast onto them. She knew what Waff was thinking, though. No other Tleilaxu had ever stood this close to a descendant of his prophet. Not even the Rakian priests had ever done this. With her right hand, Shiana made a sudden downward gesture. Down to us, Shaitan, she said. The worm lowered its gaping mouth until the internal fire pit filled the rocky defile in front of them. Her voice little more than a whisper, Shiana said, See how Shaitan obeys me, mother. Odraid could feel Shiana's control over the worm, a pulse of hidden language between child and monster. It was uncanny. Her voice rising in impudent arrogance, Shiana said, I will ask Shaitan to let us ride him. She scrambled up the slip face of the dune beside the worm. Immediately the great mouth lifted to follow her movements. Stay there, Shiana shouted. The worm stopped. It's not her words that command it. Odraid thought, something else, something else. Mother, come with me, Shiana called. Thrusting Waff ahead of her, Odraid obeyed. They scrambled up the sandy slope behind Shiana. Dislodged sand spilled down beside the waiting worm, piling up in the defile. Ahead of them, the worm's tapering tail curved along the dune crest. Shiana led them at a sand-clotted trot to the very tip of the thing. There she gripped the leading edge of a ring in the corrugated surface and scrambled up onto her desert beast. More slowly, Odraid and Waff followed. The worm's warm surface felt non-organic to Odraid, as though it were some Ixian artifact. Shiana skipped forward along the back and squatted just behind its mouth, where the rings bulged thick and wide. Like this, Shiana said. She leaned forward and clutched beneath the leading edge of a ring, lifting it slightly to expose pink softness underneath. Waff obeyed her immediately, but Odraid moved with more caution, storing impressions. The ring surface was as hard as plascrete and covered with tiny encrustations. Odraid's fingers probed the softness under the leading edge. It pulsed faintly. The surface around them lifted and fell with an almost imperceptible rhythm. Odraid heard a tiny rasping with each movement. Shiana kicked the worm surface behind her. Shaitan, go, she said. The worm did not respond. Please, Shaitan, Shiana pleaded. Odraid heard the desperation in Shiana's voice. 
The child was so confident of her shaitan, but Odraid knew that the girl had been allowed to ride only that first time. Odraid had the full story, from death wish to priestly confusion, but none of it told her what would happen next. Abruptly, the worm lurched into motion. It lifted sharply, twisted to the left, and made a tight curve out of the rocky defile, then moved directly away from Daris Balad into the open desert. We go with God, Waff shouted. The sound of his voice shocked Odraid. Such wildness. She sensed the power in his faith. The thwock-thwock of following ornithopters came from overhead. The wind of their passage whipped past Odraid, full of ozone and the hot furnace odors stirred up by the friction of the rushing behemoth. Odraid glanced over her shoulders at the thopters, thinking how easy it would be for enemies to rid this planet of a troublesome child, an equally troublesome reverend mother, and a despised Tleilaxu, all in one violently vulnerable moment on the open desert. The priestly cabal might attempt it, she knew, hoping that Odraid's own watches up there would be too late to prevent it. Would curiosity and fear hold them back? Odraid admitted to a mighty curiosity herself. Where is this thing taking us? Certainly it was not headed toward Keen. She lifted her head and peered past Shiana. On the horizon directly ahead lay that tell-tale indentation of fallen stones, that place where the tyrant had been spilled from the surface of his fairy bridge. The place of other memory warning. Abrupt revelation locked Odraid's mind. She understood the warning. The tyrant had died at a place of his own choosing. Many deaths had left their imprint on that place, but his the greatest. The tyrant chose his peregrination route with purpose. Shiana had not told her worm to go there. It moved that way of its own volition. The magnet of the tyrant's endless dream drew it back to the place where the dream began. There was this drylander who asked which was more important, a litogen of water or a vast pool of water. The drylander thought a moment and then said, The litogen is more important. No single person could own a great pool of water. But a litogen you could hide under your cloak and run away with it. No one would know. The Jokes of Ancient Dune Bene Gesserit Archives. It was a long session in the No Globes practice hall, Duncan in a mobile cage driving the exercise, adamant that this particular training series would continue until his new body had adapted to the seven central attitudes of combat response against attack from eight directions. His green single suit was dark with perspiration. Twenty days they had been at this one lesson. Teg knew the ancient lore that Duncan revived here, but knew it by different names and sequencing. Before they had been into it five days, Teg doubted the superiority of modern methods. Now he was convinced that Duncan did something completely new, mixing the old with what he had learned in the keep. Teg sat at his own control console as much an observer as a participant. The consoles that guided the dangerous shadow forces in this practice had required mental adjustment by Teg, but he felt familiar with them now and moved the attack with facility and frequent inspiration. A simmering Lucilla glanced into the hall occasionally. She watched and then left without comment. Teg did not know what Duncan was doing about the imprinter, but there was a feeling that the reawakened Gola played a delaying game with his seductress. She would not allow that to continue long, Teg knew, but it was out of his hands. Duncan no longer was too young for the imprinter, 
That young body carried a mature male mind with experiences from which to make his own decisions. Duncan and Tegg had been on the floor with only one break all morning. Hunger pangs gnawed at Tegg, but he felt reluctant to halt the session. Duncan's abilities had climbed to a new level today, and he was still improving. Tegg, seated in a fixed console's cage seat, twisted the attack forces into a complex maneuver, striking from left, right, and above. The Harkonnen Armory had produced an abundance of these exotic weapons and training instruments, some of which Tegg had known only from historical accounts. Duncan knew them all, apparently, and with an intimacy that Tegg admired. Hunter-seekers geared to penetrate a force shield were part of the shadow system they used now. They automatically slow down to go through the shield, Duncan explained in his young old voice. Too fast to strike, of course, and the shield repels. Shields of that type have almost gone out of fashion, Tegg said. A few societies maintain them as a kind of sport, but otherwise... Duncan executed a repost of blurred speed that dropped three hunter-seekers to the floor, damaged enough to require the no-globe's maintenance services. He removed the cage and dampened the system, but left it idling while he came over to Tegg, breathing deeply but easily. Looking past Tegg, Duncan smiled and nodded. Tegg whirled, but there was only the flick of Lucilla's gown as she left them. It's like a duel, Duncan said. She tries to thrust through my guard, and I counterattack. Have a care, Tegg said. That's a full reverend mother. I've known a few of them in my time, Basher. Once more, Tegg found himself confounded. He had been warned that he would have to readjust to this different Duncan Idaho, but he had not fully anticipated the constant mental demands of that readjustment. The look in Duncan's eyes right now was disconcerting. Our roles are changed a bit, Basha, Duncan said. He picked up a towel from the floor and mopped his face. I'm no longer sure of what I can teach you, Tegg admitted. He wished, though, that Duncan would take his warning about Lucilla. Did Duncan imagine that the reverend mothers of those ancient days were identical with the women of today? Tegg thought that highly unlikely. In the way of all other life, the sisterhood evolved and changed. It was obvious to Tegg that Duncan had come to a decision about his place in Teresa's machinations. Duncan was not merely biding his time. He was training his body to a personally chosen peak, and he had made a judgment about the Bene Gesserit. He has made that judgment on insufficient data, Tegg thought. Duncan dropped the towel and looked at it for a moment. Let me be the judge of what you can teach me, Basha. He turned and stared narrowly at Tegg seated in the cage. Tegg inhaled deeply. He smelled the faint ozone from all of this durable Harkonnen equipment ticking away in readiness for Duncan's return to action. The gola's perspiration carried a bitter dominant. Duncan sneezed. Tegg sniffed, recognizing the omnipresent dust of their activities. It could be more tasted than smelled at times. Alkaline. Over it all was the fragrance of the air scrubbers and oxy-regenerators. There was a distinct floral aroma built into the system, but Tegg could not identify the flower. In the month of their occupation, the globe also had taken on human odors, slowly insinuated into the original composite. Perspiration, cooking smells that never quite suppressed acridity of waste reclamation. To Tegg, these reminders of their presence were oddly offensive, and he found himself sniffing 
and listening for sounds of intrusion, something more than the echoing passage of their own footsteps and the subdued metallic clashings from the kitchen area. Duncan's voice intruded. You're an odd man, Basher. What do you mean? There's your resemblance to the Duke later. The facial identity is weird. He was a bit shorter than you, but the identity... He shook his head, thinking of the Bene Gesserit designs, behind those genetic markers in Teg's face, that hawk look, the crease lines, and that inner thing, that certainty of moral superiority. How moral, and how superior. According to the records he had seen at the keep, and Duncan was sure they had been placed there especially for him to discover, Teg's reputation was an almost universal thing throughout human society of this age. At the Battle of Marcon, it had been enough for the enemy to know that Teg was there opposite them in person. They sued for terms. Was that true? Duncan looked at Teg in the console cage and put this question to him. Reputation can be a beautiful weapon, Teg said. It often spills less blood. At Arbolo, why did you go to the front with your troops? Duncan asked. Teg showed surprise. Where did you learn that? At the keep. You might have been killed. What would that have served? Teg reminded himself that this young flesh standing over him held unknown knowledge which must guide Duncan's quest for information. It was in that unknown area, Teg suspected, that Duncan was most valuable to the sisterhood. We took severe losses at Arbolo on the preceding two days, Teg said. I failed to make a correct assessment of the enemy's fear and fanaticism. But the risk of my presence at the front said to my own people, I share your risks. The Keep's record said Arbolo had been perverted by face dancers. Patrin told me you vetoed your aides when they urged you to sweep the planet clean, sterilize it, and... You were not there, Duncan. I'm trying to be. So you spared your enemy against all advice? Except for the face dancers. But then you walked unarmed through the enemy ranks, and before they had laid down their weapons. To assure them they would not be mistreated. That was very dangerous. Was it? Many of them came over to us for the final assault on Croynen, where we broke the anti-sisterhood forces. Duncan stared hard at Teg. Not only did this old Bashar resemble Duke Leto in appearance, but he also had that same Atreides charisma, a legendary figure even among his former enemies. Teg had said he was descended from Ganima of the Atreides, but there had to be more in it than that. The ways of the Bene Gesserit breeding mastery awed him. We will go back to the practice now, Duncan said. Don't damage yourself. You forget, Basha. I remember a body as young as this one and right here on Gidi Prime. Gamo. It was properly renamed, but my body still recalls the original. That is why they sent me here. I know it. Of course he would know it, Teg thought. Restored by the brief respite, Teg introduced a new element in the attack and sent a sudden burn line against Duncan's left side. How easily Duncan parried the attack. He was using an oddly mixed variation on the five attitudes, each response seemingly invented before it was required. Each attack is a feather floating on the infinite road, Duncan said. His voice gave no hint of exertion. As the feather approaches, it is diverted and removed. As he spoke, he parried the shifting attack and countered. Teg's mentat logic followed the movements into what he recognized as dangerous places. Dependences and key logs. Duncan shifted over to attack, moving ahead of it, 
pacing his movements rather than responding. Teg was forced to his utmost abilities as the shadow forces burned and flickered across the floor. Duncan's weaving figure in its mobile cage danced along the space between them. Not one of Teg's hunter-seekers or burn-line counters touched the moving figure. Duncan was over them, under them, seeming totally unafraid of the real pain that this equipment could bring him. Once more, Duncan increased the speed of his attack. A bolt of pain shot up Teg's left arm from his hand on the controls to his shoulder. With a sharp exclamation, Duncan shut down the equipment. Sorry, Basha. That was superb defense on your part, but I'm afraid age defeated you. Once more, Duncan crossed the floor and stood over Teg. A little pain to remind me of the pain I caused you, Teg said. He rubbed his tingling arm. Blame the heat of the moment, Duncan said. We've done enough for now. Not quite, Teg said. It is not enough to strengthen only your muscles. At Teg's words, Duncan felt an alerting sensation throughout his body. He sensed the disorganized touch of that uncompleted thing that the reawakening had failed to arouse. Something crouched within him, Duncan thought. It was like a coiled spring waiting for release. What more would you do? Duncan asked. His voice sounded hoarse. Your survival is in the balance here, Teg said. All of this is being done to save you and get you to Rackus. For Bene Gesserit reasons, which you say you do not know. I don't know them, Duncan. But you're a Mentat. Mentats require data to make projections. Do you think Lucilla knows? I'm not sure, but let me warn you again about her. She has orders to get you to Rackus prepared for what you must do there. Must? Duncan shook his head from side to side. Am I not my own person, with rights to make my own choices? What do you think you've reawakened here, a damned face dancer capable only of obeying orders? Are you telling me you will not go to Rackers? I'm telling you I will make my own decisions when I know what it is I'm to do. I'm not a hard assassin. You think I am, Duncan? I think you're an honourable man, someone to be admired. Give me credit for having my own standards of duty and honour. You've been given another chance at life, and— But you are not my father, and Lucilla is not my mother. Imprinter? For what does she hope to prepare me? It may be that she does not know, Duncan. Like me, she may have only part of the design. Knowing how the sisterhood works, that is highly likely. So, the two of you just train me and deliver me to Arrakis. Here's the package you ordered. This is a far different universe than the one where you were originally born, Teg said. As it was in your day, we still have a great convention against atomics and the pseudo-atomics of laser-gun-shield interaction. We still say that sneak attacks are forbidden. There are pieces of paper scattered around to which we have put our names, and we— But and no ships have changed the basis for all of those treaties, Duncan said. I think I learned my history fairly well at the keep. Tell me, Basha, why did Paul's son have the Tleilaxu provide him with my Gola self, hundreds of me, for all those thousands of years? Paul's son? The Keep's records call him the God Emperor. You name him Tyrant. Oh, I don't think we know why he did it. Perhaps he was lonely for someone from... You brought me back to confront the worm, Duncan said. Is that what we're doing? Teg wondered. He had considered this possibility more than once, but it was only a possibility, not a projection. Even so, there had to be something more in Teraza's design. Teg sensed this with every fibre of his Mentat training. Did Lucilla know? 
Teg did not delude himself that he could pry revelation from a full reverend mother. No, he would have to bide his time, wait and watch and listen. In his own way, this obviously was what Duncan had decided. It was a dangerous course if he thwarted Lucilla. Teg shook his head. Truly, Duncan, I do not know. But you follow orders. By my oath to the sisterhood. Deceptions, dishonesties, those are empty words when the question is the sisterhood's survival, Duncan quoted him. Yes, I said that, Teg agreed. I trust you now because you said it, Duncan said. But I do not trust Lucilla. Teg dropped his chin to his breast. Dangerous, dangerous. Much more slowly than once he had done, Teg brought his attention out of such thoughts and went through the mental cleansing process, concentrating on the necessities laid upon him by Teresa. You are my Basha. Duncan studied the Basha for a moment. Fatigue lines were obvious on the old man's face. Duncan was reminded suddenly of Teg's great age, wondering if it ever tempted men such as Teg to seek out the Tleilaxu and become golas. Probably not. They knew they might become Tleilaxu puppets. This thought flooded Duncan's awareness, holding him immobile so plainly that Teg, lifting his gaze, saw it at once. Is something wrong? The Tleilaxu have done something to me. Something that has not yet been exposed, Duncan husked. Exactly what we feared. It was Lucilla speaking from the doorway behind Teg. She advanced to within two paces of Duncan. I have been listening. You two are very informative. Teg spoke quickly, hoping to blunt the anger he sensed in her. He has mastered the seven attitudes today. He strikes like fire, Lucilla said. But remember that we of the sisterhood flow like water and fill in every place. She glanced down at Teg. Do you not see that our gola has gone beyond the attitudes? No fixed position, no attitude, Duncan said. Teg looked up sharply at Duncan, who stood with his head erect, his forehead smooth, his eyes clear as he returned Teg's gaze. Duncan had grown surprisingly in the short time since being awakened to his original memories. Damn you, Miles, Lucilla muttered. But Teg kept his attention on Duncan. The youth's entire body seemed wired to a new kind of vigour. There was a poise about him that had not been there before. Duncan shifted his attention to Lucilla. You think you will fail in your assignment? Surely not, she said. You're still a male. And she thought, yes, that young body must flow hot with the juices of procreation. Indeed, the hormonal igniters are all intact and susceptible to arousing. His present stance, though, and the way he looked at her forced her to raise her awareness to new, energy-demanding levels. What have the Tleilaxu done to you? she demanded. Duncan spoke with a flippancy that he did not feel. Oh, great imprinter, if I knew, I would tell you. You think it's a game we play? she demanded. I do not know what it is we play at. By now, many people know we are not on Rakis, where we would have been expected to flee, she said. And Gamu swarms with people returned from the scattering, Teg said. They have the numbers to explore many possibilities here. Who would suspect the existence of a lost no-glow from the Harkonnen days? Duncan asked. Anyone who made the association between Rakus and Daris Balad, Teg said. If you think this is a game, consider the urgencies of the play, Lucilla said. 
she pivoted on one foot to concentrate on Teg. And you have disobeyed Teraza. You are wrong. I have done exactly what she ordered me to do. I am her Bashar, and you forget how well she knows me. With an abruptness that shocked her to silence, the subtleties of Teraza's maneuverings impressed themselves upon Lucilla. We are pawns. What a delicate touch Teraza always demonstrated in the way she moved her pawns about. Lucilla did not feel diminished by the realization that she was a pawn. That was knowledge bred and trained into every reverend mother of the sisterhood. Even Teg knew it. Not diminished, no. The thing around them had escalated in Lucilla's awareness. She felt awed by Teg's words. How shallow had been her previous view of the forces within which they were enmeshed. It was as though she had seen only the surface of a turbulent river, and from that had glimpsed the currents beneath. Now, however, she felt the flow all around her, and a dismaying realization. Pawns are expendable. By your belief in singularities, in granular absolutes, you deny movement, even the movement of evolution. While you cause a granular universe to persist in your awareness, you are blind to movement. When things change, your absolute universe vanishes, no longer accessible to your self-limiting perceptions. The universe has moved beyond you. First Draft, Atreides Manifesto, Bene Gesserit Archives Teraza put her hands beside her temples, palms flat in front of her ears, and pressed inward. Even her fingers could feel the tiredness in there, right between the hands. Fatigue. A brief flicker of eyelids and she fell into the relaxation trance, hands against head, with the sole focal points of fleshy awareness. One hundred heartbeats. She had practiced this regularly since learning it as a child, one of her first Bene Gesserit skills, Exactly one hundred heartbeats. After all of those years of practice, her body could pace them automatically by an unconscious metronome. When she opened her eyes at the count of one hundred, her head felt better. She hoped she would have at least two more hours in which to work before fatigue overcame her once more. Those one hundred heartbeats had given her extra years of wakefulness in her lifetime. Tonight, though, Thinking of that old trick sent her memories spiralling backward. She found herself caught in her own childhood, the dormitory with the sister Proctor pacing the aisle at night to make sure they all remained properly asleep in their beds. Sister Baram, the night Proctor. Teresa had not thought of that name in years. Sister Baram had been short and fat, a failed reverend mother, not for any immediately visible reason, but the medical sisters and their souk doctors had found something. Baram had never been permitted to try the spice agony. She had been quite forthcoming about what she knew of her defect. It had been discovered while she was still in her teens, periodic nerve tremors, which manifested when she began to sink into sleep, a symptom of something deeper that had caused her to be sterilized. The tremors made Baram wakeful in the night. I'll patrol was a logical assignment. Baram had other weaknesses not detected by her superiors. A wakeful child toddling to the washroom could lure Baram into low-voiced conversation. 
Naive questions elicited mostly naive answers, but sometimes Baram imparted useful knowledge. She had taught Teraza the relaxation trick. One of the older girls had found Sister Baram dead in the washroom one morning. The night proctor's tremors had been the symptom of a fatal defect, a fact important mostly to the breeding mistresses and their endless records. Because the Bene Gesserit did not usually schedule the full solo-death education until well into the acolyte stage, Sister Baram was the first dead person Teraza had seen. Sister Baram's body had been found partly beneath a washbasin, the right cheek pressed to the tile floor, her left hand caught in the plumbing under a sink. She had tried to pull her failing body upright, and death had caught her in the attempt, exposing that last motion like an insect caught in amber. When they rolled Sister Baram over to carry her away, Teraza saw the red mark where a cheek had been pressed to the floor. The day proctor explained this mark with a scientific practicality. Any experience could be turned into data for these potential reverend mothers to incorporate later into their acolyte conversations with death. Post-mortem lividity. Seated at her chapter-house table, all those years removed from the event, Teraza was forced to use her carefully focused powers of concentration to dispel that memory, leaving her free to deal with the work spread before her. So many lessons, so fearfully full her memory, so many lifetimes stored there. It reaffirmed her sense of being alive to see the work in front of her, things to do. She was needed. Eagerly, Teraza bent to her labors. Damn the necessity to train the gola on Gamu. But this gola required it. Familiarity with dirt underfoot preceded the required restoration of that original persona. It had been wise to send Bursmali into the Gamu arena. If Miles had really found a hideaway, if he were to emerge now, he would need all the help he could get. Once more, she considered whether it was time to play the prescient game so dangerous, and the Tleilaxu had been alerted that their replacement Gola might be required. Ready him for delivery. Her mind swung to the Rakis problem. That fool Tuek should have been monitored more carefully. How long could a face dancer safely impersonate him? There was no faulting Audrey's on-scene decision, though. She had put the Tleilaxu into an untenable position. The impersonator could be exposed plunging the Bene Tleilax into a sink of hatred. The game within the Bene Gesserit design had become very delicate. For generations now, they had held out to the Rakian priesthood the bait of a Bene Gesserit alliance. But now, the Tleilaxu must consider that they had been chosen instead of the priests. Odrade's three-cornered alliance, let the priests think every reverend mother would take the oath of subservience to the divided god, the priestly council would stutter with excitement at the prospect. The Tleilaxu, of course, saw the chance to monopolize Melange, controlling at last the one source independent of them. A rap at Teraza's door told her the acolyte had arrived with tea. It was a standing order when the Mother Superior worked late. Teraza glanced at the table chrono, an Ixian device so accurate it would gain or lose only one second in a century. One, twenty-three... 11 a.m. She called to admit the acolyte. The girl, a pale blonde with coldly observant eyes, entered and bent to arrange the contents of her tray beside Teraza. Teraza ignored the girl and stared at the work remaining on the table. 
so much to do. Work was more important than sleep. But her head ached and she felt the telltale dazed sensation akin to a stunned brain that told her the tea would provide little relief. She had worked herself into mental starvation and it would have to be put right before she could even stand. Her shoulders and back throbbed. The acolytes started to leave, but Teraza motioned for her to wait. Rub my back, please, sister. The acolyte's educated hands slowly worked out the constrictions in Teraza's back. Good girl. Teraza smiled at this thought. Of course she was good. No lesser creature could be assigned to the mother superior. When the girl had gone, Teraza sat silently in deep thought. So little time. She begrudged every minute of sleep. There was no escaping it, though. Eventually the body made its unavoidable demands. She had pressed herself beyond easy recuperation for days now. Ignoring the tea laid out beside her, Teraza arose and went down the hall to her tiny sleeping cell. There she left a call with the night guard for 11 a.m. and composed herself fully robed on the hard cot. Quietly, she regulated her breathing, insulated her senses from distraction, and fell into the between state. Sleep did not come. She went through her full repertoire, and still sleep evaded her. Teresa lay there for a long time, recognizing at last the futility of willing herself to sleep with any of the techniques at her disposal. The between state would have to do its slow mending first. Meanwhile, her mind continued to churn. The Rakian priesthood she had never considered to be a central problem. Already caught up in religion, the priests could be manipulated by religion. They saw the Bene Gesserit chiefly as a power that could enforce their dogma. Let them continue to think this. It was bait that would blind them. Damn that Miles Tegg. Three months of silence, and no favorable report from Bursmali either. Charred ground, signs of a no-ship's liftoff. Where could Teg have gone? The Gola might be dead. Teg had never before done such a thing. Old reliability, that was why she had chosen him. That and his military skills and his likeness to the old Duke Leto. All of the things they had prepared in him. Teg and Lucilla. A perfect team. If not dead, was the Gola beyond their reach? Did the Tleilaxu have him? Attackers from the scattering? Many things were possible. Old reliability. Silent. Was his silence a message? If so, what was he trying to say? With both Shuang Yu and Patrin dead, there was the smell of conspiracy around the Gamu events. Could Teg be someone planted long ago by the Sisterhood's enemies? Impossible. His own family was proof against such doubts. Teg's daughter at the family home was as mystified as anyone. Three months now, and not a word. Caution. She had warned Teg to exercise the utmost caution in protecting the Gola. Teg had seen the great danger on Gamu. Chuang Yu's last reports made that clear. Where could Teg and Lucilla have taken the Gola? Where had they acquired a no-ship? Conspiracy? Teraza's mind kept circling around her deep suspicions. Was it Odrade's doing? Then who conspired with Odrade? Lucilla? Odrade and Lucilla had never met before that brief encounter on Gamu. Or had they? Who bent close to Odrade and breathed a mutual air weighted with whispers? 
Audrey gave no sign, but what proof was that? Lucilla's loyalty had never been doubted. They both functioned perfectly as assigned, but so would conspirators. Facts. Teresa hungered for facts. The bed rustled beneath her and her sense insulation collapsed, shattered by worries as much as by the sound of her own movements. Resignedly, Teresa once more composed herself for relaxation. Relaxation, and then sleep. Ships from the scattering flitted through Teresa's fatigue-fogged imagination. Lost ones returned in their uncounted no-ships. Was that where Teg found a ship? This possibility was being explored as quietly as they could on Gamu and elsewhere. She tried counting imaginary ships, but they refused to proceed in the orderly fashion required for sleep induction. Taraza came alert without moving on her cot. Her deepest mind was trying to reveal something. Fatigue had blocked that path of communication, but now she sat up fully awake. That Leilaxu had been dealing with people returned from the scattering with these whorish, honoured matres, and with returned Benetlelax as well. Teresa sensed a single design behind events. The Lost Ones did not return out of simple curiosity about their roots. The gregarious desire to reunite all of humankind was not enough in itself to bring them back. The honoured matres clearly came with dreams of conquest. But what if the Tleilaxu sent out in the scattering had not carried with them the secret of the axolotl tanks? What then? Melange. The orange-eyed whores obviously used an inadequate substitute. The people of the scattering might not have solved the mystery of the Tleilaxu tanks. They would know about axolotl tanks and try to recreate them, but if they failed... Melange. She began to explore this projection. The lost ones ran out of the true melange their ancestors took into the scattering. What sources did they have then? the worms of Rakis and the original Bennett Lelax. The whores would not dare reveal their true interest. Their ancestors believed that the worms could not be transplanted. Was it possible the Lost Ones had found a suitable planet for the worms? Of course it was possible. They might begin bargaining with the Tleilaxu as a diversion. Rakis would be their real target. Or the reverse could be true. Transportable wealth. She had seen Teg's reports on the wealth being accumulated on Gamu. Some among the ones returning had coinages and other negotiable chips. That much was plain from the banking activities. What greater currency was there, though, than the spice? Wealth. That was it, of course. And whatever the chips, the bargaining had begun. Teresa grew aware of voices outside her door. The acolyte sleep guard was arguing with someone. The voices were low, but Teresa heard enough to bring her into full alert. She left a wake-up for late morning, the sleep guard protested. Someone else whispered, She said she was to be told the moment I returned. I tell you, she is very tired. She needs... She needs to be obeyed. Tell her I'm back. Teresa sat up and swung her legs over the edge of the cot. Her feet found the floor. God's how her knees ached. It pained her, too, that she could not place the intruding whisper, the person arguing with the guard. Whose return did I? Buzmali. I'm awake, Teresa called. Her door opened and the sleep guard leaned in. Mother Superior, Buzmali has returned from Gamu. Send him in at once. Teresa activated a single glow-glow at the head of her cot. Its yellow light washed away the room's darkness. Buzmali entered and closed the door behind him. 
Without being told, he touched the sound insulation switch on the door, and all outside noises vanished. Privacy? It was bad news, then. She looked up at Bursmali. He was a short, slender fellow, with a sharply triangular face narrowing to a thin chin. Blonde hair swept over a high forehead. His widely spaced green eyes were alert and watchful. He looked far too young for the responsibilities of Abasha, but then Teg had looked even younger at Arbelo. We are getting old, damn it. She forced herself to relax and place her trust in the fact that Teg had trained this man and expressed full confidence in him. Tell me the bad news, Teraza said. Buzmali cleared his throat. Still no sign of the Bashar and his party on Gamu, Mother Superior. He had a heavy, masculine voice. And that's not the worst of it, Teraza thought. She saw the clear signs of Buzmali's nervousness. Let's have it all, she ordered. Obviously you have completed your examination of the keep's ruins. No survivors, he said. The attackers were thorough. Tlelaxu? Possible. You have doubts? The attackers used that new Ixian explosive, Twelve Yuri. I think it may have been used to mislead us. There were mechanical brain probe holes in Shuangyu's skull, too. What of Patrin? Exactly as Shuangyu reported. He blew himself up in that decoy ship. They identified him from bits of two fingers and one intact eye. There was nothing left big enough to probe. But you have doubts. Get to them. Shuangyu left a message that only we might read. In the wear marks on furniture? Yes, Mother Superior. And then she knew she would be attacked and had time to leave a message. I saw your earlier report on the devastation of the attack. It was quick and totally overpowering. The attackers did not try to take captives. What did she say? Whores. Teraza tried to contain her shock, although she had been expecting that word. The effort to remain calm almost drained her energies. This was very bad. Teraza permitted herself a deep sigh. Shuang Yu's opposition had persisted to the end, but then, seeing disaster, she had made a proper decision. Knowing she would die without the opportunity to transfer her memory lives to another reverend mother, she had acted from the most basic loyalty. If you can do nothing else, arm your sisters and frustrate the enemy. So the honoured matres have acted. Tell me about your search for the gola, Teraza ordered. We were not the first searchers over that ground, Mother Superior. There was much additional burning of trees and rocks and underbrush. But it was a no-ship? The marks of a no-ship. Teraza nodded to herself. A silent message from old reliability? How closely did you examine the area? I flew over it, but on a routine trip from one place to another. Teraza motioned Bursmali to a chair near the foot of her cot. Sit down and relax. I want you to do some guessing for me. Bursmali lowered himself carefully onto the chair. Guessing? You were his favourite student. I want you to imagine that you are Miles Tegg. You know you must get the Gola out of the keep. You do not place your full trust in anyone around you, not even in Lucilla. What will you do? An unexpected thing, of course. Of course. Bursmali rubbed his narrow chin. Presently he said, I trust Patrin. I trust him fully. All right, you and Patrin. What do you do? Patron is a native of Gamu. I have been wondering about that myself, she said. Bursmali looked at the floor in front of him. Patron and I will make an emergency plan long before it is needed. I always prepare secondary ways of dealing with problems. Very good. Now, the plan. What do you do? Why did Patron kill himself? Bursmali asked. You're sure that's what he did? 
You saw the reports. Shwangyo and several others were sure of it. I accept it. Patrin was loyal enough to do that for his basha. For you. You are Miles Take now. What plan have you and Patrin concocted? I would not deliberately send Patrin to certain death. Unless? Patrin did that on his own. He might if the plan originated with him and not with... me. He might do it to protect me, to make sure no one discovered the plan. How could Patrin summon a no-ship without our learning of it? Patrin was a Gamu native. His family goes back to the Gidi Prime days. Teraza closed her eyes and turned her head away from Bursmali. So Bursmali followed the same suggestive tracks that she had been probing in her mind. We knew Patrin's origins. What was the significance of this Gamu association? Her mind refused to speculate. This was what came of allowing herself to become too tired. She looked once more at Bosmali. Did Patrin find a way to make secret contact with family and old friends? We've explored every contact we could find. Depend on it. You haven't traced them all. Bosmali shrugged. Of course not. I have not acted on that assumption. Teraza took a deep breath. Go back to Gamu. Take with you as much help as our security can spare. Tell Belonda those are my orders. You must insinuate agents into every walk of life. Find out who Patron knew. What of his surviving family, friends? Winkle them out. That will cause a stir, no matter how careful we are. Others will know. That cannot be helped. And Bosmali? He was on his feet. Yes, Mother Superior. The other searchers. You must stay ahead of them. May I use a guild navigator? No. Then how? Bosmali. What if Miles and Lucilla and Argola are still on Gamu? I've already told you that I do not accept the idea of their leaving in a no-ship. For a long silent period, Teraza studied the man standing at the foot of her cot, trained by Miles Tag, the old Basha's favorite student. What was Bosmali's trained instinct suggesting? In a low voice, she prompted, Yes? Gamu was Gidi Prime, a Harkonnen place. What does that suggest to you? They were rich, Mother Superior. Very rich. So? Rich enough to accomplish the secret installation of a no-room, even of a large no-globe. There are no records. Ix has never even vaguely suggested such a thing. They have not probed on Gamu for bribes, third-party purchases. Many transshipments, Bosmali said. The famine times were very disruptive. And before that, there were all those millennia of the tyrant, when the Harkonnens kept their heads down or lost them. Still, I will admit the possibility. Records could have been lost, Bosmali said. Not by us or the other governments that survived. What prompts this line of speculation? Patron. Ah. He spoke quickly. If such a thing were discovered... A Gamu native might know about it. How many of them would know? Do you think they could have kept such a secret for... Yes, I see what you mean. If it were a secret of Patrin's family... I have not dared question any of them about it. Of course not. But where would you look without alerting? That place on the mountain where the no-ship marks were left. It would require you to go there in person. Very hard to conceal from spies, he agreed unless I went with a very small force, and seemingly on another purpose. What other purpose? To place a funeral marker in memory of my old basher. Suggesting that we know he is dead? 
Yes. You've already asked the Thrilaxu to replace Argola? That was a simple precaution and does not bear on... Basmali, this is extremely dangerous. I doubt we can mislead the kinds of people who will observe you on Gamu. The mourning of myself and the people I take with me will be dramatic and believable. The believable does not necessarily convince a wary observer. Do you not trust my loyalty and the loyalty of the people I will take with me? Teresa pursed her lips in thought. She reminded herself that fixed loyalty was a thing they had learned to improve upon from the Atreides pattern. How to produce people who command the utmost devotion. Basmali and Teg both were fine examples. It might work, Teresa agreed. She stared speculatively at Basmali. Teg's favorite student could be right. Then I'll go, Basmali said. He turned to leave. One moment, Teresa said. Basmali turned. You will saturate yourselves with sheer, all of you, and if you're captured by face dancers, these new ones, you must burn your own heads or shatter them completely. Take the necessary precautions. The suddenly sobered expression on Basmali's face reassured Teresa. He had been proud of himself for a moment there. Better to dampen his pride. No need for him to be reckless. We have long known that the objects of our palpable sense experiences can be influenced by choice, both conscious choice and unconscious. This is a demonstrated fact that does not require that we believe some force within us reaches out and touches the universe. I address a pragmatic relationship between belief and what we identify as real. All of our judgments carry a heavy burden of ancestral beliefs to which we of the Bene Gesserit tend to be more susceptible than most. It is not enough that we are aware of this and guard against it. Alternative interpretations must always receive our attention. Mother Superior Teresa, Argument in Council God will judge us here, Woff gloated. He had been doing that at unpredictable moments all during this long ride across the desert. Shiana appeared not to notice, but Woff's voice and comments had begun to wear on Odraid. The Rakian sun had moved far down to the west, but the worm that carried them appeared untiring in its drive across the ancient Saria toward the remnant mounds of the tyrant's barrier wall. Why this direction? Odraid wondered. No answer satisfied. The fanaticism and renewed danger from Waff, though, demanded immediate response. She called up the cant of the shariat that she knew drove him. Let God do the judging and not men! Woff scowled at the taunting note in her voice. He looked at the horizon ahead and then up at the thopters, which kept pace with them. Men must do God's work, he muttered. Audrey did not answer. Woff had been deflected into his doubts and now would be asking himself, did these Bene Gesserit witches really share the great belief? Her thoughts dove back into the unanswered questions, tumbling through all she knew about the worms of Rakis. Personal memories and other memories wove a mad montage. She could visualize robed Fremen atop a worm even larger than this one, each rider leaning back against a long hooked pole that dug into a worm's rings as her hands now gripped this one. She felt the wind against her cheeks, the robe whipping against her shanks. This ride and others merged into a long familiarity. It has been a long time since an Atreides rode this way. Was there a clue to their destination back in Daris Balat? How could there be? But it had been so hot, 
and her mind had been questing forward to what might happen on this venture into the desert. She had not been as alert as she might have been. In common with every other community on Rakis, Dares Balat pulled inward from its edges during the heat of the early afternoon. Audrade recalled the chafing of her new stillsuit while she waited in a building's shadows near the western limits of Dares Balat. She waited for the separate escorts to bring Shiana and Waf from the safe houses where Audrade had installed them. What a tempting target she had made. But they had to be certain of Rakian compliance. The Bene Gesserit escorts delayed deliberately. Shaitan likes the heat, Shiana had said. Rakians hid from the heat, but the worms came out then. Was that a significant fact, revealing the reason for this worm to take them in a particular direction? My mind is bouncing around like a child's ball. What did it signify that Rakians hid from the sun while a little Tleilaxu, a reverend mother, and a wild young girl went coursing across the desert atop a worm? It was an ancient pattern on Rakis. Nothing surprising about it at all. The ancient Fremen had been mostly nocturnal, though their modern descendants depended more on shade to protect them from the hottest sunlight. How safe the priests felt behind their guardian moats. Every resident of a Rakian urban centre knew the Kanat was out there, watered running slick in shadowed darkness, trickles diverted to feed the narrow canals whose evaporation was recaptured in the wind traps. Our prayers protect us, they said, but they knew very well what really protected them. His holy presence is seen in the desert. The holy worm. The divided god. Odraid looked down at the worm rings in front of her. And here he is. She thought of the priests among the watches in the thopters overhead, how they loved to spy on others. She had felt them watching her back in Daris Balat while she awaited the arrival of Shiana and Waf. Eyes behind the high grills of hidden balconies. Eyes peering through slits in thick walls. Eyes concealed behind mirror plies or staring out from shadowed places. Odrade had forced herself to ignore the dangers while she marked the passage of time by the movement of the shadow line on a wall above her. A sure clock in this land where few kept other than sun time. Tensions had built, amplified by the need to appear unconcerned. Would they attack? Would they dare, knowing that she had taken her own precautions? How angry were the priests at being forced to join the Tleilaxu in this secret triumvirate? Her reverend mother advisers from the keep had not liked this dangerous baiting of the priests. Let one of us be the bait. Odrade had been adamant. They would not believe it. Suspicions would keep them away. Besides, they are sure to send Albertus. So Odrade had waited in the Daris Balat courtyard, green-shadowed in the depths where she stood looking upward at the sunline six stories overhead, past lacy balustrades at each balconied level, green plants, brilliant red, orange and blue flowers, a rectangle of silvery sky above the tears, and the hidden eyes. Motion at the wide street door to her right, a single figure in priestly gold, purple and white let himself into the courtyard, she studied him, looking for signs that the Thelaxu might have extended their sway by another face-dancer mimic. But this was a man, a priest she recognized, Albertus, the senior of Dares Balat, just as we expected. Albertus moved through the wide atrium and across the courtyard toward her, walking with careful dignity. Were there dangerous portents in him? Would he signal his assassins? 
She glanced upward at the tiered balconies, little flickering motions at the higher levels. The approaching priest was not alone. But neither am I. Albertus came to a stop, two paces from Odraid, and looked up at her from where he had kept his attention on the intricate gold and purple designs of the courtyard's tiled floor. He has weak bones, Odraid thought. She gave no sign of recognition. Albertus was one of those who knew that his high priest had been replaced by a face dancer mimic. Albertus cleared his throat and took a trembling breath. Weak bones, weak flesh. While the thought amused Odraid, it did not reduce her wariness. Reverend mothers always noted that sort of thing. You looked for the marks of the breeding. Such selectivity as existed in the ancestry of Albertus carried flaws, elementals that the sisterhood would try to correct in his descendants if it ever appeared worthwhile to breed him. This would be considered, of course. Albertus had risen to a position of power, doing it quietly, but definitely, and it must be determined whether that implied valuable genetic material. Albertus had been poorly educated, though. A first-year acolyte could have handled him. Conditioning among the Rakian priesthood had degenerated badly since the old fish-speaker days. Why are you here? Odraid demanded, making it as much an accusation as a question. Albertus trembled. I... Bring a message from your people, Reverend Mother. Then say it. There has been a slight delay, something about the route here being known by too many. That, at least, was the story they had agreed to tell the priests. But the other things on the face of Albertus were easy to read. Secrets shared with him were dangerously close to exposure. I almost wish I had ordered you killed, Odraid said. Albertus recoiled two full paces. His eyes went vacant, as though he had died right there in front of her. She recognized the reaction. Albertus had entered that fully revelatory phase where fear gripped his scrotum. He knew that this terrible Reverend Mother Odraid might pass a death sentence upon him quite casually, or kill him with her own hands. Nothing he said or did would escape her awful scrutiny. You have been considering whether to kill me, and destroy our keep at Keen, Odraid accused. Albertus trembled violently. Why do you say such things, Reverend Mother? There was a revealing whine in his voice. Don't try to deny it, she said. I wonder how many have found you as easy to read as I do. You are supposed to be a keeper of secrets. You are not supposed to be walking around with all of our secrets written on your face. Albertus fell to his knees. She thought he would grovel. But your own people sent me. And you were only too happy to come and decide whether it might be possible to kill me. Why would we... Silence! You do not like it that we control Shiana. You are fearful of the Tleilaxu. Matters have been taken from your priestly hands, and things have been set in motion that terrify you. Reverend Mother, what are we to do? What are we to do? You will obey us. More than that, you will obey Shiana. You fear what we venture this day? You have greater things to fear. She shook her head in mock dismay, knowing the effect all of this was having on poor Albertus. He cringed beneath the weight of her anger. On your feet, she ordered, and remember that you are a priest, and the truth is demanded of you. Albertus stumbled to his feet and kept his head bowed. She could see his body responding to the decision that he abandoned subterfuge. 
What a trial that must be for him. Dutiful to the Reverend Mother, who so obviously read his heart, now he must be dutiful to his religion. He must confront the ultimate paradox of all religions. God knows. You hide nothing from me, nothing from Shiana, and nothing from God, Odraid said. Forgive me, Reverend Mother. Forgive you? It is not in my power to forgive you, nor should you ask it of me. You are a priest. He lifted his gaze to Odraid's angry face. The paradox was upon him completely now. God was surely here. But God was usually a long way away, and confrontations could be put off. Tomorrow was another day of life. Surely it was, and it was acceptable if you permitted yourself a few small sins, perhaps a lie or two, for the time being only, and maybe a big sin if temptations were great. Gods were supposed to be more understanding of great sinners. There would be time to make amends. Odraid stared at Albertus with the analyzing eye of the Missionaria Protectiva. Ah, Albertus, she thought, but now you stand in the presence of a fellow human who knows all of the things you believed were secrets between you and your god. For Albertus, his present situation could be little different from death and that ultimate submission to the final judgment of his god. That surely described the unconscious setting for the way Albertus let his willpower crumble now. All of his religious fears had been called up and were focused on a reverend mother. In her driest tones, not even compelling him with voice, Odraid said, I want this farce ended immediately. Albertus tried to swallow. He knew he could not lie. He might know a remote capability of lying, but that was useless. Submissively, he looked up at Odraid's forehead, where the line of her still-suit cap had been drawn tightly across her brow. He spoke in little more than a whisper. Reverend Mother, it is only that we feel deprived. You and the Tlilaxu go into the desert with our Shiana. Both of you will learn from her and... His shoulders sagged. Why do you take the Tlilaxu? Shiana wishes it, Odraid lied. Albertus opened his mouth and closed it without speaking. She could see acceptance flood through him. You will return to your fellows with my warning, Odraid said. The survival of Rakis and of your priesthood depend utterly on how well you obey me. You will not hinder us in the slightest, and as to these puerile plots against us, Shiana reveals to us your every evil thought. Albertus surprised her then. He shook his head and emitted a dry chuckle. Odraid already had noted that many of these priests enjoyed discomfiture, but had not suspected that they might find amusement in their own failures. I find your laughter shallow, she said. Albertus shrugged and restored some of his facial mask. Odraid had seen several such masks on him. Facades. He wore them in layers. And far down under all of that defensiveness lay the someone who cared, the one she had exposed here so briefly. These priests had a dangerous way of falling into florid explanations, though, when taxed too heavily with questions. I must restore the one who cares, Odraid thought. She cut him off as he started to speak. No more. You will wait upon me when I return from the desert, for now you are my messenger. Carry my message accurately, and you will win a greater reward than you have ever imagined. Fail, and you will suffer the agonies of Shaitan. Odraid watched Albertus scurry out of the courtyard. 
shoulders hunched, his head thrust forward as though he could not get his mouth within speaking distance of his peers soon enough. On the whole, she thought, it had gone well. A calculated risk and very dangerous to her personally. She was sure there had been assassins on the balconies above her waiting for a signal from Albertus. And now, the fear he carried back with him was a thing the Bene Gesserit understood intimately through millennia of manipulations. As contagiously virulent as any plague. The teaching sisters called it a directed hysteria. It had been directed, aimed was more accurate, at the heart of the Rakian priesthood. It could be relied upon, especially with the reinforcement that now would be set in motion. The priests would submit. Only the few immune heretics were to be feared now. This is the awe-inspiring universe of magic. There are no atoms, only waves and motions all around. Here you discard all belief in barriers to understanding. You put aside understanding itself. This universe cannot be seen, cannot be heard, cannot be detected in any way by fixed perceptions. It is the ultimate void where no preordained screens occur upon which forms may be projected. You have only one awareness here, the screen of the Magi, imagination. Here you learn what it is to be human. You are a creator of order, of beautiful shapes and systems, an organizer of chaos. The Atreides Manifesto, Bene Gesserit Archives What you are doing is too dangerous, Teg said. My orders are to protect you and strengthen you. I cannot permit this to continue. Teg and Duncan stood in the long, wood-panelled hallway just outside the no-globe's practice floor. It was late afternoon by the clock of their arbitrary routine, and Lucilla had just swept away in anger after a vituperative confrontation. Every meeting between Duncan and Lucilla lately had taken on the nature of a battle. Just now she had stood in the doorway to the practice hall, a solid figure saved from being stolid by her softening curves, the seductive movements obvious to both males. Stop it, Lucilla, Duncan had ordered. Only her voice betrayed her anger. How long do you think I will wait to carry out my orders? Until you or someone else tells me that I... Teraza requires things of you that none of us here knows, Lucilla said. Teg tried to soothe the mounting angers. Please, isn't it enough that Duncan continues to improve his performance? In a few days I will start keeping regular watch outside. We can... You can stop interfering with me, damn you, Lucilla snapped. She whirled and stalked away. As he saw the hard resolution on Duncan's face now, something furious began to work in Teg. He felt impelled by the necessities of their isolated situation. His intellect, that marvellously honed mentat instrument, was shielded here from the mental uproar to which it adjusted on the outside. He thought that if he could only silence his mind, bring everything to stillness, all things would become clear to him. Why are you holding your breath, Basha? Duncan's voice impaled Teg. It required a supreme act of will to resume normal breathing. He felt the emotions of his two companions in the no-globe as an ebb and flow temporarily removed from other forces. Other forces. Mentat awareness could be an idiot in the presence of other forces that swept through the universe. 
There might exist in the universe people whose lives were infused with powers he could not imagine. Before such forces he would be chaff, moved on the froth of wind currents. Who could plunge into such an uproar and emerge intact? What can Lucilla possibly do if I continue to resist her? Duncan asked. Has she used voice on you? Teg asked. His own voice sounded remote to him. Once. You resisted? Remote surprise lurked somewhere within Teg. I learned the way of that from Paul Muad'Dib himself. She is capable of paralyzing you, and I think her orders prohibit violence. What is violence, Duncan? I'm going to the showers, Basha. Are you coming? In a few minutes. Teg took a deep breath, sensing how close he was to exhaustion. This afternoon on the practice floor and afterward had drained him. He watched Duncan leave. Where was Lucilla? What was she planning? How long could she wait? That was the central question, and it put the No Globe's peculiar emphasis on their isolation from time. Again he sensed that ebb and flow which their three lives influenced. I must talk to Lucilla. Where's she gone? The library? No, there is something else I must do first. Lucilla sat in the room she had chosen for her personal quarters. It was a small space with an ornate bed filling an inset into one wall. Gross and subtle signs around her said this had been the room of a favorite, Harkonnen Hatera. Pastel blues with darker blue accents shaded the fabrics. Despite the Baroque carvings on bed, alcove, ceiling, and every functioning appurtenance, the room itself could be swept out of her consciousness once she relaxed here. She lay back on the bed and closed her eyes against the sexually gross figures on the alcove ceiling. Take will have to be dealt with. It would have to be done in such a way that it did not offend Teraza or weaken the Gola. Teg presented a special problem in many ways, especially in the way his mental processes could dip into and out of deeper sources akin to those of the Bene Gesserit. The Reverend Mother who bore him, of course. Something passed from such a mother to such a child. It began in the womb and probably did not end even when they were finally separated. He had never undergone the all-ravening transmutation that produced abominations. No, not that. But he had subtle and real powers. Those born of reverend mothers learned things impossible to others. Teg knew precisely how Lucilla viewed love in all of its manifestations. She had seen it on his face that once in his quarters at the keep. Calculating which? He might as well have spoken it aloud. She recalled the way she had favoured him with her benign smile and dominating expression. That had been a mistake, demeaning to both of them. She sensed in such thoughts a latent sympathy for Teg. Somewhere within her, despite all of the careful Bene Gesserit training, there were chinks in her armour. Her teachers had warned her about that many times. To be capable of inducing real love, you must feel it, but only temporarily, and once is enough. Teg's reactions to the Duncan Idaho Gola said much. Teg was both drawn to and repelled by their young charge. As I am. Perhaps it had been a mistake not to seduce Teg. In her sex education, where she had been taught to gain strength from intercourse rather than lose herself in it, her teachers had emphasized analysis and historical comparisons, of which there were many in a Reverend Mother's other memories. 
Lucilla focused her thoughts on Teg's male presence. Doing this, she could feel a female response, her flesh wanting Teg close to her and aroused to sexual peak, ready for the moment of mystery. Faint amusement crept into Lucilla's awareness. Not orgasm. No scientific labels. It was purest Bene Gesserit cant, moment of mystery. The imprinter's ultimate specialty. Immersion in the long Bene Gesserit continuity required this concept. She had been taught to believe deeply in a duality, the scientific knowledge by which the breeding mistresses guided them, but, at the same time, the moment of mystery that confounded all knowledge. Bene Gesserit history and science said the procreative drive must remain irretrievably buried in the psyche. It could not be removed without destroying the species. The safety net. Lucilla gathered her sexual forces around her now as only a Bene Gesserit imprinter could. She began to focus her thoughts on Duncan. By now he would be in the showers and thinking about his evening's training session with his reverend mother teacher. I will go to my student presently, she thought. The important lesson must be taught, or he will not be fully prepared for Rackus. Those were Teresa's instructions. Lucilla swung the focus of her thoughts fully onto Duncan. It was almost as though she saw him standing naked under the shower. How little he understood of what there might be to learn. Duncan sat alone in the dressing cubicle off the showers which adjoined the practice hall. He was immersed in a deep sadness. This brought remembered pains to old wounds that this young flesh had never experienced. Some things never changed. The sisterhood was at its old, old games again. He looked up and around this dark-panelled Harkonnen place. Arabesques were carved into walls and ceiling, strange designs in the tessery of the floor. Monsters and lovely human bodies intermingled across the same defining lines. Only a flicker of attention separated one from the other. Duncan looked down at this body that the Tleilaxu and their axolotl tanks had produced for him. It still felt strange at moments. He had been a man of many adult experiences in the last instant he remembered from his pre-Gola life, fighting off a swarm of Sardaka warriors, giving his young duke a chance to escape. His duke. Paul had been no older than this flesh then. Conditioned, though, the way the Atreides always were, loyalty and honor above all else the way they conditioned me after they saved me from the Harkonnens. Something within him could not evade that ancient debt. He knew its source. He could outline the process by which it had been embedded in him. There it remained. Duncan glanced at the tiled floor. Words had been worked in the tile along the cubicle's splashboard. It was a script that one part of him identified as an ancient thing from the old Harkonnen times, but that another part of him found to be an all-too-familiar Galak. Clean, sweet, clean, bright, clean, pure, clean. The ancient script repeated itself around the room's perimeter, as though the words themselves might create something that Duncan knew was alien to the Harkonnens of his memories. Over the door to the showers, more script. Confess thy heart and find purity. A religious admonition in a Harkonnen stronghold? Had the Harkonnens changed in the centuries after his death? Duncan found this hard to believe. These words were things that the builders probably had thought appropriate. He felt, rather than heard Lucilla, enter the room behind him. Duncan stood and fastened the clips of the tunic he had appropriated from the null entropy bins. 
but only after removing all Harkonnen insignia. Without turning, he said, What now, Lucilla? She stroked the fabric of the tunic along his left arm. The Harkonnens had rich tastes. Duncan spoke quietly. Lucilla, if you touch me again without my permission, I will try to kill you. I will try so hard that you very likely will have to kill me. She recoiled. He stared into her eyes. I'm not some damned stud for the witches. Is that what you think we want of you? Nobody has said what you want of me, but your actions are obvious. He stood poised on the balls of his feet. The unawakened thing within him stirred and sent his pulse racing. Lucilla studied him carefully. Damn that Miles Teg. She had not expected resistance to take this form. There was no doubting Duncan's sincerity. Words by themselves no longer would serve. He was immune to voice. Truth. It was the only weapon left to her. Duncan, I do not know precisely what it is Teraza expects you to do on Rackus. I can guess, but my guess may be wrong. Guess, then. There is a young girl on Rackus, barely into her teens. Her name is Shiana. The worms of Rackus obey her. Somehow the sisterhood must gather this talent into its own store of abilities. What could I possibly? If I knew, I certainly would tell you now. He heard her sincerity unmasked by her desperation. What does your talent have to do with this? he demanded. Only Teraza and her counsellors know. They want some hold on me, something from which I cannot escape. Lucilla already had arrived at this deduction, but she had not expected him to see it that quickly. Duncan's youthful face concealed a mind that worked in ways she had not yet fathomed. Lucilla's thoughts raced. Control the worms and you could revive the old religion. It was Teg's voice from the doorway behind Lucilla. I did not hear him arrive. She whirled. Teg stood there with one of the antique Harkonnen laser guns held casually across his left arm, its muzzle directed at her. This is to ensure that you listen to me, he said. How long have you been there listening? Her angry glare did not change his expression. From the moment you admitted you don't know what Teraza expects of Duncan, Teg said. Nor do I, but I can make a few mentat projections. Nothing firm yet, but all of them suggestive. Tell me if I'm wrong. About what? He glanced at Duncan. One of the things you were told to do was to make him irresistible to most women. Lucilla tried to conceal her dismay. Teraza had warned her to conceal this from Teg as long as possible. She saw that concealment no longer was possible. Teg had read her reaction with those damnable abilities imparted to him by his damnable mother. A great deal of energy is being gathered and aimed at Rackus, Teg said. He looked steadily at Duncan. No matter what the Trelaxu have buried in him, he has the stamp of ancient humankind in his genes. Is that what the breeding mistresses need? A damned Bane Gesserit stud, Duncan said. What do you intend to do with that weapon? Lucilla asked. She nodded at the antique laser gun in Teg's hands. This? I didn't even put a charge cartridge in it. He lowered the laser gun and leaned it into a corner beside him. Miles, Teg, you will be punished, Lucilla grated. That will have to wait, he said. It's almost night outside. I've been out there under the life shield. Bersmali has been here. 
He has left his sign to tell me he read the message I scratched with those animal marks on the trees. A glittering alertness came into Duncan's eyes. What will you do? Lucilla asked. I have left new marks arranging a rendezvous. Right now, we are all going up to the library. We are going to study the maps. We will commit them to memory. At the very least, we should know where we are when we run. She gave him the benefit of a curt nod. Duncan noted her movement with only part of his awareness. His mind already had leaped ahead to the ancient equipment in the Harkonnen library. He had been the one to show both Lucilla and Teg how to use it correctly, calling up an ancient map of Gidi Prime dating from the time when the no-globe had been built. With Duncan's pre-Gola memory as guide and his own more modern knowledge of the planet, Teg had tried to bring the map up to date. Forest Guard Station became Bene Gesserit Keep. Part of it was a Harkonnen hunting lodge, Duncan had said. They hunted human game raised and conditioned specifically for that purpose. Towns vanished under Teg's updating. Some cities remained but received new labels. Yasai, the nearest metropolis, had been marked Barony on the original map. Duncan's eyes went hard in memory. That's where they tortured me. When Teg exhausted his memory of the planet, much was marked unknown, but there were frequent curly-ended Bene Gesserit symbols to identify the places where Terraza's people had told Teg he might find temporary sanctuary. Those were the places Teg wanted committed to memory. As he turned to lead them up to the library, Teg said, I will erase the map when we have learned it. There's no telling who might find this place and study it. Lucilla swept past him. It's on your head, Miles, she said. Teg called after her retreating back. A mentat tells you that I did what was required of me. She spoke without turning. How logical. This room reconstructs a bit of the desert of Dune. The sand crawler directly in front of you dates from the Atreides times. Grouped around it, moving clockwise from your left, are a small harvester, a carryall, a primitive spice factory, and the other support equipment. All are explained at each station. Note the illuminated quotation above the display. For they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasure in the sand. This ancient religious quotation was oft repeated by the famous Gurney Halleck. Guide Announcement Museum of Daris Balat the worm did not slow its relentless progress until just before dusk. By then, Odrade had played out her questions and still had no answers. How did Shiana control the worms? Shiana said she was not steering her shaitan in this direction. What was this hidden language to which the desert monster responded? Odrade knew that her sister guardians up there in the thopters that paced them would be exhausting the same questions plus one more. Why did Odrade let this ride continue? They might even hazard a few guesses. She does not call us in because that might disturb the beast. She does not trust us to pluck her party from its back. The truth was far simpler. Curiosity. The hissing passage of the worm could have been a surging vessel breasting seas, the dry flinty odours of overheated sand swept across them by a following wind said otherwise. Only open desert stretched around them now, kilometre after kilometre of whaleback dunes as regular in their spacing as ocean waves. Waff had been silent for a long period. He crouched in a miniature reproduction of Odrade's position, 
his attention directed ahead, a blank expression on his face. His most recent statement, God, God, the faithful, in the hour of our trial. Audrey thought of him as living proof that a strong enough fanaticism could endure for ages. Zen Sunni and the old Sufi survived in the Tlaxu. It was like a deadly microbe that had lain dormant all of those millennia, waiting for the right host to feed its virulence. What will happen to the thing I planted in the Rakian priesthood? she wondered. Saint Shiana was a certainty. Shiana sat on a ring of her shaitan, her robe pulled up to expose her thin shanks. She gripped the ring with both hands between her legs. She had said that her first worm ride went directly to the city of Keen. Why there? Had the worm simply been taking her to her own kind? This one beneath them now certainly had a different goal. Shiana no longer questioned, but then Odraid had ordered her to remain silent and practice the low trance. That, at least, would assure that every last detail of this experience could be recalled easily from her memory. If there were a hidden language between Shiana and Worm, they would find it later. Odraid peered at the horizon. The remnant base of the ancient wall around the Sarir was only a few kilometres ahead. Long shadows from it lay across the dunes, telling Odraid that the remnant was higher than she had originally suspected. It was a shattered and broken outline now, with great boulders strewn along its base. The notch where the tyrant had tumbled from his bridge into the Idaho River lay well to their right, at least three kilometres off their path. No river flowed there now. Waff stirred beside her. I heed thy call, God, he said. It is Waff of the Entio who prays in thy holy place. Odraid swiveled her gaze toward him without moving her head. Entio? Her other memories knew an Entio, a tribal leader in the great Zensuni wandering, long before Dune. What was this? What ancient memories did these Tleilaxu keep alive? Shiana broke her silence. Shaitan is slowing. The remains of the ancient wall blocked their way. It loomed at least fifty meters over the highest dunes. The worm turned slightly to the right and moved between two giant boulders that towered above them. It came to a stop. The long-ridged back lay parallel to a mostly intact section of the wall's base. Shiana stood and looked at the barrier. What is this place? Waff asked. He raised his voice above the sound of the thopters circling overhead. Odraid released her tiring grip and flexed her fingers. She continued to kneel while she studied their surroundings. Shadows from the tumbled boulders drew hard lines on sand spills and smaller rocks. Seen close up, not twenty meters away, the wall revealed cracks and fissures, dark openings into the ancient foundation. Waff stood and massaged his hands. Why have we been brought here? he asked. His voice was faintly plaintive. The worm twitched. Shaitan wants us to get off, Shiana said. How does she know? Odraid wondered. The worm's movement had not been enough to make any of them stumble. It could have been some private reflex after the long journey. But Shiana faced the ancient wall's foundation, sat down on the curve of the worm, and slid off. She dropped in a crouch on soft sand. Odraid and Waff moved forward and watched with fascination as Shiana slogged through the sand to the front of the creature. There, Shiana placed both hands on her hips and faced the gaping mouth. 
Hidden flames played orange light across the young face. Shaitan, why are we here? Shiana demanded. Again, the worm twitched. He wants all of you off him, Shiana called. Waff looked at Odraid. If God wishes thee to die, he causes thy steps to lead thee to the place of thy death. Odraid gave him back a paraphrase from the cant of the Shariat. Obey God's messenger in all things. Waff sighed. Doubt was plain on his face. But he turned and was first off the worm, dropping just ahead of Odraid. They followed Shiana's example, moving to the front of the creature. Odraid, every sense alert, fixed her gaze on Shiana. It was much hotter in front of the gaping mouth. The familiar bite of melange filled the air around them. We are here, God, Waff said. Odraid, getting more than a little tired of his religious awe, spared a glance for their surroundings. The shattered rocks, the eroded barrier reaching into the dusky sky, sand sloping against the time-scarred stones, and the slow, scorching huff-huff of the worm's internal fires. But where is here? Odraid wondered. What is special about this place to make it the worm's destination? Four of the watching thopters passed in line overhead. The sound of their wing fans and the hissing jets momentarily drowned out the worm's background rumblings. Shall I call them down? Odraid wondered. It would take only a hand signal. Instead, she lifted two hands in the signal for the watchers to remain aloft. Evening's chill was on the sand now. Odraid shivered and adjusted her metabolism to the new demands. She felt confident that the worm would not engulf them with Shiana beside them. Shiana turned her back on the worm. He wants us to be here, she said. As though her words were a command, the worm twisted its head away from them and slid off through the tall scattering of giant boulders. They could hear it speeding away back into the desert. Odraid faced the base of the ancient wall. Darkness would be upon them soon, but enough light remained in the high desert's long dusk that they might yet see some explanation of why the creature had brought them here. A tall fissure in the rock wall to her right seemed as good a place to investigate as any. Keeping part of her attention on the sounds from Waff, Odraid climbed a sandy incline toward the dark opening. Shiana kept pace with her. Why are we here, mother? Odraid shook her head. She heard Waff following. The fissure directly in front of her was a shadowy hole into darkness. Odraid stopped and held Shiana beside her. She judged the opening to be about a meter wide and some four times that in height. The rocky sides were curiously smooth, as though polished by human hands. Sand had drifted into the opening. Light from the setting sun reflected off the sand to bathe one side of the opening in a wash of gold. Waff spoke from behind them. What is this place? There are many old caves, Shiana said. Fremen hid their spice in caves. She inhaled deeply through her nose. Do you smell it, mother? There was a definite melange odor to the place, Odraid agreed. Waff moved past Odraid and into the fissure. He turned there, looking up at the walls where they met in a sharp angle above him. Facing Odraid and Shiana, he backed farther into the opening, his attention on the walls. Odraid and Shiana stepped closer to him. With an abrupt hissing of spilled sand, Waff vanished from their sight. In the same instant, the sand all around Odraid and Shiana slipped forward into the fissure, dragging both of them with it. Odraid grabbed Shiana's hand. Mother, 
Shiana cried. The sound echoed from invisible rock walls as they slid down a long slope of spilling sand into concealed darkness. The sand drifted them to a stop in a final wash of gentle movement. Audrey, in sand up to her knees, extricated herself and pulled Shiana with her onto a hard surface. Shiana started to speak, but Audrey said, Hush, listen. There was a grating disturbance off to the left. Waff? I'm in it up to my waist. There was terror in his voice. Audrey spoke dryly. God must want it that way. Pull yourself out gently. It feels like rock under our feet. Gently now, we don't need another avalanche. As her eyes adjusted, Audrey looked up the sand slope down which they had tumbled. The opening where they had entered this place was a distant slit of dusky gold far away above them. Mother, Shiana whispered, I'm scared. Say the litany against fear, Audrey ordered, and be still. Our friends know we are here. They will help us get out. God has brought us to this place, Waff said. Audrey did not respond. In the silence, she pursed her lips and gave a high-pitched whistle, listening for the echoes. Her ears told her they were in a large space with some sort of low obstruction behind them. She turned her back on the narrow fissure and gave another whistle. The low barrier lay about a hundred meters away. Audrey freed her hand from Shiana's. Stay right here, please. Waff? I hear the thopters, he said. We all hear them, Audrey said. They are landing. We will have help presently. Meanwhile, please stay where you are and remain silent. I need the silence. Whistling and listening for the echoes, placing each foot carefully, Audrey worked her way deeper into the darkness. An outstretched hand encountered a rough rock surface. She felt along it, only about waist high. She could feel nothing beyond it. The echoes of her whistles said it was a smaller space there and partly enclosed. A voice called from high behind her. Reverend Mother, are you there? Audrey turned, cupped her hands around her mouth and shouted, Stay back! We've been spilled into a deep cave. Bring a light and a long rope. A tiny dark figure moved back out of the distant opening. The light up there was growing dimmer. She lowered her cupped hands and spoke into the darkness. Shiana? Waff? Come toward me about ten paces and wait there. Where are we, mother? Shiana asked. Patience, child. A low muttering sound came from Waff. Audrey recognized the ancient words of the Islamiyat. He was praying. Waff had dropped all attempts to conceal his origins from her. Good. The believer was a receptacle for her to feed with the sweets of the Missionaria Protectiva. Meanwhile, the possibilities of this place where the worm had brought them excited Audrey. Guided by one hand on the rock barrier, she explored along it to her left. The top was quite smooth in places. All of it sloped inward away from her. Other memories offered a sudden projection. Catch Basin. This was a Fremen water storage basin. Audrey inhaled deeply, testing for moisture. The air was flint dry. A bright light from the fissure stabbed downward, driving away the darkness. A voice called from the opening, and Audrey recognized it as one of her sisters. We can see you. Audrey stepped back from the low barrier and turned, peering all around. Waff and Shiana stood about sixty meters away, staring at their surroundings. The chamber was roughly circular, some two hundred meters in diameter. A rock dome arched high overhead. 
She examined the low barrier beside her. Yes, a Fremen catch basin. She could discern the small rock island in its center where a captive worm could be kept ready to spill into the water. Other memories replayed that agonized, twisting death which produced the spice poison to ignite a Fremen orgy. A low arch framed more darkness on the far side of the basin. She could see the spillway there where water had been brought down from a wind trap. There would be more catch basins back there, an entire complex of them designed to hold a wealth of moisture for an ancient tribe. She knew the name of this place now. Siech Tabur, Odraid whispered. The words ignited a flood of useful memories. This had been Stilgar's place in the time of Muad'Dib. Why did that worm bring us to Siech Tabur? A worm took Shiana to the city of Keen, that others might know of her? Then what was there to know here? Were there people back there in that darkness? Odraid sensed no indications of life in that direction. Her sister at the opening interrupted these thoughts. We've had to ask for the rope to be brought from Darius Balat. The people at the museum say this is probably Siech Tabur. They thought it had been destroyed. Send down a light so I can explore it, Odraid called. The priests ask that we leave it undisturbed. Send me a light, Odraid insisted. Presently a dark object tumbled down the sand slope in a small spill of sand. Odraid sent Shiana scampering for it. A touch on the switch and a bright beam went lancing at the dark archway beyond the catch basin. Yes, more basins there. And beside this basin, a narrow stairway cut into the rock. The steps led upward, turning and removing themselves from her view. Odraid bent and whispered in Shiana's ear, Watch Woff carefully. If he moves after us, call out. Yes, mother. Where are we going? I must look at this place. I am the one who has been brought here for a purpose. She raised her voice and addressed Woff. Woff, please wait there for the rope. What have you been whispering? He demanded. Why must I wait? What are you doing? I have been praying, Odraid said. Now I must continue this pilgrimage alone. Why alone? In the old language of the Islamiyat, she said, It is written. That stopped him. Odraid led the way at a fast walk toward the rock stairs. Shiana, hurrying along beside Odraid, said, We must tell people about this place. The old Fremen caves are safe from Shaitan. Be still, child, Odraid said. She aimed the light up into the stairway. It curved through the rock, angling sharply to the right up there. Odraid hesitated. The warning sense of danger she had felt at the beginning of this venture came back intensified. It was an almost palpable thing within her. What is up there? Wait here, Shiana, Odraid said. Don't let Waf follow me. How can I stop him? Shiana glanced fearfully back across the chamber where Waf stood. Tell him it is God's will that he remain. Say it this way. Odraid bent close to Shiana and repeated the words in Waf's ancient language. Then, say nothing else. Stand in his way and repeat it if he tries to pass. Shiana mouthed the new words quietly. She had them, Odraid saw. The girl was quick. He's afraid of you. Odraid said, he won't try to harm you. Yes, mother. Shiana turned, folded her arms across her breast, and looked across the chamber at Waf. 
Aiming the light ahead of her, Audrey went up the rock stairs. Siech Tabur, what surprise have you left for us here, old worm? In a long, low hallway at the top of the stairs, Audrey came on the first, desert mummified bodies. There were five of them, two men and three women, no identifying marks or clothing on them. They had been completely stripped and left for the desert's dryness to preserve. Dehydration had pulled skin and flesh tightly around the bones. The bodies were propped in a row, their feet extending across the passage. Audrey was forced to step over each of these macabre obstructions. She passed her hand light across each body as she went. They had been stabbed almost identically. A slashing blade had been thrust upward just below the arch of the sternum. Ritual killings? Dryly puckered flesh had been withdrawn from the wounds, leaving a dark spot to mark them. These bodies were not from Fremen times, Audrey knew. Fremen death stills made ashes of all flesh to recover a body's water. Audrey probed ahead with her light and paused to consider her position. Discovery of the bodies intensified her sense of peril. I should have brought a weapon. But that would have aroused Wuff's suspicions. The persistence of that inner warning could not be evaded. This relic of Siech Tabor was perilous. The beam of her light revealed another stairway at the end of this hall. Cautiously, Audrey moved forward. At the first step, she sent the beam of her light probing upward. Shallow steps. Only a little way up, more rock. A wider space up there. Audrey turned and sent the light stabbing around this hallway. Chips and burn marks scarred the rock walls. Once more, she looked up the stairway. What is up there? The sense of danger was intense. One slow step at a time, pausing often, Audrey climbed. She emerged into a larger passage hewn through the native rock. More bodies greeted her. These had been abandoned in the disarray of their final moments. Again she saw only mummified flesh stripped of clothing. They lay scattered along this wider passage, twenty of them. She wove her way around them. Some had been stabbed in the same way as the five on the lower level. Some had been slashed and hacked and burned by laser-gun beams. One had been beheaded, and the skin-masked skull lay against the wall of the passage like a ball abandoned from some terrible game. This new passage led straight ahead past openings into small chambers on both sides. She saw nothing of value in the small chambers where she sent her probing light. A few scattered strands of spice fibre, small spills of melted rock, melt bubbles occasionally on floors, walls, and ceilings. What violence was this? Suggestive stains could be seen on some of the chamber floors. Spilled blood? One chamber had a tiny mound of brown cloth in a corner, scraps of torn fabric scattered under Audrey's foot. There was dust. Dust everywhere. Her feet stirred it up in passing. The passage ended at an archway that gave onto a deep ledge. She sent her light beyond the ledge, an enormous chamber far larger than the one down below. Its curved ceiling went so high she knew it must extend into the rock base of the great wall. Wide, shallow steps led down from the ledge onto the chamber floor. Hesitantly, Audrey went down the steps and out onto the floor. She sent her light sweeping all around. Other passages led out of the great chamber. Some she saw had been blocked by stone, and the stones torn away to be left scattered on the ledge and on this great floor. Audrey sniffed the air. 
carried on the dust stirred up by her feet, there was a definite smell of melange. The smell wove through her sense of peril. She wanted to leave, hurry back to the others. But the danger was a beacon. She had to learn where that beacon led. She knew where she was now, though. This was the great gathering chamber of Siech Tabor, site of countless Fremen spice orgies and tribal convocations. Here, the Naib Stilgar had presided, Gurney Halleck had been here, the Lady Jessica, Paul Muad'Dib, Cheney, mother of Ganima. Here, Muad'Dib trained his fighters. The original Duncan Idaho was here, and the first Idaho Gola. Why have we been brought here? What is the danger? It was here, right here. She could feel it. In this place, the tyrant had concealed a spice hoard. Bene Gesserit records said the hoard had filled this entire chamber to the ceiling and into many of the surrounding passages as well. Audrey pivoted, her gaze following the path of her light. Over there was the ledge of the Naibs, and there the deeper royal ledge Muad'Dib had commissioned. And there is the archway where I entered. She sent her light along the floor, noting places where searchers had chipped and burned the rock, seeking more of the tyrant's fabulous hoard. Fish speakers had taken most of that melange, its hiding place revealed by the Idaho Gola who had been consort of the famed Siona. The records said subsequent searchers had found more caches hidden behind false walls and floors. There were many authenticated accounts and the verifications of other memories. The famine times had seen violence here when desperate searchers won through to this place. That might explain the bodies. Many had fought just for the chance to search Siech Tabor. As she had been taught, Audrey tried to use her sense of danger as a guide. Did the miasma of past violence cling to these stones after all of those millennia? That was not her warning. Her warning was something immediate. Audrey's left foot encountered an uneven place on the floor. Her light picked out a dark line in the dust. She scattered the dust with a foot, revealing a letter. And then an entire word, burned in a flowing script. Audrey read the word silently, and then aloud. Aerofel. She knew this word. Reverend mothers of the tyrant's time had impressed it into the Bene Gesserit consciousness tracing its roots out to the most ancient sources. Aerofel, the cloud darkness at the end of the universe. Audrey felt the gasping accumulation of her warning sense. It focused on that single word. The tyrant's holy judgment, the priests called that word. The cloud darkness of holy judgment. She moved out along the word, staring down at it, noting the curling at the end that trailed off into a small arrow. She looked where the arrow pointed. Someone else had seen the arrow and cut into the ledge where it pointed. Odrade crossed to where the searcher's burner had left a darker pool of melted rock on the chamber floor. Streams of melted stone ran out in fingers away from the ledge, each finger trailing from a deep hole burned into the rock of the ledge. Bending, Odrade peered into each hole with her light. Nothing. She sensed the treasure hunter's excitement riding on her warning fear. The extent of the wealth this chamber had once held staggered imagination. In the worst of the old times, a hand-carried luggage case could hold enough spice to buy a planet. 
and the fish speakers had squandered this hoard, losing it in squabbles and shattering misjudgments and ordinary foolishness to pick a for history to record. They had been glad to accept Ixian alliance when the Tleilaxu broke the melange monopoly. Did the searchers find it all? The tyrant was superbly clever. Erafel, at the end of the universe. Had he sent a message down the eons to the Bene Gesserit of today? She cast the beam of her light once more around the chamber and then upward. The ceiling described an almost perfect half-globe overhead. It had been intended, she knew, as a model of the night sky seen from the entrance to Siech Tabor. But even by the time of Liet Kynes, the first planetologist here, the original stars painted on that ceiling had been gone, lost in the tiny rock chippings of small quakes and the everyday abrasions of life. Audrey's breath quickened. The sense of peril had never been greater. The danger beacon shone within her. Quickly, she trotted directly across to the steps where she had descended to this floor. Turning there, she cast backward in her mind for other memories to limb this place. They came slowly past that heart-pounding sense of doom. Pointing the beam of her light upward and peering along it, Audrey placed those ancient memories over the scene in front of her. Bits of reflected brilliance. Other memories positioned them, indicators of the stars in a long-gone sky and right there. The silvery-yellow half-circle of the Arikeen sun. She knew it for a sunset sign. The Fremen day starts at night. Erafel. Keeping her light on that sunset marker, she mounted the steps backward and went around the chamber on the ledge to the exact position she had seen in other memories. Nothing remained of that ancient sun arc. Searchers had chipped at the wall where it had been. Stone bubbles glistened where a burner had been passed along the wall. No breaks entered the original rock. By the tightness of her chest, Audrey knew she teetered on the edge of a dangerous discovery. The beacon had led her here. Erafel, at the edge of the universe, beyond the setting sun. She swept her light right and left. Another passage entrance opened on her left. Stones that had blocked it lay scattered on the ledge. Her heart pounding, Audrey slipped through the opening and found a short hall plugged with melted stone at the end. On her right, directly behind where the sunset marker had been, she found a small room thick with the smell of melange. Audrey entered the room and saw more signs of chipping and burning on walls and ceiling. The danger sense was oppressive here. She chanted the litany against fear silently while she swept the beam of her light over the room. The place was almost square, about two meters on a side. The ceiling was less than half a meter above her head. Cinnamon pulsed in her nostrils. She sneezed and, blinking, saw a tiny discoloration on the floor beside the threshold. More marks of that ancient search? Bending close, with her light held at a sharp angle on one side, she saw that she had glimpsed only the shadow of something etched deeply into the rock. Dust concealed most of it. She knelt and brushed the dust aside. Very thin etching, and very deep. Whatever this was, it had been meant to endure. The last message of a lost reverend mother? This was a known Bene Gesserit artifice. She pressed sensitive fingertips against the etching and reconstructed its tracery in her mind. Recognition leapt into her awareness. One word inscribed in ancient Jacobsa, here.
This was no ordinary here to mark an ordinary place, but the accented and emphatic here that said, You have found me. Her hammering heart emphasized it. Audrade rested her handlight on the floor near her right knee and let her fingers explore the threshold beside that ancient summons. The stonework appeared unbroken to the eye, but her fingers detected a tiny discontinuity. She pressed the discontinuity, twisted, turned, changed the angle of pressure several times, and repeated her effort. Nothing. Sitting back on her heels, Audrade studied the situation. Here. The warning sense had grown even more acute. She could feel it as a pressure on her breathing. Withdrawing slightly, she pulled her light back and lay full length on the floor to stare narrowly along the base of the threshold. Here. Could she place a tool there beside that word and lever the threshold? No. A tool was not indicated. This thing had the smell of the tyrant, not of a reverend mother. She tried to push the threshold sideways. Nothing moved. Feeling the tensions and danger sense accentuated by frustration, Audrade stood and kicked at the threshold beside the etched word. It moved. Something grated roughly against sand over her head. Audrade dodged backward as sand cascaded onto the floor in front of her. A deep rumbling sound filled the tiny chamber. The stones shook under her feet. The floor tipped downward in front of her toward the doorway, opening a space under the door and its wall. Once more, Audrade found herself precipitated forward and down into an unknown. Her light tumbled with her, its beam rolling over and over. She saw mounds of dark reddish-brown in front of her. Cinnamon filled her nostrils. She fell beside her light onto a soft mounding of melange. The opening through which she had fallen lay out of reach some five meters overhead. She grabbed up her light. Its beam picked out wide stone steps cut into the rock beside the opening, something written on the risers. But she saw only that there was a way out. Her first panic subsided, but the sense of danger left her almost breathless, forcing the movements of her chest muscles. Left and right she sent the beam of her light into this place where she had fallen. It was a long room directly beneath the passage she had taken from the great chamber. The entire length of it was piled with melange. Audrade probed upward with her light and saw why no searcher tapping on that passage floor overhead had detected this chamber. Criss-crossed rock bracings transferred all strain deep into the stone walls. Any tapping overhead would get back the sounds of solid rock. Once more, Audrade looked at the melange around her. Even at today's tank-deflated prices, she knew she was standing on a treasure. This hoard would measure many long tons. Is that the danger? The warning sense within her remained just as acute as ever. The tyrant's melange was not what she should fear. The triumvirate would make an equitable distribution of this slot, and that would be the end of it, a bonus in the Gola project. Another danger remained. She could not avoid the warning. Again she sent the light beam along the mounded melange. Her attention was drawn to the strip of wall above the spice. More words, still in Chekobsa, written with a cutter in a fine flowing script, there was another message. A reverend mother will read my words. Something cold settled in Audrade's guts. She moved to her right with the light, 
ploughing through an empire's ransom in melange. There was more to the message. I bequeath to you my fear and loneliness. To you I give the certainty that the body and soul of the Bene Gesserit will meet the same fate as all other bodies and all other souls. Another paragraph of the message beckoned to the right of this one. She ploughed through the cloying melange and stopped to read, What is survival if you do not survive whole? Ask the Benetlelax that. What if you no longer hear the music of life? Memories are not enough unless they call you to noble purpose. There was more of it on the narrow end wall of the long chamber. Audrade stumbled through the melange and knelt to read, Why did your sisterhood not build the golden path? You knew the necessity. Your failure condemned me, the god-emperor, to millennia of personal despair. The words god-emperor were not in Chakobsa, but in the language of the Islamiyat, where they conveyed an explicit second meaning to any speaker of that tongue. Your god and your emperor because you made me so. Audrade smiled grimly. That would drive Waff into a religious frenzy. The higher he went, the easier to shatter his security. She did not doubt the accuracy of the tyrant's accusation, nor the potential in his prediction that the sisterhood could end. The sense of danger had led her to this place unerringly. Something more had been at work, too. The worms of Rakis still moved to the tyrant's ancient beat. He might slumber in his endless dream, but monstrous life, a pearl in each worm to remind it, carried on as the tyrant had predicted. What was it he had told the sisterhood in his own time? She recalled his words. When I am gone, they must call me Shaitan, Emperor of Gehenna. The wheel must turn and turn along the golden path. Yes, that was what Taraza had meant. But don't you see, the common people of Rakis have been calling him Shaitan for more than a thousand years. So Teresa had known this thing, without ever seeing these words she had known. I see your design, Teresa, and now I know the burden of fear you have carried all these years. I can feel it every bit as deeply as you do. Odrade knew then that this warning sense would not leave until she ended, or the sisterhood vanished from existence, or the peril was resolved. Audrade lifted her light, got to her feet, and slogged through the melange to the wide steps out of this place. At the steps she recoiled. More of the tyrant's words had been cut into each riser. Trembling, she read them as they moved upward to the opening. My words are your past. My questions are simple. With whom do you ally? With the self-idolaters of Tleilax? With my fish-speaker bureaucracy? With the Cosmos Wandering Guild? With the Harkonnen blood sacrifices? With the dogmatic stink of your own creation? How will you meet your end? As no more than a secret society? Audrade climbed past the questions, reading them a second time as she went. Noble purpose? What a fragile thing that always was, and how easily distorted. But the power was there, immersed in constant peril. It was all spelled out on the walls and stairs of that chamber. Teresa knew without having it explained. The tyrant's meaning was clear. Join me. 
As she emerged into the small room, finding a narrow ledge along which she could swing herself to the door, Audrade looked down at the treasure she had found. She shook her head in wonder at Teraza's wisdom. So that was how the sisterhood might end. Teraza's design was clear, all the pieces in place, nothing certain. Wealth and power, it was all the same in the end. The noble design had been started and it must be completed, even if that meant the death of the sisterhood. What poor tools we have chosen. That girl waiting back there in the deep chamber below the desert. That girl and the gola being prepared on Rakis. I speak your language now, old worm. It has no words, but I know the heart of it. Our father ate manna in the desert, in the burning place where whirlwinds came. Lord, save us from that horrible land. Save us, oh, save us from that dry and thirsty land. Songs of Gurney Halleck, Museum of Dares Balat. Teg and Duncan, both heavily armed, emerged from the no globe with Lucilla into the coldest part of the night. The stars were like needle points overhead, the air absolutely still until they disturbed it. The dominant smell in Teg's nostrils was the brittle mustiness of snow. The odour infused every breath, and when they exhaled, fat clouds of vapour puffed around their faces. Tears of cold started in Duncan's eyes. He had been thinking much of old Gurney as they prepared to leave the no-globe. Gurney with his cheek scarred by a Harkonnen ink vine whip. Trusted companions would be needed now, Duncan thought. He did not trust Lucilla much, and Teg was old. Old. Duncan could see Teg's eyes glinting in the starlight. Slinging a heavy antique laser gun over his left shoulder, Duncan thrust his hands deep into his pockets for warmth. He had forgotten how cold this planet could get. Lucilla seemed impervious to it, obviously drawing warmth from one of her Bene Gesserit tricks. Looking at her, Duncan realized he had never trusted the witches much. Not even the Lady Jessica. It was easy to think of them as traitors, devoid of any loyalty except to their own sisterhood. They had so damned many secret tricks. Lucilla had given up her seductive ways, though she knew he meant what he had said. He could feel her anger simmering. Let her simmer. Teg stood quite still, his attention focused outward, listening. Was it right to trust the single plan he and Bosmali had worked out? They had no backup. Was it only eight days ago they had settled on it? It felt longer, despite the press of preparations. He glanced at Duncan and Lucilla. Duncan carried a heavy old Harkonnen lace gun, the long field model. Even the extra charge cartridges were heavy. Lucilla had refused to carry more than a single tiny lace gun in her bodice. One small burst was all it held, an assassin's toy. We of the Sisterhood are noted for going into battle with only our skills as weapons, she said. It diminishes us to change that pattern. She had knives in her leg sheaths, though. Teg had seen them. Poison on them, too, he suspected. Teg hefted the long weapon in his own hands, a modern field-style lace gun he had brought from the keep. Over his shoulder, a mate to Duncan's weapon hung from its sling. I must rely on Bursmali, Teg told himself. I trained him. I know his qualities. If he says we trust these new allies, we trust them. Bursmali had been obviously overjoyed to find his old commander alive and safe. But it had snowed since their last encounter, and the snow lay all around them, 
a tabula rasa upon which all tracks would be written. They had not counted on snow. Were there traitors in weather management? Teg shivered. The air was cold. It felt like the chill of off-planet space, empty and giving starlight free access to the forest glade around them. The thin light reflected cleanly off the snow-covered ground and the white dusting on the rocks. Dark outlines of conifers and the leafless branches of deciduous trees displayed only their whitely diffused edges. All else was deepest shadow. Lucilla blew on her fingers and leaned close to Teg to whisper, Shouldn't he be here by now? He knew that was not her real question. Can Basmali be trusted? That was her question. She had been asking it one way and another ever since Teg had explained the plan to her eight days ago. All he could say was, I have staked my life on it. Our lives too. Teg too disliked the accumulated uncertainties, but all plans relied ultimately on the skills of those who executed them. You're the one who insisted we must get out of there and go on to Rackis, he reminded her. He hoped she could see his smile, a gesture to take the sting out of his words. Lucilla was not placated. Teg had never seen a reverend mother this obviously nervous. She would be even more nervous if she knew of their new allies. Of course, there was the fact that she had failed to carry out her full assignment from Teraza. How that must gall her. We took an oath to protect the Gola, she reminded him. Basmali has taken that same oath. Teg glanced at Duncan standing silently between them. Duncan gave no sign that he heard the argument or shared the nervousness. An ancient composure held his features motionless. He was listening to the night, Teg realized, doing what all three of them should be doing just now. There was an odd look of ageless maturity on his young features. If ever I needed trusted companions, it's now, Duncan thought. His mind had gone questing backward into the giddy prime days of his pre-Gola roots. This was what they had called a Harkonnen night. Safe within the warm shielding of their suspensor-boyed armor, the Harkonnens had enjoyed hunting their subjects on such nights. A wounded fugitive could die of the cold. The Harkonnens knew, damn their souls. Predictably, Lucilla caught Duncan's attention with a look that said, We have unfinished business, you and I. Duncan turned his face up into the starlight, making sure she could see his smile, an offensive and knowing look that caused Lucilla to stiffen inwardly. He slipped the heavy laser gun from his shoulder and checked it. She noted the ornate scrollwork on its stock and along the barrel. It was an antique, but still it gave off a deadly sense of purpose. Duncan rested it over his left arm, right hand on the grip, finger on the trigger, exactly as Teg was carrying his own modern weapon. Lucilla turned her back on her companions and sent her senses probing onto the hillside above them and below. Even as she moved, sound erupted all around. Globs of sound filled their night, a great burst of rumblings off to the right, then silence. Another burst from downslope. Silence. From upslope, on all sides. At the first sound, all three of them crouched into the shelter of the rocks outside the no-globe's cave entrance. The sounds filling their night carried little definition. Intrusive racketing, partly mechanical, partly squeaks and wails and hisses. Intermittently, a subterranean drumming made the ground vibrate. Teg knew these sounds. There was a battle going on out there. He could hear the background hissing of burners, and in the distant sky the lancing beams of armoured laser guns. 
Something flashed overhead, trailing blue and red sparks. Another and another. The earth trembled. Teg inhaled through his nose, burned acid and a suggestion of garlic. No ships. Many of them. They were landing in the valley below the ancient no-globe. Back inside, Teg ordered. As he spoke, he saw it was too late. People were moving in from all around them. Teg lifted his long laser gun and aimed it down slope toward the loudest of the intrusive noises and the nearest detectable movement. Many people could be heard shouting down there. Free glow-globes moved among the screening trees let loose by whoever came from there. The dancing lights drifted up slope on a cold breeze. Dark figures moved in the shifting illumination. Face dancers, Teg grunted, recognizing the attackers. Those drifting lights would be clear of the trees within seconds and on his position in less than a minute. We've been betrayed, Lucilla said. A great shout roared from the hill above them. Basha! Many voices. Was Marley? Teg asked himself. He glanced back in that direction and then down at the steadily advancing face dancers. No time to pick and choose. He leaned toward Lucilla. That's Bosmali above us. Take Duncan and run. But what if... It's your only chance. You fool, she accused, even as she turned to obey. Teg's, yes, did nothing to ease her fears. This was what came of depending on the plans of others. Duncan had other thoughts. He understood what Teg was about to do, sacrifice himself so that two might escape. Duncan hesitated, looking at the advancing attackers below them. Seeing the hesitation, Teg blared at him, This is a battle order! I am your commander! It was the closest thing to voice Lucilla had ever heard from a man. She gaped at Teg. Duncan saw only the face of the old duke, telling him to obey. It was too much. He grabbed Lucilla's arm, but before hustling her up the slope, he said, We'll lay down a covering fire once we're clear. Teg did not respond. He crouched against a snow-dusted rock as Lucilla and Duncan scrambled away. He knew he must sell himself dearly now, and there must be something else. The unexpected. A final signature from the old Basha. The advancing attackers were coming up faster, exchanging excited shouts. Setting his laser gun on Maxibeam, Teg pressed the trigger. A fiery arc swept across the slope below him. Trees burst into flame and crashed. People screamed. The weapon would not perform long at this discharge level, but while it did, the carnage produced its desired effect. In the abrupt silence after that first sweep, Teg shifted his position to another screening rock on his left and again sent a flaming lance down the dark slope. Only a few of the drifting glow-globes had survived that first slashing violence, with its falling trees and dismembered bodies. More screams greeted his second counterattack. He turned and scrambled across the rocks to the other side of the no-globe's access cave. There he sent sweeping fire down the opposite slope. More screams. More flames and crashing trees. No answering fire came back. They want us alive. The Tleilaxu were prepared to spend whatever number of face-dancer lives it required to run his laser gun out of its charges. Teg shifted the sling of the old Harkonnen weapon to a better position on his shoulder, getting it ready to swing into action. He discarded the almost empty charge in his modern laser gun, recharged it, and rested the weapon across the rocks. Teg doubted he would get the chance to recharge the second weapon. Let them think down there that he had run out of charge cartridges. But there were two Harkonnen handguns in his belt as a last resort. They would be potent at close range. Some of the Tleilaxu masters, the ones who ordered such carnage, let them 
come closer. Cautiously, Teg lifted his long laser gun from the rock and moved backward, drifting up into the higher rocks, slipping left and then right. He paused twice to sweep the slopes below him with short bursts, as though conserving the gun's charge. There was no sense in trying to conceal his movements. They would have a life tracer on him by now, and besides, there were the tracks in the snow. The unexpected. Could he suck them in close? Well above the No Globe's access cave, he found a deeper pocket in the rocks, its bottom filled with snow. Teg dropped into this position, admiring the fine field of fire this new vantage provided. He studied it briefly, protected behind him by higher crags and open downslope on three sides. He lifted his head cautiously and tried to see around the screening rocks upslope. Only silence there. Had that shout come from Bosmali's people? Even so, there was no guarantee that Duncan and Lucilla could escape in these circumstances. It depended on Bursmali now. Is he as resourceful as I always thought? There was no time to consider the possibilities or change a single element of the situation. Battle had been joined. He was committed. Teg drew a deep breath and peered down slope over the rocks. Yes, they had recovered and were resuming the advance, without telltale glow globes this time and silently now. No more shouts of encouragement. Teg rested the long lays gun on a rock in front of him and swept a burning arc from left to right in one long burst, letting it fade out at the end in an obvious loss of charge. Unslinging the old Harkonnen weapon, he readied it, waiting in silence. They would expect him to flee up the hill. He crouched behind the screening rocks, hoping there was enough movement above him to confuse the life tracers. He still heard people below him on that fire-racked slope. Teg counted silently to himself, spacing out the distance, knowing from long experience how much time the attackers would require to come within deadly range, and he listened carefully for another sound he knew from previous encounters with the Tleilaxu, the sharp barking of commands in high-pitched voices. There they were. The masters were spread out farther downslope than he had anticipated. Fearful creatures. Teg set the old laser gun on Maxibeam and lifted himself suddenly from his protective cradle in the rocks. He saw the arc of advancing face dances in the light of burning trees and brush. The high-pitched voices of command came from behind the advance, well out of the dancing orange light. Aiming over the heads of the nearest attackers, Teg sighted beyond the jumble of flames and pressed the trigger. Two long bursts, back and forth. He was momentarily surprised by the extent of the destructive energy in the antique weapon. The thing obviously was the product of superb craftsmanship, but there had been no way to test it in the no-globe. This time the screams carried a different pitch, high and frantic. Teg lowered his aim and cleared the immediate slope of face dancers, letting them feel the full force of the beam, revealing that he carried more than one weapon. Back and forth he swept the deadly arc, giving the attackers plenty of time to see the charge ebb into a final sputter. Now, they had been sucked in once and would be more cautious. There just might be a chance to join Duncan and Lucilla. This thought full in his mind, Teg turned and scrambled out of his shelter across the upslope rocks. At his fifth step, he thought he had run into a hot wall. There was time for his mind to recognize what had happened. The shocking blast of a stunner full into his face and chest, it came from directly upslope where he had sent Duncan and Lucilla. Chagrin filled Teg as he fell into darkness. Others could do the unexpected, too.
All organized religions face a common problem, a tender spot through which we may enter and shift them to our designs. How do they distinguish hubris from revelation? Missionaria Protectiva, The Inner Teachings Odrade kept her gaze carefully away from the cool green of the quadrangle below her, where Shiana sat with one of the teaching sisters. The teaching sister was the best, precisely fitted to this next phase in Shiana's education. Teraza had chosen them all with care. We proceed with your plan, Odrade thought. But did you anticipate, Mother Superior, how we might be marked by a chance discovery here on Rackus? Or was it chance? Odrade sent her gaze over the lower rooftops to the spread of the Sisterhood's central stronghold on Rackus, rainbow tiles baked out there in glaring noon light. All of this ours. This was, she knew, quite the largest embassy the priests permitted in their holy city of Keen, and her presence in this Bene Gesserit stronghold defied the agreement she had made with Turk. But that had been before the discoveries at Siech Tabor. Besides, Tuak no longer really existed. The Tuak who marched the priestly precincts was a face dancer living out a precarious charade. Odrade brought her thoughts back to Waff, who stood with two guardian sisters behind her, waiting near the door of this penthouse sanctuary, with its fine view through Armour Plaz windows, and its impressive black furnishings into which a robed reverend mother might blend with only the lighter shades of her face visible to a visitor. Had she gauged Waff correctly? Everything had been done precisely according to Missionaria Protectiva teachings. Had she opened the crack in his psychic armor sufficiently? He should be goaded to speak soon. Then she would know. Waff stood back there calmly enough. She could see his reflection in the plows. He gave no sign of understanding that the two tall, dark-haired sisters flanking him were there to prevent his possible violence. But he certainly knew. My guardians, not his. He stood with his head bent to conceal his features from her, but she knew he was uncertain. That part was sure. Doubts could be like a starving animal, and she had fed those hungry doubts well. He had been so sure that their venture into the desert would be the occasion for his death. His Zen Sunni and Sufi beliefs were telling him now that God's will preserved him there. Surely, though, Waff was reviewing now his agreement with the Bene Gesserit, seeing at last the ways he had compromised his people, how he had put his precious Tleilaxu civilization in terrible jeopardy. Yes, his composure was wearing thin, but only Bene Gesserit eyes detected this. It would be time soon to begin rebuilding his awareness into a pattern more amenable to the Sisterhood's needs. Let him stew a bit longer. Odrade returned her attention to the view, loading the suspense of this delay. The Bene Gesserit had chosen this embassy location because of the extensive rebuilding that had changed the entire northeastern quarter of the old city. They could build and remodel here in their own way and for their own purposes. Ancient structures designed for easy access by people on foot, wide lanes for official ground cars, and occasional squares in which ornithopters might land. All of that had been changed. Keeping up with the times. 
These new buildings stood much closer to the green-planted avenues whose tall and exotic trees flaunted their enormous water consumption. Thopters were relegated to rooftop landing pads on selected buildings. Pedestrian lanes clung to narrow elevations attached to the buildings. Coin-operated, key-operated, and palm identification lift slots had been inset into the new buildings, their glowing energy fields masked by dark, brown, vaguely transparent covers. The lift slots were spines of darker color in the flat gray of Plascrete and Plas. Humans dimly seen in the tubes gave the effect of impurities moving up and down in otherwise pure mechanical sausages. All in the name of modernization. Waff stirred behind her and cleared his throat. Audrey did not turn. The two guardian sisters knew what she was doing and gave no sign. Waff's mounting nervousness was merely confirmation that all went well. Audrey did not feel that all was going truly well. She interpreted the view out her window as just another disquieting symptom of this disquieting planet. Tuak, she recalled, had not liked this modernization of his city. He had complained that some way must be found to stop it and preserve the old landmarks. His face-dancer replacement continued that argument. How like Tuak himself this new face-dancer was. Did such face-dancers think for themselves or just play out their parts in accordance with a master's orders? Were they still mules, these new ones? How much different were these face-dancers from the fully human? Things about the deception worried Audrade. The Force Tuak's counsellors, the ones fully involved in what they thought of as the Trelaxu plot, spoke of public support for modernization and openly gloated that they had their way at last. Albertus regularly reported everything to Audrade. Each new report worried her more. Even the obvious subservience of Albertus bothered her. Of course, the counsellors do not mean public, public support, Albertus said. She could only agree. The behavior of the counsellors signaled that they had powerful backing among the middle echelons of the priesthood, among the climbers who dared joke about their divided god at weekend parties, among those being soothed by the horde Audrade had found at Siech Tabor. Ninety thousand long tons. Half a year's harvest from the deserts of Rakis. Even a third of it represented a significant bargaining chip in the new balances. I wish I had never met you, Albertus. She had wanted to restore in him the one who cares. What she had actually done was easily recognized by one trained in the Missionaria Protectiva's ways, a groveling sycophant. It made no difference now that his subservience was driven by an absolute belief in her holy association with Shiana. Odrade had never before focused on how easily the Missionaria Protectiva's teachings destroyed human independence. That was always the goal, of course. Make them followers, obedient to our needs. The tyrant's words in that secret chamber had done more than ignite her fears for the sisterhood's future. I bequeath to you my fear and loneliness. From that millennial distance, he had planted doubts in her as surely as she had planted them in Waff. She saw the tyrant's questions as though they had been limbed with glowing light on her inner eye. With whom do you ally? Are we no more than a secret society? How will we meet our end? In a dogmatic stink of our own creation? The tyrant's words had been burned into her consciousness. Where was the 
noble purpose in what the sisterhood did. Adraid could almost hear Teraza's sneering response to such a question. Survival, da. That's all the noble purpose we need. Survival. Even the tyrant knew that. Perhaps even Tuak had known it. And what had that brought him in the end? Odraid felt a haunting sympathy for the late high priest. Tuak had been a superb example of what a tightly knit family could produce. Even his name was a clue, unchanged from Atreides' days on this planet. The founding ancestor had been a smuggler, confident of the first Leto. Tuak had come from a family that held firmly to its roots, saying, There is something worth preserving in our past. The example this set for descendants was not lost on a reverend mother. But you failed, Tuak. These blocks of modernization visible out her window were a sign of that failure. Sops to the rising power elements in Rakian society, those elements that the sisterhood had worked so long to foster and strengthen. Tuak had seen this as a harbinger of the day when he would be too weak politically to prevent the things implied by such modernization. A shorter and more upbeat ritual. New songs, more in the modern manner. Changes in the dancing. Traditional dances take so long. Above all, fewer ventures into the dangerous desert for the young postulants from the powerful families. Odraid sighed and glanced back at Waff. The little Tleilaxu chewed his lower lip. Good. Damn you, Albertus. I would welcome your rebellion. Behind the closed doors of the temple, the transition of the high priesthood already was being debated. The new Rakians spoke of the need to keep up with the times. They meant, give us more power. It has always been this way, Odraid thought, even in the Bene Gesserit. Still, she could not escape the thought, poor Tuak. Albertus reported that Tuak, just before his death and replacement by the face dancer, had warned his kin they might not retain family control of the high priesthood when he died. Tuak had been more subtle and resourceful than his enemies expected. His family already was calling in its debts, gathering its resources to retain a power base. And the face dancer in Tuak's place revealed much by his mimic performance. The Tuak family had not yet learned of the substitution, and one might almost believe the original high priest had not been replaced. So good was this face dancer. Observing that face dancer in action betrayed much to the watchful reverend mothers. That, of course, was one of the things that had Woff squirming now. Odraid turned abruptly on one heel and strode across to the Tleilaxu master. Time to have at him. She stopped two paces from Woff and glared down at him. Woff met her gaze with defiance. You've had enough time to consider your position, she accused. Why do you remain silent? My position? You think you give us a choice? Man is but a pebble dropped in a pool she quoted at him from his own beliefs. Waff took a trembling breath. She spoke the proper words, but what lay behind such words? They no longer sounded right, coming from the mouth of a Pawinda woman. When Waff did not respond, Odraid continued her quotation. And if man is but a pebble, then all his works can be no more. An involuntary shudder swept through Odraid, causing a look of carefully masked surprise in the watchful guardian sisters. That shudder was not part of the required performance. Why do I think of the tyrant's words at this moment? Odraid wondered. 
The body and soul of the Bene Gesserit will meet the same fate as all other bodies and all other souls. His barb had gone deep into her. How was I made so vulnerable? The answer leaped into her awareness. The Atreides Manifesto. Composing those words under Teraza's watchful guidance opened a flaw within me. Could that have been Teraza's purpose? To make Odraid vulnerable? How could Teraza have known what would be found here on Rakis? The Mother Superior not only displayed no prescient abilities, she tended to avoid this talent in others. On the rare occasions when Teraza had demanded such a performance of Odraid herself, the reluctance had been obvious to the trained eye of a sister. Yet she made me vulnerable. Had it been an accident? Odraid sank into a swift recital of the litany against fear. Only a few eye blinks, but in that time Wuff visibly came to a decision. You would force it upon us, he said, but you do not know what powers we have reserved for such a moment. He lifted his sleeves to show where the dart throwers had been. These were but paltry toys by comparison with our real weapons. The sisterhood has never doubted this, Odraid said. Is it to be violent conflict between us? he asked. It is your choice to make, she said. Why do you court violence? There are those who would love to see Bene Gesserit and Bene Trelax at each other's throats, Odraid said. Our enemies would enjoy stepping in to pick up the pieces after we had weakened ourselves sufficiently. You state the argument for agreement, but you give my people no room to negotiate. Perhaps your mother superior gave you no authority to negotiate. How tempting it was to pass it all back into Teraza's hands, just as Teraza wanted. Odraid glanced at the guardian sisters. The two faces were masks, betraying nothing. What did they really know? Would they realize if she went against Teraza's orders? Do you have such authority? Waff persisted. Noble purpose, Odraid thought. Surely the tyrant's golden path demonstrated at least one quality of such purpose. Odraid decided on a creative truth. I have such authority, she said. Her own words made it true. Having taken the authority, she made it impossible for Teraza to deny it. Odraid knew, though, that her own words committed her to a course sharply divergent from the sequential steps of Teraza's design. Independent action. The very thing she had desired of Albertus. But I am on the scene and know what is needed. Odraid glanced at the guardian sisters. Remain here, please, and see that we are not disturbed. To Wuff, she said, we might as well be comfortable. She indicated two chair dogs set at right angles to each other across the room. Odraid waited until they were seated before resuming the conversation. We require a degree of candor between us that diplomacy seldom allows. Too much hangs in the balance for us to engage in shallow evasions. Wuff looked at her strangely. He said, We know there is dissension in your highest councils. Subtle overtures have been made to us. Is this part of... I am loyal to the sisterhood, she said. Even those who approached you had no other loyalty. Is this another trick of... No tricks. With the Bene Gesserit, there are always tricks, he accused. What is it you fear from us? Name it. Perhaps I have learned too much from you for you to allow me to go on living. 
Could I not say the same of you? she asked. Who else knows of our secret affinity? This is no Pawinda female talking to you here. She adventured the word with some trepidation, but the effect could not have been more revealing. Waff was visibly shaken. He was a long minute recovering. Doubts remained, though, because she had planted them in him. What do words prove? he asked. You might still take the things you have learned from me and leave my people nothing. You still hold the whip over us. I carry no weapons in my sleeves, Odraid said. But in your mind is knowledge that could ruin us. He glanced back at the Guardian sisters. They are part of my arsenal, Odraid agreed. Shall I send them away? And in their minds everything they have heard here, he said. He returned his wary gaze to Odraid. Better if you all sent your memories away. Odraid pitched her voice in its most reasonable tones. What would we gain by exposing your missionary zeal before you are ready to move? Would it serve us to blacken your reputation by revealing where you have placed your new face dancers? Oh yes, we know about Ix and the fish speakers. Once we had studied your new ones, we went searching for them. You see, his voice was dangerously edged, I see no other way to prove our affinity than to reveal something equally damaging about ourselves. Odraid said. Waff was speechless. We would plant the worms of the prophet on uncounted planets of the scattering, she said. What would the Rakian priesthood say and do if you revealed that? The Guardian sisters looked at her with thinly masked amusement. They thought she was lying. I have no guards with me, Waff said. When only one person knows a dangerous thing, how easy it is to gain that person's eternal silence. She lifted her empty sleeves. He looked at the Guardian sisters. Very well, Odraid said. She glanced at the sisters and gave a subtle hand sign to reassure them. Wait outside, please, sisters. When the door closed behind them, Waff returned to his doubts. My people have not searched these rooms. What do I know of the things that could be hidden here to record our words? Odraid shifted into the language of the Islamiat. Then perhaps we should speak another tongue, one known only to us. Waf's eyes glittered. In the same tongue, he said, Very well, I will gamble on it. And I ask you to tell me the real cause of dissension among the, the Bene Gesserit. Odraid allowed herself a smile. With the change of language, Waff's entire personality, his whole manner changed. He was performing exactly as expected. None of his doubts had been reinforced in this tongue. She responded with an equal confidence. Fools fear that we may bring back another Kwisatz Haderach. That is what a few of my sisters argue. There is no more need of such a one, Waff said. The one who could be many places simultaneously has been and he has gone. He came only to bring the prophet. God would not send such a message twice, she said. It was the very sort of thing Waff had heard often in this tongue. He no longer thought it strange that a woman could utter such words. The language and the familiar words were enough. Has Shuang Yu's death restored unity among your sisters? He asked. We have a common enemy, Odraid said. The honored Matres. You were wise to kill them and learn from them. Waff leaned forward, 
completely caught up in his familiar tongue and the flow of their conversation. They rule with sex, he exulted. Remarkable techniques of orgasmic amplification. We, belatedly he became aware of who was sitting in front of him, hearing all of this. We already know such techniques, Audrade reassured him. It will be interesting to compare. There are obvious reasons why we have never tried to ride to power on such a dangerous conveyance. Those whores are just stupid enough to make that mistake. Mistake? He was clearly puzzled. They are holding the reins in their own hands, she said. As the power grows, their control of it must grow. The thing will shatter of its own momentum. Power? Always power? Wuff muttered. Another thought struck him. Are you saying this was how the prophet fell? He knew what he was doing, she said. Millennia of enforced peace, followed by the famine times and the scattering. A message of direct results. Remember, he did not destroy the Benet Lalax or the Bene Gesserit. For what do you hope from an alliance between our two peoples? Waff asked. Hope is one thing, survival another, she said. Always pragmatism, Waff said. And some among you fear that you may restore the prophet on Rakis with all of his powers intact? Did I not say it? The language of the Islamiat was particularly potent in this questioning form. It placed the burden of proof on Waf. So they doubt God's hand in the creation of your Kwisas Haderach, he said. Do they also doubt the prophet? Very well, let us have it all out in the open, Odraid said, and launched herself on the chosen course of deception. Shuang Yu and those who supported her broke away from the great belief. We harbor no anger toward any Bennet Lelax for having killed them. They saved us the trouble. Waff accepted this utterly. Given the circumstances, it was precisely what could be expected. He knew he had revealed much here that might better have been held in reserve, but there were still things the Bene Gesserit did not know. And the things he had learned. Odraid shocked him totally then by saying, Waff, if you think your descendants from the scattering have returned to you unchanged, then foolishness has become your way of life. He held himself silent. You have all of the pieces in your hands, she said. Your descendants belong to the whores of the scattering, and if you think any of them will abide by an agreement, then your stupidity goes beyond description. Waff's reactions told her she had him. The pieces were clicking into place. She had told him truth where it was required. His doubts were refocused where they belonged, against the people of the scattering, and it had been done in his own tongue. He tried to speak past a constriction in his throat and was forced to massage his throat before speech returned. What can we do? It's obvious. The lost ones have their eyes on us as just one more conquest. They think of it as cleaning up behind them, common prudence. But they are so many. Unless we unite in a common plan to defeat them, they will chew us up the way a slig chews up its dinner. We cannot submit to Pawinda filth. God will not permit it. Submit? Who suggests that we submit? But the Bene Gesserit always use that ancient excuse. If you can't beat them, join them. Odraid smiled grimly. God will not permit you to submit. Do you suggest he would permit it of us? Then what is your plan? What would you do against such numbers? Exactly what you plan to do, 
convert them. When you say the word, the sisterhood will openly espouse the true faith. Waff sat in stunned silence. So she knew the heart of the Tleilaxu plan. Did she know also how the Tleilaxu would enforce it? Odraid stared at him, openly speculative. Grasp the beast by the balls if you must, she thought. But what if the projection by the sisterhood's analysts was wrong? This whole negotiation would be a joke in that case. And there was that look in the back of Waff's eyes, that suggestion of older wisdom, much older than his flesh. She spoke with more confidence than she felt. What you have achieved with golas from your tanks, and kept secretly for yourselves alone, others will pay a great price to achieve. Her words were sufficiently cryptic. Were others listening? But Waff did not doubt for an instant that the Bene Gesserit knew even this thing. Will you demand a share in that as well? he asked. The words rasped in his dry throat. Everything. We will share everything. What will you bring to this great sharing? Ask. All of your breeding records. They are yours. Breeding mothers of our choice. Name them. Waff gasped. This was far more than the Mother Superior had offered. It was like a blossom opening in his awareness. She was right about the honored Matres, naturally, and about the Tleilaxu descendants from the scattering. He had never completely trusted them, never. You will want an unrestricted source of melange, of course, he said. Of course. He stared at her, hardly believing the extent of his good fortune. The axolotl tanks would offer immortality only to those who espoused the great faith. No one would dare attack and attempt to seize a thing they knew that Leilaxu would destroy rather than lose. And now he had gained the services of the most powerful and enduring missionary force known. Surely the hand of God was visible here. Waff was first awed and then inspired. He spoke softly to Adraid. And you, Reverend Mother? How do you name our accord? Noble purpose, she said. You already know the prophet's words from Siech Tabor. Do you doubt him? Never. But, but there is one thing. What do you propose with that gola of Duncan Idaho and the girl Shiana? We will breed them, of course, and their descendants will speak for us to all of those descendants of the prophet. On all of those planets where you would take them? On all of those planets, she agreed. Waff sat back. I have you, Reverend Mother, he thought. We will rule this alliance, not you. The Gola is not yours. He is ours. Odraid saw the shadow of his reservations in Waff's eyes, but knew she had ventured as much as she dared. More would reawaken doubts. Whatever happened, she had committed the sisterhood to this course. Teraza could not escape this alliance now. Waff squared his shoulders, a curiously juvenile gesture, belied by the ancient intelligence peering from his eyes. Ah, one thing more, he said, every bit the master of masters, speaking his own language and commanding all of those who heard him. Will you also help spread this, this Atreides manifesto? Why not? I wrote it. Waff jerked forward. You? Did you think someone of lesser abilities could have done it? He nodded, convinced without further argument. This was fuel for a thought that had entered his own mind, a final point in their alliance, 
the powerful minds of reverend mothers would advise the Telelaxu at every turn. What did it matter that they were outnumbered by those whores of the scattering? Who could match such combined wisdom and insurmountable weapons? The title of the manifesto is valid, too, Odrade said. I am a true descendant of the Atreides. Would you be one of our breeders? he ventured. I am almost past the age of breeding, but I am yours to command. I remember friends from wars all but we forgot, all of them distilled into each wound we caught. Those wounds are all the painful places where we fought, battles better left behind, ones we never sought. What is it that we spent, and what was it we bought? Songs of the Scattering. Busmali based his planning on the best of what he had learned from his basha, keeping his own counsel about multiple options and fallback positions. That was a commander's prerogative. Necessarily, he learned everything he could about the terrain. In the time of the old empire, and even under the reign of Muad'Dib, the region around the Gamu Keep had been a forest reserve, high ground rising well above the oily residue that tended to cover Harkonnen land. On this ground, the Harkonnens had grown some of the finest pilingitam, a wood of steady currency always valued by the supremely rich. From the most ancient times, the knowledgeable had preferred to surround themselves with fine woods rather than with the mass-produced artificial materials known then as polastine, polaz, and pormabat, latterly teen, laz, and bat. As far back as the old empire, there had been a pejorative label for the small, rich, and families minor arising from the knowledge of a rare wood's value. He's a 3PO, they said, meaning that such a person surrounded himself with cheap copies made from déclassé substances. Even when the supremely rich were forced to employ one of the distressful 3POs, they disguised it, where possible, behind O.P., the only P, Pilingitam. Bosmani knew all of this, and more, as he set his people to searching for a strategically situated palingitam near the no-globe. The wood of the tree had many qualities that endeared it to master artisans. Newly cut, it worked like a soft wood. Dried and aged, it endured as a hard wood. It absorbed many pigments, and the finish could be made to appear as though it occurred naturally within the grain. More important, Pelingitam was antifungal, and no known insect had ever considered it a suitable dinner. Lastly, it was fire-resistant, and aged specimens of the living tree grew outward from an enlarged and empty tube at the core. We will do the unexpected, Basmali told his searchers. He had noted the distinctive lime green of Pelingitam leaves during his first overflight of the region. The forests of this planet had been raided and otherwise logged off during the famine times, but venerable O.P.s were still nurtured among the evergreens and hardwoods replanted at the Sisterhood's orders. Busmali's searchers found one such O.P. dominating a ridge above the no-globe site. It spread its leaves over almost three hectares. On the afternoon of the critical day, Busmali placed decoys at a distance from this position, and opened a tunnel from a shallow swale into the Palingatam's roomy core. There he set up his command post and the backup necessities for escape. The tree is a life form, he explained to his people. It will mask us from traces. The unexpected. 
Nowhere in his planning did Bursmali assume that all of his actions would go undetected. He could only spread his vulnerability. When the attack came, he saw that it appeared to follow a predicted pattern. He had anticipated that attackers would rely on no ships and great numbers as they had in the assault on the Gamu Keep. The Sisterhood's analysts assured him that the major threat was from forces out of the scattering. Descendants of the Tleilaxu deployed by wildly brutal women calling themselves Honoured Matres. He saw this as overconfidence and not audacity. A real audacity was in the arsenal of every student taught by the Basha Miles Teg. It also helped that Teg could be relied upon to improvise within the limits of a plan. Through his relays, Bosmali followed the scrambling escape of Duncan and Lucilla. Troopers with comm helmets and night lenses created a great display of activity at the decoy positions, while Bursmali and his select reserves kept watch on the attackers, never betraying their position. Teg's movements were easily followed by his violent response to the attackers. Bursmali noted with approval that Lucilla did not pause when she heard the battle sounds intensify. Duncan, however, tried to stop and almost ruined the plan. Lucilla saved the moment by jabbing Duncan in a sensitive nerve and barking, You can't help him! Hearing her voice clearly through his helmet amplifiers, Bursmali cursed under his breath. Others would hear her too. No doubt they already were tracking her, though. Bursmali issued a sub-vocal command through the microphone implanted in his neck and prepared to abandon his post. He kept most of his attention on the approach of Lucilla and Duncan. If all went as planned, his people would bring down the pair of them while two helmetless and suitably garbed troopers continued the flight toward the decoy positions. In the interim, Teg was creating an admirable path of destruction through which a ground car might escape. An aide intruded on Bursmali. Two attackers are closing in behind the basher. Bursmali waved the man aside. He could give little thought to Teg's chances. Everything had to be focused on saving the Gola. Bursmali's thoughts were intense as he watched. Come on! Run! Run, damn you! Lucilla held a similar thought as she urged Duncan forward keeping herself close behind him to shield him from the rear. Everything about her was marshaled for ultimate resistance. Everything in her breeding and training came to the fore in these moments. Never give up. To give up was to pass her consciousness into the memory lives of a sister, or into oblivion. Even Shuangyu had redeemed herself in the end by diverting to total resistance and had died admirably in the Bene Gesserit tradition, resisting to the last. Bursmali had reported it through Teg. Lucilla, assembling her uncounted lives, thought, I can do no less. She followed Duncan down into a shallow swale beside the hole of a giant palingatum, and when people arose out of the darkness to drag them down, she almost responded in berserker mode, but a voice speaking Jacobsa in her ear said, Friends. This delayed her response for a heartbeat while she saw the decoys continue the flight out of the swale. That, more than anything else, revealed the plan and the identity of the people holding them against the rich, leafy smells of the earth. When the people slid Duncan ahead of her into a tunnel aimed at the giant tree, and, still in Jacobsa, cautioned speed, Lucilla knew she was caught in a typical Teg-style audacity. Duncan saw it too. At the Stygian outlet of the tunnel, he identified her by smell and tapped out a message against her arm in the old Atreides' silent battle language. Let them lead. The form of the message startled her momentarily, until she realized that the Gola, of course, would know this communication method. 
Without speaking, the people around them removed Duncan's bulky antique lays gun and hustled the fugitives into the hatch of a vehicle that she did not identify. A brief red light flared in the darkness. Basmali spoke subvocally to his people. There they go. Twenty-eight ground cars and eleven flitter-thopters scrambled from the decoy positions. A proper diversion, Basmali thought. Pressure in Lucilla's ears told her a hatch had been sealed. Again the red light flared and went dark. Explosives shattered the great tree around them and their vehicle, now identifiable as an armoured ground car, surged up and out on suspensors and jets. Lucilla could follow their course only by flashes of fire and the twisting patterns of stars visible through frames of oval plaz. The enclosing suspensor field made the motions eerie, sensed only by the eyes. They sat cradled in plasteel seats while their car rocketed downslope, directly across Teg's holdout position, shifting and darting in violent changes of direction. None of this wild motion transmitted itself to the flesh of the occupants, there were only the dancing blurs of trees and brush, some of them burning, and then the stars. They were hugging the tops of the forest wreckage, left by Teg's laser guns. Only then did she dare to hope that they might win free. Abruptly their vehicle trembled into slow flight. The visible stars, framed by the tiny ovals of Plaz, tipped and were obscured by a dark obstruction. Gravity returned and there was dim light. Lucilla saw Bersmali fling open a hatch on her left. Out, he snapped. Not a second to spare. Duncan ahead of her, Lucilla scrambled out of the hatch onto damp earth. Bersmali thumped her back, grabbed Duncan's arm and hustled them away from the car. Quick, this way. They crashed through tall bushes onto a narrow paved roadway. Bersmali, a hand on each of them now, rushed them across the road and pushed them flat in a ditch. He whipped a life-shield blanket over them and lifted his head to look back in the direction from which they had come. Lucilla peered past him and saw starlight on a snowy slope. She felt Duncan stir beside her. Far up the slope, a speeding ground car, its jet pod modifications visible against the stars, lifted on a plume of red, climbing, climbing, climbing. Suddenly it darted off to the right. Ours? Duncan whispered. Yes. How did it get up there without showing up? An abandoned aqueduct tunnel, Basmali whispered. The car was programmed to go on automatic. He continued to stare at the distant red plume. Abruptly, a gigantic burst of blue light rolled outward from the faraway red tracery. The light was followed immediately by a dull thump. Ah, Basmali breathed. Duncan, his voice low, said, they're supposed to think you overloaded your drive. Basmali shot a startled look at the young face, ghostly grey in starlight. Duncan Idaho was one of the finest pilots in Atreides service, Lucilla said. It was an esoteric bit of knowledge, and it served its purpose. Basmali saw immediately that he was not just guardian of two fugitives. His charges possessed abilities that could be used if needed. Blue and red sparks flashed across the sky where the modified ground car had exploded. The new ships were sniffing that distant globe of hot gases. What would the sniffers decide? The blue and red sparks slipped down behind the starlit bulges of the hills. Basmali whirled at the sound of footsteps on the roadway. Duncan had a handgun out so swiftly that Lucilla gasped. She put a restraining hand on his arm, but he shook it off. Didn't he see that Basmali had accepted this intrusion? A voice called softly from the roadway above them. 
Follow me. Hurry. The speaker, a moving blot of darkness, jumped down beside them and went crashing through a gap in the bushes lining the road. Dark spots on the snowy slope beyond the screening bushes resolved themselves into at least a dozen armed figures. Five of this party grouped themselves around Duncan and Lucilla and urged them silently along a snow-covered trail beside the bushes. The rest of the armed party ran openly down across the snow slope into a dark line of trees. Within a hundred paces, the five silent figures formed their party into single file, two of their number ahead, three behind. The fugitives sheltered between them with Basmali leading and Lucilla close behind Duncan. They came presently to a cleft in dark rocks and under a ledge where they waited, listening to more modified ground cars thunder into the air behind them. Decoys upon decoys, Basmali whispered. We overload them with decoys. They know we must flee and panic as fast as possible. Now, we will wait nearby in concealment. Later we will proceed slowly, on foot. The unexpected, Lucilla whispered. Teg? It was Duncan, his voice little more than a breath. Bosmali leaned close to Duncan's left ear. I think they got him. Bosmali's whisper carried a deep tone of sadness. One of their dark companions said, Quickly now, down here. They were herded through the narrow cleft. Something emitted a creaking sound nearby. Hands hustled them into an enclosed passage. The creaking sounded from behind them. Get that door fixed, someone said. Light flared around them. Duncan and Lucilla stared around a large, richly furnished room apparently cut into rock. Soft carpets covered the floor, dark reds and golds with a figured pattern like repetitive battlements worked in pale green. A bundle of clothing lay in a jumble on a table near Bosmali, who was in low-voiced conversation with one of their escort, a fair-haired man with high forehead and piercing green eyes. Lucilla listened carefully. The words were understandable, relating how guards had been posted, but the green-eyed man's accent was one she had never before heard. A tumble of gutturals and consonants clicked off with surprising abruptness. Is this a no-chamber? she asked. No. The answer was supplied by a man behind her speaking in that same accent. The algae protect us. She did not turn toward the speaker, but looked up instead at the light yellow-green algae thick on the ceiling and walls. Only a few patches of dark rock were visible near the floors. Bursmali broke off his conversation. We are safe here. The algae is grown especially for this. Life scanners report only the presence of plant life and nothing else that the algae shields. Lucilla pivoted on one heel, sorting the room's details. That Harkonnen griffin worked into a crystal table, the exotic fabrics on chairs and couches. A weapons rack against one wall held two rows of long, field-style laser guns of a design she had never before seen. Each was bell-mouthed and with a curling gold guard over the trigger. Bosmali had returned to his conversation with the green-eyed man. It was an argument over how they would be disguised. She listened with part of her mind while she studied the two members of their escort remaining in the room. The other three from the escort had filed out through a passage near the weapons cabinet, an opening covered by a thick hanging of shimmering silvery threads. Duncan, she saw, was watching her responses with care, his hand on the small lace gun in his belt. People of the scattering? Lucilla wondered. What are their loyalties? Casually, she crossed to Duncan's side and 
using the finger-touch language on his arm, relayed her suspicions. Both of them looked at Bosmali. Treachery? Lucilla went back to her study of the room. Were they being watched by unseen eyes? Nine glow-globes lighted the space, creating their own peculiar islands of intense illumination. It reached outward into a common concentration near where Bosmali still talked to the green-eyed man. Part of the light came directly from the drifting globes, all of them tuned into rich gold, and part of it was reflected more softly off the algae. The result was a lack of dark shadows even under the furnishings. The shimmering silver threads of the inner doorway parted. An old woman entered the room. Lucilla stared at her. The woman had a seamed face as dark as old rosewood. Her features were sharply defined in a narrow frame of straggling grey hair that fell almost to her shoulders. She wore a long black robe, worked with golden threads in a pattern of mythological dragons. The woman stopped behind a settee and placed her deeply veined hands on the back. Bosmali and his companion broke off their conversation. Lucilla looked from the old woman down to her own robe. Except for the golden dragons, the garments were similar in design, the hoods draped back onto the shoulders. Only in the side cut and the way it opened down the front was the design of the dragon robe different. When the woman did not speak, Lucilla looked to Bosmali for explanation. Bosmali stared back at her with a look of intense concentration. The old woman continued to study Lucilla silently. The intensity of attention filled Lucilla with disquiet. Duncan felt it too, she saw. He kept his hand on the small laze gun. The long silence while eyes examined her amplified her unease. There was something almost Bene Gesserit about the way the old woman just stood there, looking. Duncan broke the silence, demanding of Bursmali, Who is she? I'm the one called Save Your Skins, the old woman said. She had a thin voice that crackled weakly, but that same strange accent. Lucilla's other memories brought up a suggestive comparison for the old woman's garment, similar to that worn by ancient playfems. Lucilla almost shook her head. Surely this woman was too old for such a role, and the shape of the mythic dragons worked into the fabric differed from those supplied by memory. Lucilla returned her attention to the old face, eyes humid with the illnesses of age. A dry crust had settled into the creases where each eyelid touched the channels beside her nose, far too old for a playfem. The old woman spoke to Bosmali. I think she can wear it well enough, she began divesting herself of her dragon robe. To Lucilla she said, This is for you. Wear it with respect. We killed to get it for you. Who did you kill? Lucilla demanded. A postulant of the honored matres. There was a pride in the old woman's husky tone. Why should I wear that robe? Lucilla demanded. You will trade garments with me, the old woman said. Not without explanation. Lucilla refused to accept the robe being extended to her. Bosmali took one step forward. You can trust her. I am a friend of your friends, the old woman said. She shook the robe in front of Lucilla. Here, take it. Lucilla addressed Bosmali. I must know your plan. We both must know it, Duncan said. On whose authority are we asked to trust these people? Tags, Bosmali said. And mine. 
He looked at the old woman. You can tell them, Sirafa. We have time. You will wear this robe while you accompany Marzmale into Yasai, Serafa said. Serafa, Lucilla thought. The name had almost the sound of the Bene Gesserit lineal variant. Serafa studied Duncan. Yes, he is small enough yet. He will be disguised and conveyed separately. No, Lucilla said. I am commanded to guard him. You are being foolish, Serafa said. They will be looking for a woman of your appearance accompanied by someone of this young man's appearance. They will not be looking for a playfem of the honored matres with her companion of the night, nor for a Tlelaxu master and his entourage. Lucilla wet her lips with her tongue. Serafa spoke with the confident assurance of a house proctor. Serafa draped the dragon robe over the back of the settee. She stood revealed in a clinging black leotard that concealed nothing of a body still lithe and supple, even well-rounded. The body looked much younger than the face. As Lucilla looked at her, Serafa passed her palms across her forehead and cheeks, smoothing them backward. Age lines grew shallow, and a younger face was revealed. A face dancer? Lucilla stared hard at the woman. There were none of the other face dancer stigmata. Still, Get your robe off, Serafa ordered. Now her voice was younger and even more commanding. You must do it, Basmali pleaded. Serafa will take your place as another decoy. It's the only way we'll get through. Get through to what? Duncan said. To a no-ship, Basmali said. And where will that take us? Lucilla demanded. To safety, Basmali said. We will be loaded with sheer, but I cannot say more. Even sheer wears off in time. How will I be disguised as a Tleilaxu? Duncan asked. Trust us that it will be done, Basmali said. He kept his attention on Lucilla. Reverend Mother? You give me no choice, Lucilla said. She undid the quick fasteners and dropped her robe. She removed the small handgun from her bodice and tossed it onto the settee. Her own leotard was light grey, and she saw Serafa making note of this, and of the knives in their leg sheaths. We sometimes wear black undergarments, Lucilla said as she slipped into the dragon robe. The fabric looked heavy but felt light. She pivoted in it, sensing the way it flared and fitted itself to her body almost as though it had been made just for her. There was a rough spot at the neck. She reached up and ran a finger along it. That is where the dart struck her, Serafa said. We moved fast, but the acid scarred the fabric slightly. It is not visible to the eye. Is the appearance correct? Busmali asked Serafa. Very good. But I will have to instruct her. She must make no mistakes, or they will have both of you like that. Serafa clapped her hands for emphasis. Where have I seen that gesture? Lucilla asked herself. Duncan touched the back of Lucilla's right arm, his fingers secretly quick-talking. That hand clap a mannerism of Gidi Prime. Other memories confirmed this for Lucilla. Was this woman part of an isolated community, preserving archaic ways? The lad should go now, Serafa said. She gestured to the two remaining members of the escort. Take him to the place. I don't like this, Lucilla said. We have no choice, Basmali barked. Lucilla could only agree. 
She was relying on Bosmali's oath of loyalty to the sisterhood, she knew. And Duncan was not a child, she reminded herself. His prana-bindu reactions had been conditioned by the old Basha and herself. There were abilities in the Gola that few people outside of the Bene Gesserit could match. She watched silently as Duncan and the two men left through the shimmering curtain. When they were gone, Serafa came around the settee and stood in front of Lucilla, hands on hips. Their gazes met at a level. Basmali cleared his throat and fingered the rough pile of clothing on the table beside him. Serafa's face, especially the eyes, held a remarkably compelling quality. The eyes were light green with clear whites. No lens or other artifice masked them. You have the right look about you, Serafa said. Remember that you are a special kind of playfemme, and Bursmali is your customer. No ordinary person would interfere with that. Lucilla heard a veiled hint in this. But there are those who might interfere. Embassies from great religions are on Gamu now, Serafa said. Some you have never encountered. They are from what you call the scattering. And what do you call it? The seeking. Serafa raised a placating hand. Do not fear. We have a common enemy. The honored Matres? Serafa turned her head to the left and spat on the floor. Look at me, Bene Gesserit. I was trained only to kill them. That is my only function and purpose. Lucilla spoke carefully. From what we know, you must be very good. In some things, perhaps I am better than you. Now listen. You are a sexual adept. Do you understand? Why would priests interfere? You call them priests? Well, yes, they would not interfere for any reason you might imagine. Sex for pleasure, the enemy of religion, eh? Accept no substitutes for holy joy, Lucilla said. Tantrus protect you, woman. There are different priests from the seeking. Ones who do not mind offering immediate ecstasy instead of a promised hereafter. Lucilla almost smiled. Did this self-styled killer of honored matres think she could advise a reverend mother on religions? There are people here who go about disguised as priests, Serafa said. Very dangerous. The most dangerous of all are those who follow tantrus and claim that sex is the exclusive worship of their god. How will I know them? Lucilla heard sincerity in Serafa's voice and a sense of foreboding. That is not a concern. You must never act as though you recognize such distinctions. Your first concern is to make sure of your pay. You, I think, should ask fifty solari. You have not told me why they would interfere. Lucilla glanced back at Busmali. He had laid out the rough clothing and was taking off his battle fatigues. She returned her attention to Serafa. Some follow an ancient convention that grants them the right to disrupt your arrangement with Bursmali. In actuality, some will be testing you. Listen carefully, Bursmali said. This is important. Serafa said, Bursmali will be dressed as a field worker. Nothing else could disguise his weapon's calluses. You will address him as Scar, a common name here. But how do I deal with a priest's interruption? Serafa produced a small pouch from her bodice and passed it to Lucilla, who hefted it in one hand. 
That contains 283 solari. If someone identifying himself as a divine, you remember that? Divine? How could I forget it? Lucilla's voice was almost a sneer, but Seraphah paid no heed. If such a one interferes, you will return fifty solari to Burzmali with your regrets. Also, in that pouch is your playfem card in the name of Pira. Let me hear you say your name. Pira. No, accent much harder on the A. Pira. That is possible. Now, listen to me with extreme care. You and Bursmali will be on the streets late. It will be expected that you have had previous customers. There must be evidence. Therefore you will... Ah, uh, entertain Bursmali before leaving here. You understand? Such delicacy, Lucilla said. Serafa took it as a compliment and smiled, but it was a tightly controlled expression. Her reactions were so alien. One thing, Lucilla said. If I must entertain a divine, how will I find Bursmali afterward? Scar. Yes. How will I find Scar? He will wait nearby wherever you go. Scar will find you when you emerge. Very well. If a divine interrupts, I return one hundred salari to Scar and fifty. I think not, Seraphia. Lucilla shook her head slowly from side to side. After being entertained by me, the divine will know that fifty solari is too small a sum. Seraphia pursed her lips and glanced past Lucilla at Bosmali. You warned me about her kind, but I did not suppose that, using only a touch of voice, Lucilla said, you suppose nothing unless you hear it from me. Seraphia scowled. She was obviously startled by voice, but her tone was just as arrogant when she resumed. Do I presume that you need no explanation of sexual variations? A safe assumption, Lucilla said. And I do not need to tell you that your robe identifies you as a fifth-stage adept in the Order of Hormu. It was Lucilla's turn to scowl. What if I show abilities beyond this fifth stage? Ah, Seraphia said, you will continue to heed my words then. Lucilla nodded curtly. Very good, Seraphia said. May I presume you can administer vaginal pulsing? I can. From any position? I can control any muscle in my body. Seraphia glanced past Lucilla at Bosmali. True? Bosmali spoke from close behind Lucilla. Or she would not claim it. Seraphia looked thoughtful, her focus on Lucilla's chin. This is a complication, I think. Lest you get the wrong idea, Lucilla said, the abilities I was taught are not usually marketed. They have another purpose. Oh, I'm sure they do, Seraphia said, but sexual agility is a... agility? Lucilla allowed her tone to convey the full weight of a reverend mother's outrage. No matter that this might be what Seraphia hoped to achieve, she had to be put in her place. Agility, you say? I can control genital temperature. I know I can arouse the fifty-one excitation points. I fifty-one? But there are only fifty-one, Lucilla snapped, and the sequencing plus the combinations number two thousand and eight. Furthermore, in combination with the two hundred and five sexual positions, two hundred and five? Seraphia was clearly startled. 
Surely you don't mean more, actually, if you count minor variations. I am an imprinter, which means I have mastered the three hundred steps of orgasmic amplification. Seraphah cleared her throat and wet her lips with her tongue. I must warn you then to restrain yourself. Keep your full abilities unexpressed, or... Once more she looked at Bursmali. Why didn't you warn me? I did. Lucilla clearly heard amusement in his voice, but did not look back to confirm it. Seraphah inhaled and expelled two hard breaths. If any questions are asked, you will say you are about to undergo testing for advancement. That may quiet suspicion. And if I'm asked about the test? Oh, that is easy. You smile mysteriously and remain silent. What if I'm asked about this order of Hormu? Threaten to report the questioner to your superiors. The questions should stop. And if they don't? Seraphah shrugged. Make up any story you like. Even a truth-sayer would be amused by your evasions. Lucilla held her face in repose while she thought about her situation. She heard Buzmali, Scar, stirring directly behind her. She saw no serious difficulties in carrying out this deception. It might even provide an amusing interlude she could recount later at Chapter House. Seraphah, she noted, was grinning at Burz Scar. Lucilla turned and looked at her customer. Bursmali stood there naked, his battle garb and helmet neatly stacked beside the small mound of rough clothing. I can see that Scar does not object to your preparations for this venture, Seraphah said. She waved a hand at his stiffly upcocked penis. I will leave you then. Lucilla heard Seraphah depart through the shimmering curtain. Filling Lucilla's thoughts was an angry realization. This should be the Gola here now. It is your fate, forgetfulness. All of the old lessons of life you lose and gain and lose and gain again. Later the second, the voice of Darius Balat. In the name of our order and its unbroken sisterhood, this account has been judged reliable and worthy of entry into the chronicles of Chapter House. Teraza stared at the words on her display projection with an expression of distaste. Morning light painted a fuzz of yellow reflections in the projection, making the words there appear dimly mysterious. With an angry motion, Teraza pushed herself back from the projection table, arose and went to a south window. The day was young yet, and the shadows long in her courtyard. Shall I go in person? Reluctance filled her at this thought. These quarters felt so... so secure. But that was foolishness, and she knew it in every fibre. The Bene Gesserit had been here more than fourteen hundred years, and still Chapter House Planet must be considered only temporary. She rested her left hand on the smooth frame of the window, each of her windows had been positioned to focus the attention on a splendid view. The room, its proportions, furnishing, colours, all reflected architects and builders who had worked single-mindedly to create a sense of support for the occupants. Teraza tried to immerse herself in that supportive feeling and failed. The arguments she had just experienced left a bitterness in this room even though the words had been voiced in the mildest tones. Her counsellors had been stubborn and she agreed without reservation, for understandable reasons. 
make ourselves into missionaries? And for the Tleilaxu? She touched a control plate beside the window and opened it. A warm breeze perfumed by spring blossoms from the apple orchards wafted into the room. The sisterhood was proud of the fruit they grew here at the power centre of all their strongholds. No finer orchards existed at any of the keeps and dependent chapters that wove the Bene Gesserit web through most of the planets humans had occupied under the old Imperium. By their fruits ye shall know them, she thought. Some of the old religions can still produce wisdom. From her high vantage, Teraza could see the entire southern sprawl of chapter house buildings. The shadow of a nearby watchtower drew a long, uneven line across rooftops and courtyards. When she thought about it, she knew this was a surprisingly small establishment to contain so much power. Beyond the ring of orchards and gardens lay a careful checkerboard of private residences, each with its surrounding plantation. Retired sisters and selected loyal families occupied these privileged estates. Sawtoothed mountains, their tops often brilliant with snow, drew the western limits. The space field lay twenty kilometers eastward. All around this core of Chapter House were open plains where grazed a peculiar breed of cattle, a cattle so susceptible to alien odors they would stampede in raucous bellowing at the slightest intrusion of people not marked by the local smell. The innermost homes, with their pain-fenced plantings, had been sighted by an early Bashar in such a way that no one could move through the twisting ground-level channels day or night without being observed. It all appeared so haphazard and casual, yet there was harsh order in it, and that, Teraza knew, personified the sisterhood. The clearing of a throat behind her reminded Teraza that one of those who had argued most vehemently in council remained waiting patiently in the open doorway waiting for my decision. The Reverend Mother Belonda wanted Audrade killed out of hand. No decision had been reached. You've really done it this time, Dar. I expected your wild independence. I even wanted it. But this... Belonda, old, fat, and florid, cold-eyed and valued for her natural viciousness, wanted Audrade condemned as a traitor. The tyrant would have crushed her immediately, Belonda argued. Is that all we learned from him? Teraza wondered. Belonda argued that Odrade was not only an Atreides, but also a Corino. There were emperors and vice-regents and powerful administrators to a very large number in her ancestry. With all of the power hunger this implies. Her ancestors survived Seleucus Secundus, Belonda kept repeating. Have we learned nothing from our breeding experiences? We learned how to create Odrades. Teraza thought. After surviving the spice agony, Odrade had been sent to Aldanab, an equivalent of Salusa Secundus, there to be conditioned deliberately on a planet of constant testing, high cliffs and dry gorges, hot winds and frigid winds, little moisture and too much. It was judged a suitable proving ground for someone whose destiny might take her to Rakus. Tough survivors emerged from such conditioning. The tall, supple, and muscular Odrade was one of the toughest. How can I salvage this situation? Odrade's most recent message said that any peace, even the tyrant's millennia of suppression, radiated a false aura that could be fatal to those who trusted it too much. That was both the strength and flaw in Belonda's argument. Teraza lifted her gaze to Belonda waiting in the doorway. She is too fat. She flaunts that before us. 
We can no more eliminate Odrade than we can eliminate the Gola, Teraza said. Belonda's voice came low and level. Both are now too dangerous to us. Look how Odrade weakens you with her account of those words at Siech Tabor. Has the tyrant's message weakened me, Bell? You know what I mean. The Benetlelax have no morals. Quit changing the subject, Bell. Your thoughts are darting around like an insect among the blossoms. What is it you really smell here? The Tlelaxu. They made that gola for their own purposes, and now Adrade wants us to. You're repeating yourself, Bell. The Tlelaxu take shortcuts. Their view of genetics is not our view. It is not a human view. They make monsters. Is that what they do? Belonda came into the room, walking around the table and stood close to Teraza, blocking the Mother Superior's view of the niche and its statuette of Chenoa. Alliance with a priest of Rakis, yes, but not with the Tleilaxu, Belonda's robes rustled as she gestured with a clenched fist. Bell, the high priest is now a mimic face dancer. Ally with him, you mean? Belonda shook her head angrily. Believers in Shai Hulud are legion. You find them everywhere. What will be their reaction to us if our part in the deception is ever exposed? No, you don't, Bell. We have seen to it that only the Leilaxu are vulnerable here. In that, Odrade's right. Wrong. If we ally with them, we are both vulnerable. We will be forced to serve the Leilaxu design. It will be worse than our long subservience to the tyrant. Teraza saw the vicious glinting of Belonda's eyes. Her reaction was understandable. No reverend mother could contemplate the special bondage they had endured under the god-emperor without at least some chilling remembrances. Whipped along against their will, never sure of Bene Gesserit's survival from one day to the next. You think we are sure our spice supply by such a stupid alliance? Belonda demanded. It was the same old argument, Teraza saw. Without Melange and the agony of its transformation, there could be no reverend mothers. The whores of the scattering surely had Melange as one of their targets, the spice and the Bene Gesserit mastery of it. Teresa returned to her table and sank into her chair dog, leaning back while it moulded itself to her contours. It was a problem, a peculiar Bene Gesserit problem. Although they searched and experimented constantly, the sisterhood had never found a substitute for the spice. The Spacing Guild might want Melange to transform its navigators, but they could substitute Ixian machinery. Ix and its subsidiaries competed in the Guild's markets. They had alternatives. We have none. Belonda crossed to the other side of Teraza's table, put both fists on the smooth surface, and leaned forward to look down at the Mother Superior. And we still don't know what the Tleilaxu did to our Gola. Odrade will find out. Not reason enough to forgive her treachery. Teraza spoke in a low voice. We waited for this moment, through generation after generation, and you would abort the project just like that. She slapped a palm lightly against the table. The precious Rakian project is no longer our project, Melonda said. It may never have been. All of her considerable mental powers in hard focus, Teraza re-examined the implications of this familiar argument. It was a thing spoken frequently in the wrangling session they had concluded earlier. Was the Gola scheme something set in motion by the tyrant? If so, what could they do about it now? What should they do about it? During the long dispute, the minority report had been in all of their minds. Shuangyu might be dead, but her faction survived, and it looked now as though Belonda had joined them. 
Was the sisterhood blinding itself to a fatal possibility? Odrade's report of that hidden message on Rackus could be interpreted as an ominous warning. Odrade emphasized this by reporting how she had been alerted by her inner sense of alarm. No reverend mother could treat such an event lightly. Balonda straightened and folded her arms across her breast. We never completely escaped the teachers of our childhood, nor any of the patterns that formed us, do we? That was an argument peculiar to Bene Gesserit disputes. It reminded them of their own particular susceptibility. We are the secret aristocrats, and it is our offspring who inherit the power. Yes, we are susceptible to that, and Miles Tegg is a superb example. Melonda found a straight chair and sat down, bringing her eyes level with Teraza's. At the height of the scattering, she said, we lost some twenty percent of our failures. It is not failures who are coming back to us, but the tyrant surely knew this would happen. The scattering was his goal, Bell. That was his golden path. Humankind's survival. But we know how he felt about the Tleilaxu, and yet he did not exterminate them. He could have, and he did not. He wanted diversity. Balonda pounded a fist on the table. He certainly got that. We've been through all of these arguments over and over, Bell, and I still see no way to escape what Odrade has done. Subservience! Not at all. Were we ever totally subservient to one of the pre-tyrant emperors? Not even to Muad'Dib. We are still in the tyrant's trap, Belonda accused. Tell me, why have the Tleilaxu continued to produce his favorite gola? Millennia, and still that gola keeps coming out of their tanks like a dancing doll. You think the Tleilaxu still follow a secret order from the tyrant? If so, then you argue for Odrade. She has created admirable conditions for us to examine this. He ordered nothing of the kind. He merely made that particular gola deliciously attractive to the Benetrelax, and not to us. Mother Superior, we must get ourselves out of the tyrant's trap now, and by the most direct method. The decision is mine, Bell. I still lean toward a cautious alliance. Then at the very least let us kill the gola. Shiana can have children. We could— This is not now, and never was, purely a breeding project. But it could be. What if you're wrong about the power behind the Atreides' prescience? All of your proposals lead to alienation from Rakis and from the Tleilaxu Bell. The sisterhood could weather fifteen generations on our present stockpiles and melange, more with rationing. You think fifty generations is a long time, Bell? Don't you see that this very attitude is why you are not sitting in my chair? Belonda pushed herself back from the table, her chair scraping harshly against the floor. Teresa could see that she was not convinced. Balonda no longer could be trusted. She might be the one who would have to die. And where was the noble purpose in that? This gets us nowhere, Teresa said. Leave me. When she was alone, Teresa once more considered Odrade's message. Ominous. It was easy to see why Balonda and others reacted violently. But that showed a dangerous lack of control. It is not yet time to write the sisterhood's final will and testament. In an odd way, Odrade and Belonda shared the same fear, but came to different decisions because of that fear. Odrade's interpretation of that message in the stones of Rakis conveyed an old warning. This, too, shall pass away. Are we to end now, crushed by ravenous hordes from the scattering? But the secret of the axolotl tanks was almost within the sisterhood's grasp. 
If we gain that, nothing can stop us. Teresa swung her gaze around the details of her room. The Bene Gesserit power was still here. Chapter House remained concealed behind a moat of no-ships, its location unrecorded except in the minds of her own people. Invisibility. Temporary invisibility. Accidents occurred. Teresa squared her shoulders. Take precautions, but don't live in their shadows constantly furtive. The litany against fear served a useful purpose when avoiding shadows. From anyone but Adraid, the warning message with its disturbing implications that the tyrant still guided his golden path would have been far less fearsome. That damnable Atreides talent. No more than a secret society. Teresa gritted her teeth in frustration. Memories are not enough unless they call you to noble purpose. And what if it was true that the sisterhood no longer heard the music of life? Damn him! The tyrant could still touch them. What is he trying to tell us? His golden path could not be in peril. The scattering had seen to that. Humans had spread their kind outward on uncounted courses like the spines of a hedgehog. Had he seen a vision of the scattered ones returning? Could he possibly have anticipated this bramble patch at the foot of his golden path? He knew we would suspect his powers. He knew it. Teresa thought about the mounting reports of the lost ones who were returning to their roots. A remarkable diversity of people and artifacts, accompanied by a remarkable degree of secrecy and wide evidence of conspiracy. No ships of a peculiar design, weapons and artifacts of breathtaking sophistication, diverse peoples and diverse ways. Some astonishingly primitive, at least on the surface. And they wanted much more than melange. Teresa recognized the peculiar form of mysticism that drove the scattered ones back. We want your elder secrets. The message of the honored Matres was clear enough, too. We will take what we want. Odraid has it all right in her hands, Teresa thought. She had Shiana. Soon, if Bursmali succeeded, she would have the Gola. She had the Threlaxo Master of Masters. She could have Rakis itself. If only she were not an Atreides. Teresa glanced at the projected words still dancing above her tabletop. A comparison of this newest Duncan Idaho with all of the slain ones. Each new Gola had been slightly different from its predecessors, that was clear enough. The Tleilaxu were perfecting something. But what? Was the clue hidden in these new face dancers? The Tleilaxu obviously sought an undetectable face dancer, mimics whose mimicry reached perfection, shape copiers who copied not only the surface memories of their victims, but the deepest thoughts and identity as well. It was a form of immortality even more enticing than the one the Tleilaxu masters used at present. That obviously was why they followed this course. Her own analysis agreed with the majority of her advisers. Such a mimic would become the copied person. Odraid's reports on the face dancer Tuek were highly suggestive. Even the Tleilaxu masters might not be able to shake such a face dancer out of its mimic shape and behavior. And its beliefs. Damn, Odraid! She had painted her sisters into a corner. They had no choice except to follow Odraid's lead, and Odraid knew it. How did she know it? Was it that wild talent again? I cannot act blindly. I must know. Teresa went through the well-remembered regiment to restore a sense of calm. 
She dared not make momentous decisions in a frustrated mood. A long look at the statuette of Chenua helped. Lifting herself from the chair dog, Teresa returned to her favorite window. It often soothed her to stare out at this landscape, observing how the distances changed with the daily movement of sunlight and shifts in the planet's well-managed weather. Hunger prodded her. I will eat with the acolytes and lay sisters today. It helped at times to gather the young around her and remember the persistence of the eating rituals, the daily timing, morning, noon, and evening. That formed a reliable cement. She enjoyed watching her people. They were like a tide speaking of deeper things, of unseen forces and greater powers that persisted because the Bene Gesserit had found the ways of flowing with that persistence. These thoughts renewed Teresa's balance. Nagging questions could be placed temporarily at a distance. She could look at them without passion. Odraid and the tyrant were right. Without noble purpose, we are nothing. One could not escape, though, the fact that critical decisions were being made on Rackus by a person who suffered from those recurring Atreides' flaws. Odraid had always displayed typical Atreides' weakness. She had been positively benevolent to erring acolytes. Affections developed out of such behavior. Dangerous and mind-clouding affections. This weakened others who then were required to compensate for such laxity. More competent sisters were called upon to take erring acolytes in hand and correct the weaknesses. Of course, Odraid's behavior had exposed these flaws in acolytes. One must admit this. Perhaps Odraid reasoned thus. When she thought this way, something subtle and powerful shifted in Teresa's perceptions. She was forced to put down a deep sense of loneliness. It rankled. Melancholy could be quite as mind-clouding as affection, or even love. Teresa and her watchful memory sisters ascribed such emotional responses to awareness of mortality. She was forced to confront the fact that one day she would be no more than a set of memories in someone else's living flesh. Memories and accidental discoveries, she saw, had made her vulnerable, and just when she needed every available faculty. But I am not yet dead. Teresa knew how to restore herself, and she knew the consequences. Always, after these bouts of melancholy, she regained an even firmer grip on her life and its purposes. Odraid's flawed behavior was a source of her mother superior's strength. Odraid knew it. Teresa smiled grimly at this awareness. The mother superior's authority over her sisters always became stronger when she returned from melancholy. Others had observed this, but only Odraid knew about the rage. There! Teresa realized that she had confronted the distressful seeds of her frustration. Odraid had clearly recognized on several occasions what sat at the core of the mother superior's behavior, a giant howl of rage against the uses others had made of her life. The power of that suppressed rage was daunting, even though it could never be expressed in a way that vented it. That rage must never be allowed to heal. How it hurt. Odraid's awareness made the pain even more intense. Such things did what they were supposed to do, of course. Bene Gesserit impositions developed certain mental muscles. They built up layers of callousness that could never be revealed to outsiders. Love was one of the most dangerous forces in the universe. They had to protect themselves against it. A reverend mother could never become intimately personal, not even in the services of the Bene Gesserit. 
simulation. We play the necessary role that saves us. The Bene Gesserit will persist. How long would they be subservient this time? Another 3,500 years? Well, damn them all. It would still be only a temporary thing. Teresa turned her back on the window and its restorative view. She did feel restored. New strength flowed into her. There was strength enough to overcome that gnawing reluctance which had kept her from making the essential decision. I will go to Rakis. She no longer could evade the source of her own reluctance. I may have to do what Belunda wants. Survival of self, of species, and of environment, these are what drive humans. You can observe how the order of importance changes in a lifetime. What other things of immediate concern at a given age? Weather? The state of the digestion? Does she or he really care? All of those various hungers that flesh can sense and hope to satisfy. What else could possibly matter? Later the second to Hui Nori, his voice, Dares Balat. Miles Tegg awoke in darkness to find himself being carried on a litter sling supported by suspensers. By their faint energy glow, he could see the tiny suspenser bulbs in an up-dangling row around him. There was a gag in his mouth. His hands were securely tied behind his back. His eyes remained uncovered. So they don't care what I see. Who they were, he could not tell. The bobbing motions of the dark shapes around him suggested they were descending uneven terrain. A trail? The litter sling rode smoothly on its suspensers. He could sense the faint humming from the suspensers when his party stopped to negotiate the turn of a difficult passage. Now and then, through some intervening obstruction, he saw the flickering of a light ahead. They entered the lighted area presently and stopped. He saw a single glow globe about three meters off the ground, tethered on a pole and moving gently in a cold breeze. By its yellow glow he discerned a shack, in the center of a muddy clearing, many tracks in trampled snow. He saw bushes and a few sparse trees around the clearing. Someone passed a brighter hand light across his face. Nothing was said, but Teg saw a hand gesture toward the shack. He had seldom seen such a dilapidated structure. It looked ready to collapse at the slightest touch. He bet himself that the roof leaked. Once more, his party lurched into motion, swinging him toward the shack. He studied his escort in the dim light, faces muffled to the eyes in a cover that obscured mouths and chins. Hoods hid their hair. The clothing was bulky and concealed body details except for the general articulation of arms and legs. The pole-tethered glow globe went dark. A door opened in the shack, sending a brilliant glare across the clearing. His escort hustled him inside and left him there. He heard the door close behind them. It was almost blindingly bright inside after the darkness. Teg blinked until his eyes adapted to the change. With an odd sense of displacement, he looked around him. He had expected the shack's interior to match its exterior, but here was a neat room almost bare of furnishings, only three chairs, a small table, and... He drew in a sharp breath. An Ixian probe. Couldn't they smell the shear on his breath? If they were that unaware let them use the probe. It would be agony for him, but they would get nothing from his mind. Something clicked behind him and he heard motion. Three people came into his field of vision and ranged themselves around the foot of the litter. They stared at him silently. Teg moved his attention across the three. 
The one on his left wore a dark single suit with open lapels. Male. He had the squarish face Teg had seen on some Gamu natives, small, beady eyes that stared straight through Teg. It was the face of an inquisitor, one who would not be moved by your agony. The Harkonnens had imported a lot of those in their day. Single-purpose types who could create pain without the slightest change of expression. The one directly at Teg's feet wore bulky clothing of black and grey similar to that of the escort, but the hood was thrown back to reveal a bland face under closely cropped grey hair. The face gave nothing away and the clothing revealed little. No telling if this one was male or female. Teg recorded the face. Wide forehead, square chin, large green eyes above a knife-ridged nose. A tiny mouth pursed around a mue of distaste. The third member of this group held Teg's attention longest. Tall, a tailored black single suit with a severe black jacket over it, perfectly fitted. Expensive. No decorations or insignia. Male, definitely. The man affected boredom and this gave Teg a tag for him. Narrow, supercilious face, brown eyes, thin-lipped mouth. Bored, bored, bored. All of this in here was an unwarranted demand on his very important time. He had vital business elsewhere and these other two, these underlings, must be made to realize that. That one... Teg thought, is the official observer. The bored one had been sent by the masters of this place to watch and report what he saw. Where was his data case? Ah, yes, there it was, propped against the wall behind him. Those cases were like a badge for such functionaries. On his inspection tour, Teg had seen these people walking the streets of Yasai and other Gamu cities. Small, thin cases. The more important the functionary, the smaller the case. This one's case would barely contain a few data spools and a tiny com-eye. He would never be without an eye to link him with his superiors. Thin case. This was an important functionary. Teg found himself wondering what the observer would say if Teg asked, What will you tell them about my composure? The answer was already there on that bored face. He would not even answer. He was not here to answer. When this one leaves, Teg thought, he will walk with long strides. His attention will be on distances where only he knows what powers await him. He will slap that case against his leg to remind himself of his importance, and to call the attention of these others to his badge of authority. The bulky figure at Teg's feet spoke, a compelling voice and definitely female in those vibrant tones. See how he holds himself and watches us. Silence will not break him. I told you that before we entered. You are wasting our time and we do not have all that much time for such nonsense. Teg stared at her, something vaguely familiar in the voice. It had some of that compelling quality found in a reverend mother. Was that possible? The heavy-faced Gamu type nodded. You are right, Maitali, but I do not give the orders here. Maitali, Teg wondered. Name or title? Both of them looked at the functionary. That one turned and bent to his data case. He removed a small com-eye from it and stood with the screen concealed from his companions and Teg. The eye came alight with a green glow which cast a sickly illumination over the observer's features. His self-important smile vanished. He moved his lips silently, words formed only for someone on that eye to see. Teg hid his ability to read lips. Anyone trained by the Bene Gesserit could read lips from almost any angle where they were visible. This man spoke a version of old Galak. It is the Basha Teg for sure, he said. I have made identification. 
The green light danced on the functionary's face while he stared into the eye. Whoever communicated with him was in agitated movement, if that light meant anything. Again, the functionary's lips moved soundlessly. None of us doubts that he has been conditioned against pain, and I can smell sheer on him. He will... He fell silent as the green light once more danced on his face. I do not make excuses. His lips shaped the old Gallic words with care. You know we will do our best, but I recommend that we pursue with vigor all other means of intercepting the Gola. The green light winked off. The functionary clipped the eye to his waist, turned toward his companions, and nodded once. The tea probe, the woman said. They swung the probe over Teg's head. She called it a tea probe, Teg thought. He looked up at the hood as they brought it over him. There was no Ixian stamp on the thing. Teg experienced an odd sense of deja vu. He had the feeling that his own captivity here had occurred many times before. No single incident deja vu, it was a deeply familiar recognition, the captive and the interrogators. These three, the probe. He felt emptied. How could he know this moment? He had never personally employed a probe, but he had studied their use thoroughly. The Bene Gesserit often used pain, but relied mostly on truth-sayers. Even more than that, the Sisterhood believed that some equipment could put them too much under Ixian influence. It was an admission of weakness, a sign that they could not do without such despicable devices. Teg had even suspected there was something in this attitude of a hangover from the Butlerian Jihad, rebellion against machines that could copy out the essence of a human's thoughts and memories. Deja vu. Mentat logic demanded of him, How do I know this moment? He knew that he had never before been a captive. It was such a ridiculous switch of roles, the great Bashar Teg a captive. He could almost smile. But that deep sense of familiarity persisted. His captors positioned the hood directly over his head and began releasing the Medusa contacts one at a time, fixing them to his scalp. The functionary watched his companions work, producing small signs of impatience on an otherwise emotionless face. Teg moved his attention across the three faces. Which one of these would act the part of friend? Ah, yes, the one called Maitali. Fascinating. Was it a form of honored matre? But neither of the others deferred to her as one would expect from what Teg had heard of those returning lost ones. These were people from the scattering, though, except possibly for the square-faced male in the brown single suit. Teg studied the woman with care, the mat of grey hair, the quiet composure in those widely spaced green eyes, the slightly protruding chin with its sense of solidity and reliability. She had been chosen well for friend. Maitali's face was a map of respectability, someone you could trust. Teg saw a withdrawn quality in her, though, she was one who would also observe carefully to catch the moment when she must become involved. Surely she was Bene Gesserit, trained at the very least. Or trained by the honoured Matres. They finished attaching the contacts to his head. The Gamu type swung the probe's console into position where all three could watch the display. The probe's screen was concealed from Teg. The woman removed Teg's gag, confirming his judgment. She would be the source of comfort. He moved his tongue around in his mouth, restoring sensation. His face and chest still felt a bit numb from the stunner that had brought him down. How long ago had that been? But if he was to believe the silent words of the functionary, Duncan had escaped. 
The Gamu type looked to the observer. You may begin, ya, the functionary said. Ya, Teg wondered. Curious name. Almost had a Tleilaxu sound, but Ya was not a face dancer, or a Tleilaxu master. Too big for one, and no stigmata of the other. As one trained by the sisterhood, Teg felt confident of this. Ya touched a control on the probe's console. Teg heard himself grunt with pain. Nothing had prepared him for that much pain. They must have turned their devil's machine to maximum for the first thrust. No question about it. They knew he was a mentat. A mentat could remove himself from some demands of flesh, but this was excruciating. He could not escape it. Agony shivered through his entire body, threatening to blank out his consciousness. Could Sheer shield him from this? The pain diminished gradually and went away, leaving only quivering memories. Again. He thought suddenly that the spice agony must be like this for a reverend mother. Surely there could be no greater pain. He fought to remain silent but heard himself grunting, moaning. Every ability he had ever learned, Mentat and Bene Gesserit, was called into play, keeping him from forming words, from begging for surcease, from promising to tell them anything if they would only stop. Once more the agony receded and then surged back. Enough! That was the woman. Teg groped for her name. Materly? Yar spoke in a sullen voice. He's loaded with sheer, enough to last him a year at least. He gestured at his console. Blank. Teg breathed in shallow gasps. The agony. It continued to increase despite Maitali's demand. I said enough, Maitali snapped. Such sincerity, Teg thought. He felt the pain recede, withdrawing as though every nerve were being removed from his body, pulled out like threads of the remembered agony. It is wrong what we're doing, Maitali said. This man is... He is like any other man, Ya said. Shall I attach the special contact to his penis? Not while I'm here, Maitali said. Teg felt himself almost taken in by her sincerity. The last of the agony threads left his flesh and he lay there with a feeling that he had been suspended off the surface that supported him. The sense of deja vu remained. He was here and not here. He had been here and he had not. They will not like it if we fail, Yar said. Are you prepared to face them with another failure? Maitali shook her head sharply. She bent over to bring her face into Teg's line of vision through the Medusa tangle of probe contacts. Bashar, I am sorry for what we do. Believe me, this is not of my making. Please, I find all of this disgusting. Tell us what we need to know and let me make you comfortable. Teg formed a smile for her. She was good. He shifted his gaze to the watchful functionary. Tell your masters for me. She is very good at this. Blood darkened the functionary's face. He scowled. Give him the maximum, ya! Yeah. His voice was a clipped tenor without any of the deep training apparent in Maitali's voice. Please, Maitali said. She straightened but kept her attention on Teg's eyes. Teg's Bene Gesserit teachers had taught him that. Watch the eyes. Observe how they change focus. As the focus moves outward, the awareness moves inward. He focused deliberately on her nose. It was not an ugly face, rather distinctive. He wondered what the figure might be under those bulky clothes. Ya! Yeah, that was the functionary. Yar adjusted something on his console and pressed a switch. 
The agony that surged through Teg now told him the previous level had indeed been lower. With the new pain came an odd clarity. Teg found himself almost capable of removing his awareness from this intrusion. All of that pain was happening to someone else. He had found a haven where little touched him. There was pain, agony even. He accepted reports about these sensations. That was partly the Shears doing, of course. He knew that and was thankful. Maitley's voice intruded. I think we're losing him. Better ease off. Another voice responded, but the sound faded into stillness before Teg could identify the words. He realized abruptly that he had no anchor point for his awareness. Stillness. He thought he heard his heart beating rapidly in fear, but he was not sure. All was stillness, profound quiet with nothing behind it. Am I still alive? He found a heartbeat then, but no certainty that it was his own. Thump, 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 thump. It was a sensation of movement and no sound. He could not fix the source. What is happening to me? Words blazoned in brilliant white against a black background played across his visual centers. I'm back to one-third. Leave it at that. See if we can read him through his physical reactions. Can he still hear us? Not consciously. None of Teg's instructions had told him a probe could do its evil work in the presence of Sheer, but they called this a T-probe. Could bodily reactions provide a clue to suppressed thoughts? Were there revelations to be explored by physical means? Again, words played against Teg's visual centers. Is he still isolated? Completely. Make sure. Take him a little deeper. Teg tried to lift his awareness above his fears. I must remain in control. What might his body reveal if he had no contact with it? He could imagine what they were doing, and his mind registered panic, but his flesh could not feel it. Isolate the subject. Give him nowhere to seat his identity. Who had said that? Someone. The sense of déjà vu returned in full force. I am a mentat, he reminded himself. My mind and its workings are my center. He possessed experiences and memories upon which a center could rely. Pain returned. Sounds. Loud, much too loud. He's hearing again. That was Yah. How can that be? The functionary's tenor. Perhaps you've set it too low, Maitley. Teg tried to open his eyes. The lids would not obey. He remembered then. They had called it a T-probe. This was no Ixian device. This was something from the scattering. He could identify where it took over his muscles and senses. It was like another person sharing his flesh, preempting his own reactive patterns. He allowed himself to follow the workings of this machine's intrusion. It was a hellish device. It could order him to blink, Fart, gasp, shit, piss, anything. It could command his body as though he had no thinking part in his own behavior. He was relegated to the role of observer. Odors assailed him, disgusting odors. He would not command himself to frown, but he thought of frowning. That was sufficient. These odors had been elicited by the probe. It was playing his senses, learning them. Do you still have enough to read him? The functionary's tenor. He's still hearing us? Yah. Damn all mentats, Maitley. Dit, dat, and dot, Teg said, naming the puppets of the winter show from his childhood on long ago, Linnaeus. He's talking, the functionary. 
Teg felt his awareness being blocked off by the machine. Yar was doing something at the console. Still, Teg knew his own mentat logic had told him something vital. These three were puppets. Only the puppet masters were important. How the puppets moved, that told you what the puppet masters were doing. The probe continued to intrude. Despite the force being applied, Teg felt his awareness matching the thing. It was learning him, but he was also learning it. He understood now. The whole spectrum of his senses could be copied into this T-probe and identified, tagged for Yar to call up when needed. An organic chain of responses existed within Teg. The machine could trace those out as though it made a duplicate of him. The sheer and his mentat resistance shunted the searchers away from his memories, but everything else could be copied. It will not think like me, he reassured himself. The machine would not be the same as his nerves and flesh. It would not have Teg memories or Teg experiences. It had not been born of woman. It had never travelled down a birth canal and emerged into this astonishing universe. Part of Teg's awareness applied a memory marker, telling him that this observation revealed something about the Gola. Duncan was decanted from an axolotl tank. The observation came to Teg with a sudden sharp biting of acid on his tongue. The tea probe again. Teg allowed himself to flow through a multiple simultaneous awareness. He followed the tea probe's workings and continued to explore this observation about the Gola, all the while listening for dit, dat, and dot. The three puppets were oddly silent. Yes, waiting for their tea probe to complete its task. The Gola. Duncan was an extension of cells that had been born of a woman impregnated by a man. Machine and Gola. Observation. The machine cannot share that birth experience, except in a remotely vicarious way, sure to miss important personal nuances. Just as it was missing other things in him right now. The tea probe was replaying smells. With each induced odor, memories revealed their presence in Teg's mind. He felt the great speed of the tea probe, but his own awareness lived outside of that headlong rushing search, able to entangle him for as long as he desired in the memories being called up here. There. That was the hot wax he had spilled on his left hand when only fourteen and a student in the Bene Gesserit school. He recalled school and laboratory as though his only existence were there at this moment. The school is attached to Chapter House. By being admitted here, Teg knew he had the blood of Siona in his veins. No prescient could track him here. He saw the lab and smelled the wax, a compound of artificial esters and the natural product of bees kept by failed sisters and their helpers. He turned his memory to a moment when he watched bees and people at their labors in the apple orchards. The workings of the Bene Gesserit's social structure appeared so complicated until you saw through to the necessities. Food, clothing, warmth, communication, learning, protection from enemies, a subset of the survival drive. Bene Gesserit survival took some adjustments before it could be understood. They did not procreate for the sake of humankind in general. No unmonitored racial involvement. They procreated to extend their own powers, to continue the Bene Gesserit, deeming that a sufficient service to humankind. Perhaps it was. Procreative motivation went deep, and the sisterhood was so thorough. A new smell assailed him. He recognized the wet wool of his clothing as he came into the command pod after the Battle of Ponciard. The smell filled his nostrils and elicited the ozone of the pod's instruments, the sweat of the other occupants. Wool. 
The sisterhood had always thought it a bit odd of him, the way he preferred natural fabrics and shunned the synthetics turned out in captive factories. No more did he care for chair dogs. I don't like the smells of oppression in any form. Did these puppets, Dit, Dat, and Dot, know how oppressed they were? Mentite logic sneered at him. Were not wool fabrics also a product of captive factories? It was different. Part of him argued otherwise. Synthetics could be stored almost indefinitely. Look how long they had endured in the null entropy bins of the Harkonnen's no-glow. I still prefer woolens and cottons. So be it. But how did I come by such a preference? It is an Atreides prejudice. You inherited it. Teg shunted the smells aside and concentrated on the total movement of the intrusive probe. He found presently that he could anticipate the thing. It was a new muscle. He allowed himself to flex it while he continued to examine the induced memories for valuable insights. I sit outside my mother's door on Linnaeus. Teg removed part of his awareness and watched the scene, age eleven. He is talking to a small Bene Gesserit acolyte who came as part of the escort for somebody important. The acolyte is a tiny thing with red blonde hair and a doll's face. Upturned nose, green-gray eyes. The S.I. is a black-robed reverend mother of truly ancient appearance. She has gone behind that nearby door with Teg's mother. The acolyte, who is named Kalana, is trying her fledgling skills on the young son of the house. Before Kalana utters twenty words, Miles Teg recognizes the pattern. She is trying to pry information out of him. This was one of the first lessons in delicate dissembling taught by his mother. There were, after all, people who might question a young boy about a reverend mother's household, hoping thereby to gain saleable information. There is always a market for data about reverend mothers. His mother explained, You judge the questioner and fit your responses according to the susceptibilities. None of this would have served against a full reverend mother, but against an acolyte, especially this one. For Kalana, he produced an appearance of coy reluctance. Kalana has an inflated view of her own attractions. He allows her to overcome his reluctance after a suitable marshalling of her forces. What she gets is a handful of lies, which, if she ever repeats them to the S.I. behind that closed door, are sure to win Kalana a severe censuring, if not something more painful. Words from Dit, Dat, and Dot. I think we have him now. Teg recognized Yar's voice yanking him out of old memories. Fit your responses according to the susceptibilities. Teg heard the words in his mother's voice. Puppets. Puppet masters. The functionary speaks. Ask the simulation where they have taken the gola. Silence and then a faint humming. I'm not getting anything. Yah. Teg hears their voices with painful sensitivity. He forces his eyes to open against the opposing commands of the probe. Look, Yah says. Three sets of eyes stare back at Teg. How slowly they move. Dit, dat, and dot. The eyes go blink, blink, at least a minute between blinks. Yah is reaching for something on his console. His fingers will take a week to reach their destination. Teg explores the bindings on his hands and arms. Ordinary ropes. Taking his time, he squirms his fingers into contact with the knots. They loosen slowly at first and then flying apart. He moves onto the straps holding him to the sling litter. These are easier, simple slip locks. 
Yar's hand is not even a fourth of the way to the console. Blink, blink, blink. The three sets of eyes show faint surprise. Teg releases himself from the Medusa tangle of probe contacts. Pop, pop, pop. The grippers fly away from him. He is surprised to notice a slow start of bleeding on the back of his right hand where it has brushed the probe contacts aside. Mentat projection. I am moving with dangerous speed. But now he is off the litter. Functionary is reaching a slow, slow hand toward a bulge in a side pocket. Teg's hand crushes the functionary's throat. Functionary will never again touch that little laze gun he always carries. Yar's outstretched hand is still not a third of the way to the probe console. There is definite surprise in his eyes, though. Teg doubts that the man even sees the hand that breaks his neck. Materly is moving a bit faster. Her left foot is coming toward where Teg had been just the flick of an instant previously, still too slow. Materly's head is thrown back, the throat exposed for Teg's down-chopping hand. How slowly they fall to the floor. Teg became aware of perspiration pouring from him, but he could not spare time to worry about this. I knew every move they would make before they made it. What has happened to me? Mentat projection. The probe agony has lifted me to a new level of ability. Intense hunger pangs made him aware of the energy drain. He pushed the sensation aside, feeling himself return to a normal time beat. Three dull sounds. Bodies falling to the floor. Teg examined the probe console. Definitely not Ixion. Similar controls, though. He shorted out the data storage system, erasing it. Room lights? Controls beside the door from the outside. He extinguished the lights, took three deep breaths. A whirling blur of motion erupted into the night. The ones who had brought him here, clad in their bulky clothing against the winter chill, barely had time to turn toward the odd sound before the whirling blur struck them down. Teg returned to normal time beat more quickly. Starlight showed him a trail leading downslope through thick brush. He slipped and slid on the snow-churned mud for a space and then found the way to balance himself, anticipating the terrain. Each step went where he knew it must go. He found himself presently in an open space that looked out across a valley. The lights of a city and a great black rectangle of building near the center. He knew this place. Yasai, the puppet master's were there. I am free. There was a man who sat each day looking out through a narrow vertical opening where a single board had been removed from a tall wooden fence. Each day a wild ass of the desert passed outside the fence and across the narrow opening. First the nose, then the head, the forelegs, the long brown back, the hind legs, and lastly the tail. One day the man leaped to his feet with a light of discovery in his eyes, and he shouted for all who could hear him, It is obvious! The nose causes the tail! Stories of the Hidden Wisdom From the Oral History of Rakis Several times since coming to Rakis, Audrade had found herself caught in the memory of that ancient painting which occupied such a prominent place on the wall of Terraza's chapter-house quarters. When the memory came... She felt her hands tingle to the touch of the brush. Her nostrils swelled to the induced smells of oils and pigments. Her emotions assaulted the canvas. Each time Audrade emerged from the memory with new doubts that Shiana was her canvas. Which of us paints the other? 
It had happened again this morning. Still dark outside the Rakian keep's penthouse where she quartered with Shiana. An acolyte entered softly to waken Odraid and tell her that Teraza would arrive shortly. Odraid looked up at the softly illuminated face of the dark-haired acolyte, and immediately that memory painting flashed into her awareness. Which of us truly creates another? Let Shiana sleep a bit longer, Odraid said before dismissing the acolyte. Will you breakfast before the Mother Superior's arrival? the acolyte asked. We will wait upon Teraza's pleasure. Arising, Odraid went through a swift toilet and donned her best black robe. She strode then to the east window of the penthouse common room and looked out in the direction of the space field. Many moving lights cast a glow on the dusty sky there. She activated all of the room's glow globes to soften the exterior view. The globes became reflected golden starbursts on the thick armor plaz of the windows. The dusky surface also reflected a dim outline of her own features, showing the fatigue lines clearly. I knew she would come, Odraid thought. Even as she thought this, the Rakian sun came over the dust-blurred horizon like a child's orange ball thrust into view. Immediately, there was a heat bounce that so many observers of Rakis had mentioned. Odraid turned away from the view and saw the hall door open. Teraza entered with a rustle of robes. A hand closed the door behind her, leaving the two of them alone. The Mother Superior advanced on Odraid, black hood up and the cowl framing her face, it was not a reassuring sight. Recognizing the disturbance in Odraid, Teraza played on it. Well, Da, I think we finally meet as strangers. The effect of Teraza's words startled Odraid. She correctly interpreted the threat, but fear left her, spilling out as though it were water poured from a jug. For the first time in her life, Odraid recognized the precise moment of crossing a dividing line. This was a line whose existence she thought few of her sisters suspected. As she crossed it, she realized that she had always known it was there, a place where she could enter the void and float free. She no longer was vulnerable. She could be killed, but she could not be defeated. So it's not Dar and Tar anymore, Odraid said. Teraza heard the clear, uninhibited tone of Odraid's voice and interpreted this as confidence. Perhaps it never was Dar and Ta, she said, her voice icy. I see that you think you have been extremely clever. The battle has been joined, Odraid thought, but I do not stand in the path of her attack. Odraid said, the alternatives to alliance with the Tleilaxu could not be accepted, especially when I recognized what it was you truly sought for us. Teraza felt suddenly weary. It had been a long trip despite the space-folding leaps of her no-ship. The flesh always knew when it had been twisted out of its familiar rhythms. She chose a soft divan and sat down, sighing in the luxurious comfort. Odraid recognized the Mother Superior's fatigue and felt immediate sympathy. There were suddenly two reverend mothers with common problems. Teraza obviously sensed this. She patted the cushion beside her and waited for Odraid to be seated. We must preserve the sisterhood, Teraza said. That is the only important thing. Of course. Teraza fixed her gaze searchingly on Odraid's familiar features. Yes, Odraid too is weary. You have been here intimately touching the people and the problem, Teraza said. I want... No, Dar. 
I need your views. The Trelaxu give the appearance of full cooperation, Odrade said, but there is dissembling in this. I have begun to ask myself some extremely disturbing questions. Such as, what if the axolotl tanks are not... tanks? What do you mean? Woff reveals the kinds of behavior you see when a family tries to conceal a deformed child, or a mad uncle. I swear to you, he is embarrassed when we begin to touch on the tanks. But what could they possibly... Surrogate mothers. But they would have to be... Terraza fell silent, shocked by the possibilities this question opened. Who has ever seen a Tleilaxu female? Odrade asked. Terraza's mind was filled with objections. But the precise chemical control, the need to limit variables. She threw her hood back and shook her hair free. You are correct. We must question everything. This, though, this is monstrous. He is still not telling the full truth about our Gola. What does he say? No more than what I have already reported. A variation on the original Duncan Idaho and meeting all of the Pranabindu requirements we specified. That does not explain why they killed or tried to kill our previous purchases. He swears the holy oath of the great belief that they acted out of shame because the eleven previous Golas did not live up to expectations. How could they know? Does he suggest they have spies among? He swears not. I taxed him with this, and he said that a successful Gola would be sure to create a visible disturbance among us. What visible disturbance? What is he? He will not say. Where is the Gola, Ta? What? Oh, on Gamel. I hear rumors of Bersmali has the situation well in hand. Teraza closed her mouth tightly, hoping that was the truth. The most recent report did not fill her with confidence. You obviously are debating whether to have the Gola killed, Odrade said. Not just the Gola. Odrade smiled. Then it's true that Belonda wants me permanently eliminated. How did you... Friendships can be a very valuable asset at times, Da. You tread on dangerous ground, Reverend Mother Odrade. But I am not stumbling, Mother Superior Teraza. I am thinking long, hard thoughts about the things Waff has revealed about those honoured matres. Tell me some of your thoughts. There was implacable determination in Teraza's voice. Let us make no mistakes about this, Odrade said. They have surpassed the sexual skills of our imprinters. Whores! Yes, they employ their skills in a way ultimately fatal to themselves and others. They have been blinded by their own power. Is that the extent of your long, hard thoughts? Tell me, Ta, why did they attack and obliterate our keep on Gamel? Obviously, they were after our Idaho Gola, to capture him or kill him. Why would that be so important to them? What are you trying to say? Teraza demanded. Could the whores have been acting upon information revealed to them by the Thelaxu? Ta, what if this secret thing Waff's people have introduced into our Gola is something that would make the Gola a male equivalent of the honored matres? Teraza put a hand to her mouth and dropped it quickly when she saw how much the gesture revealed. It was too late. No matter, they were still two reverend mothers together. Odrade said, and we have ordered Lucilla to make him irresistible to most women. How long have the Tleilaxu been dealing with those whores? Teraza demanded. Odrade shrugged. A better question is this. How long have they been dealing with their own lost ones returned from the scattering? Tleilaxu speak to Tleilaxu, 
and many secrets could be revealed. A brilliant projection on your part, Teraza said. What probability value do you attach to it? You know that as well as I do. It would explain many things, Teraza spoke bitterly. What do you think of your alliance with the Tleilaxu now? More necessary than ever, we must be on the inside. We must be where we can influence those who contend. Abomination, Teraza snapped. What? This Gola is like a recording device in human shape. They have planted him in our midst. If the Tleilaxu get their hands on him, they will know many things about us. That would be clumsy. And typical of them. I agree that there are other implications in our situation, Odraid said, but such arguments only tell me that we dare not kill the Gola until we have examined him ourselves. That might be too late. Damn your alliance, Dar! You gave them a hold on us, and us a hold on them, and neither of us dares let go. Is that not the perfect alliance? Teraza sighed. How soon must we give them access to our breeding records? Soon. Waf is pressing the matter. Then will we see their axolotl tanks? That is, of course, the lever I am using. He has given us reluctant agreement. Deeper and deeper into each other's pockets, Teraza growled. Her tone all innocence, Odraid said, a perfect alliance, just as I said. Damn, 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 Teraza muttered. And Teg has reawakened the Gola's original memories. But has Lucilla? I don't know. Teraza turned a grim expression on Odraid and recounted the most recent reports from Gamu. Teg and his party located the briefest of accounts about them and nothing from Lucilla. Plans made to bring them out. Her own words produced an unsettling picture in Teraza's mind. What was this Gola? They had always known the Duncan Idahos were not ordinary Golas. But now, with augmented nerve and muscle capabilities, plus this unknown thing that Tleilaxu had introduced, it was like holding a burning club. You knew you might have to use the club for your own survival, but the flames approached at a terrifying speed. Odraid spoke in a musing tone. Have you ever tried to imagine what it must be like for a gola suddenly to awaken in renewed flesh? What? What are you? Realizing that your flesh was grown from the cells of a cadaver, Odraid said. He remembers his own death. The Idahos were never ordinary people, Teraza said. The same may be said for these Tleilaxu masters. What are you trying to say? Odraid rubbed her own forehead, taking a moment to review her thoughts. This was so difficult with someone who rejected affection, with someone who thrust outward from a core of rage. Teraza had no, no simpatico. She could not assume the flesh and senses of another except as an exercise in logic. Agola's awakening must be a shattering experience, Odraid said, lowering her hand. Only the ones with enormous mental resilience would survive. We assume that the Thalaxu masters are more than they appear to be. And the Duncan Idahos? Of course. Why else would the tyrant keep buying them from the Thalaxu? Odraid saw that the argument was pointless. She said, the Idahos were notoriously loyal to the Atreides and we must remember that I am Atreides. You think loyalty will bind this one to you? Especially after Lucilla. That may be too dangerous. Odraid sat back into a corner of the divan. 
Terraza wanted certainty, and the lives of the serial goalers were like melange, presenting a different taste in different surroundings. How could they be sure of their goaler? The Tleilaxu meddle with the forces that produced our Kwisatz Haderach, Terraza muttered. You think that's why they want our breeding records? I don't know. Damn you, Da, don't you see what you've done? I think I had no choice, Odraid said. Teraza produced a cold smile. Odraid's performance remained superb, but she needed to be put in her place. You think I would have done the same? Teraza asked. She still does not see what has happened to me, Odraid thought. Teraza had expected her pliant Da to act with independence, but the extent of that independence had shaken the High Council. Teraza refused to see her own hand in this. Customary practice, Odraid said. The words struck Teraza like a slap in the face. Only the hard training of a Bene Gesserit lifetime prevented her from striking out violently at Odraid. Customary practice. How many times had Teraza herself revealed this as a source of irritation, a constant goad to her carefully capped rage? Odraid had heard it often. Odraid quoted the Mother Superior now. Immovable custom is dangerous. Enemies can find a pattern and use it against you. The words were forced from Teraza. That is a weakness, yes. Our enemies thought they knew our way, Odraid said. Even you, Mother Superior, thought you knew the limits within which I would perform. I was like Belonda. Before she even spoke, you knew what Belonda would say. Have we made a mistake? Not elevating you above me? Teraza asked. She spoke from her deepest allegiance. No, Mother Superior. We walk a delicate path, but both of us can see where we must go. Where is Waf now? Teraza asked. Asleep and well guarded. Summon Shiana. We must decide whether to abort that part of the project. And take our lumps? As you say, Da. Shiana was still sleepy and rubbing her eyes when she appeared in the common room, but she obviously had taken the time to splash water on her face and dress in a clean white robe. Her hair was still damp. Teraza and Odraid stood near an eastern window with their backs to the light. This is Shiana, Mother Superior, Odraid said. Shiana came fully alert with an abrupt stiffening of her back. She had heard of this powerful woman, this Teraza who ruled the sisterhood from a distant citadel called Chapter House. Sunlight was bright in the window behind the two women, shining full into Shiana's face, dazzling her. It left the faces of the two reverend mothers partly obscured, the black outlines of their figures fuzzy in the brilliance. Acolyte instructors had prepared her against this encounter. You stand at attention before the Mother Superior and speak respectfully. Respond only when she speaks to you. Shiana stood at rigid attention the way she had been told. I am informed that you may become one of us, Teraza said. Both women could see the effect of this on the girl. By now Shiana was more fully aware of her reverend mother's accomplishments. The powerful beam of truth had been focused on her. She had begun to grasp at the enormous body of knowledge the sisterhood had accumulated over the millennia. She had been told about selective memory transmission, about the workings of other memories, about the spice agony. And here before her stood the most powerful of all reverend mothers, one from whom nothing was hidden. When Shiana did not respond, Teraza said, Have you nothing to say, child? What is there to say, Mother Superior? You have said it all. 
Teresa sent a searching glare at Odraid. Have you any other little surprises for me, Da? I told you she was superior, Odraid said. Teresa returned her attention to Shiana. Are you proud of that opinion, child? It frightens me, Mother Superior. Still holding her face as immobile as she could, Shiana breathed more easily. Say only the deepest truth you can sense, she reminded herself. Those warning words from a teacher carried more meaning now. She kept her eyes slightly unfocused and aimed at the floor directly in front of the two women, avoiding the worst of the brilliant sunlight. She still felt her heart beating too rapidly and knew the Reverend Mothers would detect this. Audrey had demonstrated it many times. Well, it should frighten you, Teresa said. Audrey asked, Do you understand what is being said to you, Shiana? The Mother Superior wishes to know if I am fully committed to the sisterhood, Shiana said. Audrey looked at Teresa and shrugged. There was no need for more discussion of this between them. That was the way of it when you were part of one family, as they were in the Bene Gesserit. Teresa continued her silent study of Shiana. It was a heavy gaze, energy draining for Shiana, who knew she must remain silent and permit that scorching examination. Audrey put down feelings of sympathy. Shiana was like herself as a young girl in so many ways. She had that globular intellect which expanded on all surfaces the way a balloon expanded when filled. Audrey recalled how her own teachers had been admiring of this, but wary just the way Teresa was now wary. Audrey had recognized this wariness, while even younger than Shiana, and held no doubts that Shiana saw it here. Intellect had its uses. Hmm, Teresa said. Audrey heard the humming sound of the Mother Superior's internal reflections as part of a simul flow. Audrey's own memory had surged backward. The sisters who had brought Audrey her food when she studied late had always loitered to observe her in their special way, just as Shiana was watched and monitored at all times. Audrey had known about those special ways of observing from an early age. That was, after all, one of the great lures of the Bene Gesserit. You wanted to be capable of such esoteric abilities. Shiana certainly possessed this desire. It was the dream of every postulant. That such things might be possible for me. Teresa spoke finally. What is it you think you want from us, child? The same things you thought you wanted when you were my age, Mother Superior. Audrey suppressed a smile. Shiana's wild sense of independence had skated close to insolence there, and Teresa certainly recognized this. You think that is a proper use for the gift of life? Teresa asked. It is the only use I know, Mother Superior. Your candor is appreciated, but I warn you to be careful in your use of it, Teresa said. Yes, Mother Superior. You already owe us much, and you will owe us more, Teresa said. Remember that. Our gifts do not come cheaply. Shiana has not the vaguest appreciation of what she will pay for our gifts. Odraid thought. The sisterhood never let its initiates forget what they owed and must repay. You did not repay with love. Love was dangerous, and Shiana already was learning this. The gift of life? A shudder began to course through Odraid, and she cleared her throat to compensate. Am I alive? Perhaps when they took me away from Mama Sabia, I died. I was alive there in that house, but did I live after the sisters removed me?
Teraza said, You may leave us now, Shiana. Shiana turned on one heel and left the room, but not before Odraid saw the tight smile on the young face. Shiana knew she had passed the Mother Superior's examination. When the door closed behind Shiana, Teraza said, You mentioned her natural ability with voice. I heard it, of course. Remarkable. She kept it well bridled, Odraid said. She has learned not to try it on us. What do we have there, Dar? Perhaps someday a mother superior of extraordinary abilities. Not too extraordinary? We will have to see. Do you think she is capable of killing for us? Odraid was startled and showed it. Now? Yes, of course. The Gola? Teg would not do it, Teraza said. I even have doubts about Lucilla. Their reports make it clear that he is capable of forging powerful bonds of... of affinity. Even as I? Shuang Yu herself was not completely immune. Where is the noble purpose in such an act? Odraid asked. Isn't this what the tyrant's warning has... him? He killed many times. And paid for it. We pay for everything we take, Da. Even for a life? Never forget for one instant, Da, that a mother superior is capable of making any necessary decision for the sisterhood's survival. So be it, Odraid said. Take what you want and pay for it. It was the proper reply, but it reinforced the new strength Odraid felt, this freedom to respond in her own way within a new universe. Where had such toughness originated? Was it something out of her cruel Bene Gesserit conditioning? Was it from her Atreides ancestry? She did not try to fool herself that this came from a decision never again to follow another's moral guidance rather than her own. This inner stability upon which she now stationed herself was not a pure morality. Not bravado, either. Those were never enough. You are very like your father, Teraza said. Usually it's the dam who provides most of the courage, but this time I think it was the father. Miles Teg is admirably courageous, but I think you oversimplify, Odraid said. Perhaps I do. But I've been right about you at every turn, Dar. Even back there, when we were student postulants. She knows, Odraid thought. We don't need to explain it, Odraid said. And she thought, it comes from being born who I am, trained and shaped the way I was, the way we both were, Dar and Tar. It's something in the Atreides line that we have not fully analyzed, Teraza said. No genetic accidents? I sometimes wonder if we've suffered any real accidents since the tyrant, Teraza said. Did he stretch out back there in his citadel and look across the millennia to this very moment? How far back would you reach for the roots? Teraza asked. Odraid said, What really happens when a mother superior commands the breeding mistresses? Have that one go breed with that one. Teraza produced a cold smile. Odraid felt herself suddenly at the crest of a wave, awareness pushing all of her over into this new realm. Teraza wants my rebellion. She wants me as her opponent. Will you see Waf now? Odraid asked. First, I want your assessment of him. He sees us as the ultimate tool to create the Tleilaxu ascendancy. We are God's gift to his people. They have been waiting a long time for this, Teraza said, to dissemble so carefully all of them for all of those eons. They have our view of time, Odraid agreed. That was the final thing to convince them we share their great belief. But why the clumsiness? Teraza asked. They are not stupid. It diverted our attention from how they were really using their Gola process, 
Odraid said. Who could believe stupid people would do such a thing? And what have they created? Teraza asked. Only the image of evil stupidity? Act stupid long enough and you become stupid, Odraid said. Perfect the mimicry of your face dancers and whatever happens we must punish them, Teraza said. I see that clearly. Have him brought up here. After Odraid had given the order and while they waited, Teraza said, The sequencing of the Gola's education became a shambles even before they escaped from the Gamu Keep. He leaped ahead of his teachers to grasp things that were only implied, and he did this at an alarmingly accelerated rate. Who knows what he has become by now? Historians exercise great power, and some of them know it. They recreate the past, changing it to fit their own interpretations. Thus, they change the future as well. Later the second, his voice, from Dares Balat. Duncan followed his guide through the dawn light at a punishing clip. The man might look old, but he was as springy as a gazelle and seemed incapable of tiring. Only a few minutes ago they had put aside their night goggles. Duncan was glad to be rid of them. Everything outside the reach of the glasses had been black in the dim starlight filtering through heavy branches. There had been no world ahead of him, beyond the range of the glasses. The view at both sides jerked and flowed. Now a clump of yellow bushes, now two silverbark trees, now a stone wall with a plasteel gate cut into it and guarded by the flickering blue of a burn shield, then an arched bridge of native rock all green and black underfoot. After that, an arched entry of polished white stone. The structures all appeared very old and expensive, maintained by costly handwork. Duncan had no idea where he was. None of this terrain recalled his memories of the long-lost Giri Prime days. Dawn revealed that they were following a tree-shielded animal track up a hillside. The climb became steep. Occasional glimpses through trees on their left revealed a valley. A hanging mist stood guard over the sky, hiding the distances, enclosing them as they climbed. Their world became progressively a smaller place as it lost its connection with a larger universe. At one brief pause, not for rest but for listening to the forest around them, Duncan studied his mist-capped surroundings. He felt dislodged, removed from a universe that possessed sky and the open features that linked it to other planets. His disguise was simple. Trelaxu cold-weather garments and cheek pads to make his face appear rounder. His curly black hair had been straightened by some chemical applied with heat. The hair was then bleached to a sandy blonde and hidden under a dark watch cap. All of his genital hair had been shaved away. He hardly recognized himself in the mirror they held up for him. A dirty Trelaxu. The artisan who created this transformation was an old woman with glittering grey-green eyes. You are now a Trelaxu master she said. Your name is Woes. A guide will take you to the next place. You will treat him like a face dancer if you meet strangers, otherwise do as he commands. They led him out of the cave complex along a twisting passage, its walls and ceiling thick with a musky green algae. In star-lighted darkness they thrust him from the passage into a chilly night in the hands of an unseen man, a bulky figure in padded clothing. A voice behind Duncan whispered, Here he is, Ambertorm. Get him through. The guide spoke in an accent of gutturals. Follow me. He clipped a lead cord to Duncan's belt, adjusted the night goggles and turned away. Duncan felt the cord tug once, and they were off. Duncan recognized the use of the cord. 
It was not something to keep him close behind. He could see this Ambertorm clearly enough with the night goggles. No, the cord was to spill him quickly if they met danger. No need for a command. For a long time during the night they crisscrossed small ice-lined watercourses on a flatland. The light of Gamu's early moons penetrated the covering growth only occasionally. They emerged finally onto a low hill with a view of bushy wasteland all silvery with snow cover in the moonlight. Down into this they went. The bushes, about twice the height of the guide, arched over muddy animal passages little larger than the tunnels where they had begun this journey. It was warmer here, the warmth of a compost heap. Almost no light penetrated to a ground spongy with rotted vegetation. Duncan inhaled the fungal odors of decomposing plant life. The night goggles showed him a seemingly endless repetition of thick growth on both sides. The cord linking him to Ambertorm was a tenuous grip on an alien world. Ambertorm discouraged conversation. He said, Yes, when Duncan asked confirmation of the man's name. Then, Don't talk. The whole night was a disquieting traverse for Duncan. He did not like being thrown back into his own thoughts. Giddy prime memories persisted. This place was like nothing he remembered from his pre-Gola youth. He wondered how Ambertorm had learned the way through here and how he remembered it. One animal tunnel appeared much like another. In the steady, jogging pace, there was time for Duncan's thoughts to roam. Must I permit the sisterhood to use me? What do I owe them? And he thought of Teg, that last gallant stand to permit two of them to escape. I did the same for Paul and Jessica. It was a bond with Teg, and it touched Duncan with grief. Teg was loyal to the sisterhood. Did he buy my loyalty with that last brave act? Damn the Atreides! The night's exertions increased Duncan's familiarity with his new flesh. How young this body was. A small lurch of recollection, and he could see that last pre-Gola memory. He could feel the Sardica blade strike his head, a blinding explosion of pain and light. Knowledge of his certain death. And then, nothing until that moment with Teg in the Harkonnen no-globe. The gift of another life. Was it more than a gift, or something less? The Atreides were demanding another payment from him. For a time, just before dawn, Ambertorm led him at a sloshing run along a narrow stream whose icy chill penetrated the waterproof insulated boots of Duncan's Tleilaxu garments. The watercourse reflected bush-shadowed silver from the light of the planet's pre-dawn moon setting ahead of them. Daylight saw them come out into the larger, tree-shielded animal track and up the steep hill. This passage emerged onto a narrow, rocky ledge below a ridge top of saw-toothed boulders. Ambertorm led him behind a screen of dead brown bushes, their tops dirty with wind-blown snow. He released the cord from Duncan's belt. Directly in front of them was a shallow declivity in the rocks, not quite a cave, but Duncan saw that it would offer some protection unless they got a hard wind over the bushes behind them. There was no snow on the floor of the place. Ambertorm went to the back of the declivity and carefully removed a layer of icy dirt and several flat rocks, which concealed a small pit. He lifted a round black object from the pit and busied himself over it. Duncan squatted under the overhang and studied his guide. Ambertorm had a dished-in face with skin like dark brown leather. Yes, those could be the features of a face dancer. Deep creases cut into the skin at the edges of the man's brown eyes. 
Creases radiated from the sides of the thin mouth and lined the wide brow. They spread out beside the flat nose and deepened the cleft of a narrow chin. Creases of time all over his face. Appetizing odors began to arise from the black object in front of Ambertorm. We will eat here and wait a bit before we continue, Ambertorm said. He spoke old Gallic, but with that guttural accent, which Duncan had never heard before, an odd stress on adjacent vowels. Was Ambertorm from the scattering, or a Gamu native? There obviously had been many linguistic drifts since the dune days of Muad'Dib. For that matter, Duncan recognized that all of the people in the Gamu keep, including Teg and Lucilla, spoke a Gallic that had shifted from the one he had learned as a pre-Gola child. Ambitorm, Duncan said. Is that a Gamu name? You will call me Tormsa, the guide said. Is that a nickname? It is what you will call me. Why do those people back there call you Ambitorm? That was the name I gave them. But why would you? You lived under the Harkonnens, and you did not learn how to change your identity? Duncan fell silent. Was that it? Another disguise? Ambi- Tormsa had not changed his appearance. Tormsa. Was it a Tlelaxu name? The guide extended a steaming cup toward Duncan. A drink to restore you was- Drink it fast. It will keep you warm. Duncan closed both hands around the cup. Woes. Woes and Tormsa. Tleilaxu master and his face dancer companion. Duncan lifted the cup toward Tormsa in the ancient gesture of Atreides' battle comrades, then put it to his lips. Hot. But it warmed him as it went down. The drink had a faintly sweet flavor over some vegetable tang. He blew on it and drank it down as he saw Tormsa was doing. Odd that I should not suspect poison or some drug, Duncan thought. But this Tormsa and the others last night had something of the basher about them. The gesture to a battle comrade had come naturally. Why are you risking your life this way? Duncan asked. You know the basher and you have to ask. Duncan fell silent, abashed. Tormsa leaned forward and recovered Duncan's cup. Soon all evidence of their breakfast lay hidden under the concealing rocks and dirt. That food spoke of careful planning, Duncan thought. He turned and squatted on the cold ground. The mist was still out there beyond the screening bushes. Leafless limbs cut the view into odd bits and pieces. As he watched, the mist began to lift, revealing the blurred outlines of a city at the far edge of the valley. Tormsa squatted beside him. Very old city, he said. Harkonnen place. Look. He passed a small monoscope to Duncan. That is where we go tonight. Duncan put the monoscope to his left eye and tried to focus the oil lens. The controls felt unfamiliar, not at all like those he had learned as a pre-Gola youth or had been taught at the keep. He removed it from his eye and examined it. Ixion? he asked. No. We made it. Tormsa reached over and pointed out two tiny buttons raised above the black tube. Slow. Fast. Push left to cycle out. Right to cycle back. Again, Duncan lifted the scope to his eye. Who were the we who had made this thing? A touch of the fast button and the view leaped into his gaze. Tiny dots moved in the city. People. He increased the amplification. The people became small dolls. 
With them to give him scale, Duncan realized that the city at the valley's edge was immense, and farther away than he had thought. A single rectangular structure stood in the center of the city, its top lost in the clouds. Gigantic. Duncan knew this place now. The surroundings had changed, but that central structure lay fixed in his memory. How many of us vanished into that black hell hole and never returned? Nine hundred and fifty stories, Tomsa said, seeing where Duncan's gaze was directed. Forty-five kilometers long, thirty kilometers wide. Plasteel and armor plas, all of it. I know. Duncan lowered the scope and returned it to Tomsa. It was called Barony. Yes, I, Tormsa said. That's what they call it now, Duncan said. I have some different names for it. Duncan took a deep breath to put down the old hatreds. Those people were all dead. Only the building remained, and the memories. He scanned the city around that enormous structure. The place was a sprawling mass of warrens. Green spaces lay scattered throughout, each of them behind high walls, single residences with private parks, Teg had said. The monoscope had revealed guards walking the wall tops. Tormsa spat on the ground in front of him. Harkonnen place! They built to make people feel small, Duncan said. Tormsa nodded. Small. No power in you. The guide had become almost loquacious, Duncan thought. Occasionally, during the night, Duncan had defied the order for silence and tried to make conversation. What animals made these passages? It had seemed a logical question for people trotting along an obvious animal track, even the musty smell of beasts in it. Do not talk, Tormsa snapped. Later, Duncan asked why they could not get a vehicle of some sort and escape in that. Even a ground car would be preferable to this painful march across country, where one route felt much like another. Tormsa stopped them in a patch of moonlight and looked at Duncan as though he suspected his charge had suddenly become bereft of sense. Vehicles can follow. No one can follow us when we're on foot. Followers also must be on foot. Here they will be killed. They know. What a weird place. What a primitive place. In the shelter of the Bene Gesserit keep, Duncan had not realized the nature of the planet around him. Later in the no-globe, he had been removed from contact with the outside. He had pre-Gola and Gola memories, but how inadequate those were. When he thought about it now, he realized there had been clues. It was obvious that Gamu possessed rudimentary weather control, and Teg had said that the orbiting monitors that guarded the planet from attack were of the best. Everything for protection, damned little for comfort. It was like Arrakis in that respect. Rackus he corrected himself. Teg. Did the old man survive? A captive? What did it mean to be captured here in this age? It had meant brutal slavery in the old Harkonnen days. Bosmali and Lucilla. He glanced at Tormsa. Will we find Bosmali and Lucilla in the city? If they get through. Duncan glanced down at his clothing. Was it a sufficient disguise? A Tleilaxu master and companion. People would think the companion a face dancer, of course. Face dancers were dangerous. The baggy trousers were of some material Duncan had never before seen. It felt like wool to the hand, but he sensed that it was artificial. When he spat on it, spittle did not adhere, and the smell was not of wool. 
His fingers detected a uniformity of texture that no natural material could present. The long soft boots and watch cap were of the same fabric. The garments were loose and puffy except at the ankles. Not quilted, though. Insulated by some trick of manufacture that trapped dead air between the layers. The color was a mottled green and gray. Excellent camouflage here. Tormsa was dressed in similar garments. How long do we wait here? Duncan asked. Tormsa shook his head for silence. The guide was seated now, knees up, arms wrapped around his legs, head cradled against his knees, eyes looking outward over the valley. During the night's trip, Duncan had found the clothing remarkably comfortable. Except for that once in the water, his feet stayed warm, but not too warm. There was plenty of room in trousers, shirt, and jacket for his body to move easily. Nothing abraded his flesh. Who makes clothing such as this? Duncan asked. We made it, Tonsa growled. Be silent. This was no different than the pre-awakening days at the Sisterhood's Keep, Duncan thought. Tonsa was saying, no need for you to know. Presently, Tonsa stretched out his legs and straightened. He appeared to relax. He glanced at Duncan. Friends in the city, signal that there are searchers overhead. Thopters? Yes. Then what do we do? You must do what I do, and nothing else. You're just sitting there. For now. We will go down into the valley soon. But how? When you traverse such country as this, you become one of the animals that live here. Look at the tracks and see how they walk, and how they lie down for a rest. But can't the searchers tell the difference between... If the animals browse, you make the motions of browsing. If searchers come, you'll continue to do what it was you were doing, what any animal would do. Searchers will be high in the air. That is lucky for us. They cannot tell animal from human unless they come down. But won't they... They trust their machines and the motions they see. They are lazy. They fly high. That way the search goes faster. They trust their own intelligence to read their instruments and tell which is animal and which is human. So they'll just go by us if they think we're wild animals. If they doubt, they will scan us a second time. We must not change the pattern of movements after being scanned. It was a long speech for the usually taciturn Tormsa. He studied Duncan carefully now. You understand? How will I know when we're being scanned? Your gut will tingle. You will feel in your stomach the fizz of a drink that no man should swallow. Duncan nodded. Ixian scanners. Let it not alarm you, Tormsa said. Animals here are accustomed to it. Sometimes they may pause, but only for an instant, and then they go on as if nothing has happened, which for them is true. It is only for us that something evil may happen. Presently, Tormsa stood. We will go down into the valley now. Follow closely. Do exactly what I do and nothing else. Duncan fell into step behind his guide. Soon they were under the covering trees. Sometime during the night's passage, Duncan realized, he had begun to accept his place in the schemes of others. A new patience was taking over his awareness, and there was excitement goaded by curiosity. What kind of a universe had come out of the Atreides' times? Gamo, 
what a strange place Gidi Prime had become. Slowly, but distinctly, things were being revealed, and each new thing opened a view to more that could be learned. He could feel patterns taking shape. One day, he thought, there would be a single pattern, and then he would know why they had brought him back from the dead. Yes, it was a matter of opening doors, he thought. You opened one door and that let you into a place where there were other doors. You chose a door in this new place and examined what that revealed to you. There might be times when you were forced to try all of the doors, but the more doors you opened, the more certain you became of which door to open next. Finally, a door would open into a place you recognized. Then you would say, Ah, this explains everything. Searchers come, Tomsa said. We are browsing animals now. He reached up to a screening bush and tore down a small limb. Duncan did the same. I must rule with eye and claw, as the hawk among lesser birds. Atreides' assertion, reference BG Archives. At daybreak, Teg emerged from the concealing windbreaks beside a main road. The road was a wide, flat thoroughfare, beam-hardened and kept bare of plant life. Ten lanes, Teg estimated, suitable for both vehicle and foot traffic. There was mostly foot traffic on it at this hour. He had brushed most of the dust off his clothing and made sure there were no signs of rank on it. His grey hair was not as neat as he usually preferred, but he had only his fingers for a comb. Traffic on the road was headed toward the city of Yasai, many kilometres across the valley. The morning was cloudless, with a light breeze in his face moving toward the sea somewhere far behind him. During the night he had come to a delicate balance with his new awareness. Things flickered in his second vision. Knowledge of things around him before those things occurred, awareness of where he must put his foot in the next step. Behind this lay the reactive trigger that he knew could snap him into the blurring responses that flesh should not be able to accommodate. Reason could not explain the thing. He felt that he walked precariously along the cutting edge of a knife. Try as he might, he could not resolve what had happened to him under the tea probe. Was it akin to what a reverend mother experienced in the spice agony? but he sensed no accumulation of other memories out of his past. He did not think the sisters could do what he did. The doubled vision that told him what to anticipate from every movement within the range of his senses seemed a new kind of truth. Teg's mentor teachers had always assured him there was a form of living truth not susceptible to proof by the marshalling of ordinary facts. It was carried sometimes in fables and poetry and often went contrary to desires, so he had been told. The most difficult experience for a mentat to accept, they said. Teg had always reserved judgment on this pronouncement, but now he was forced to accept it. The tea probe had thrust him over a threshold into a new reality. He did not know why he chose this particular moment to emerge from hiding, except that it fitted him into an acceptable flow of human movement. Most of that movement on the road was composed of market gardeners towing panniers of vegetables and fruit. The panniers were supported behind them on cheap suspensers. Awareness of that food sent sharp hunger pains through him, but he forced himself to ignore them. With experience of more primitive planets in his long service to the Bene Gesserit, he saw this human activity as little different from that of farmers leading loaded animals. The foot traffic struck him as an odd mixture of ancient and modern. Farmers afoot, 
their produce floating behind them on perfectly ordinary technological devices. Except for the suspensors, this scene was very like a similar day in humankind's most ancient past. A draft animal was a draft animal, even if it came off an assembly line in an Ixian factory. Using his new second vision, Teg chose one of the farmers, a squat, dark-skinned man with heavy features and thickly calloused hands. The man walked with a defiant sense of independence. He towed eight large panniers piled with rough-skinned melons. The smell of them was a mouth-watering agony to Teg as he matched his stride to that of the farmer. Teg strode for a few minutes in silence, then ventured, Is this the best road to Yasai? It is a long way, the man said. He had a guttural voice, something cautious in it. Teg glanced back at the loaded panniers. The farmer looked sidelong at Teg. We go to a market centre. Others take our produce from there to Yasai. As they talked, Teg realised the farmer had guided, almost herded him close to the edge of the road. The man glanced back and jerked his head slightly, nodding forward. Three more farmers came up beside them and closed in around Teg and his companion until tall panniers concealed them from the rest of the traffic. Teg tensed. What were they planning? He sensed no menace, though. His doubled vision detected nothing violent in his immediate vicinity. A heavy vehicle sped past them and on ahead. Teg knew of its passage only by the smell of burned fuel, the wind that shook the panniers, the thrumming of a powerful engine and sudden tension in his companions. The high panniers completely hid the passing vehicle. We have been looking for you to protect you, Basha, the farmer beside him said. There are many who hunt you, but none of them with us along here. Teg shot a startled glance at the man. We served with you at Randatai, the farmer said. Teg swallowed. Randatai? He was a moment recalling it. Only a minor skirmish in his long history of conflicts and negotiations. I am sorry, but I do not know your names, Teg said. Be glad that you do not know our names. It is better that way. But I am grateful. This is a small repayment, which we are glad to make, Basha. I must get to Yasai. Teg said. It is dangerous there. It is dangerous everywhere. We guessed you would go to Yasai. Someone will come soon and you will ride in concealment. Ah, here he comes. We have not seen you here, Bashar. You have not been here. One of the other farmers took over the towing of his companion's load, pulling two strings of panniers while the farmer Teg had chosen hustled Teg under a tow rope and into a dark vehicle. Teg glimpsed shiny plasteel and plas as the vehicle slowed only briefly for the pickup. The door closed sharply behind him and he found himself on a soft upholstered seat, alone in the back of a ground car. The car picked up speed and soon was beyond the marching farmers. The windows around Teg had been darkened, giving him a dusky view of the passing scene. The driver was a shaded silhouette. This first chance to relax in warm comfort since his capture almost lured Teg into sleep. He sensed no threats. His body still ached from the demands he had made on it and from the agonies of the tea probe. He told himself, though, that he must stay awake and alert. The driver leaned sideways and spoke over his shoulder without turning. I've been hunting for you for two days, Basha. Some think you're already off planet. Two days? The stunner and whatever else they had done to him had left him unconscious for a long time. This only added to his hunger. He tried to make the flesh-embedded chrono play against his vision centers, and it only flickered as it had done each time he consulted it since the tea probe. 
His time sense and all references to it were changed. So some thought he had left Gamel. Teg did not ask who hunted him. Tleilaxu and people from the scattering had been in that attack and the subsequent torture. Teg glanced around his conveyance. It was one of those beautiful old pre-scattering ground cars, the marks of the finest Ixian manufacture on it. He had never before ridden in one, but he knew about them. Restorers picked them up to renew, rebuild, whatever they did that brought back the ancient sense of quality. Teg had been told that such vehicles often were found abandoned in strange places, in old broken-down buildings, in culverts, locked away in machinery warehouses, in farm fields. Again his driver leaned slightly sideways and spoke over one shoulder. Do you have an address where you wish to be taken in your Basha? Teg called up his memory of the contact points he had identified on his first tour of Gamu and gave one of these to the man. Do you know that place? It is mostly a meeting and drinking establishment, Basha. I hear they serve good food too, but anyone can enter if he has the price. Not knowing why he had made that particular choice, Teg said, We will chance it. He did not think it necessary to tell the driver that there were private dining rooms at the address. The mention of food brought back sharp hunger cramps. Teg's arms began to tremble and he was several minutes restoring calmness. Last night's activities had almost drained him, he realized. He sent a searching gaze around the car's interior, wondering if there might be food or drink concealed here. The car's restoration had been accomplished with loving care, but he saw no hidden compartments. Such cars were not all that rare in some quarters, he knew, but all of them spoke of wealth. Who owned this one? Not the driver, certainly. That one had all the signs of a hired professional, but if a message had been sent to bring this car, then others knew of Teg's location. Will we be stopped and searched? Teg asked. Not this car, Basha. The Planetary Bank of Gamu owns it. Teg absorbed this silently. That bank had been one of his contact points. He had studied key branches carefully on his inspection tour. This memory drew him back into his responsibilities as guardian of the Gola. My companions, Teg ventured. Are they? Others have that in hand, Basha. I cannot say. Can word be taken to? When it is safe, Basha. Of course. Teg sank back into the cushions and studied his surroundings. These ground cars had been built with much plas and almost indestructible plasteel. It was other things that went sour with age. Upholstery, headliners, the electronics, the suspensor installations, the ablative liners of the turbofan ducts, and the adhesives deteriorated no matter what you did to preserve them. The restorers had made this one look as though it had just been cranked out of the factory, all subdued glowing in the metals, upholstery that moulded itself to him with a faint sound of crinkling, and the smell, that indefinable aroma of newness, a mixture of polish and fine fabrics with just a hint of ozone bite underneath from the smoothly working electronics. Nowhere in it, though, was there the smell of food. How long to your sigh? Teg asked. Another half hour, Basha. Is there a problem that requires more speed? I don't want to attract... I am very hungry. The driver glanced left and right. There were no more farmers around them here. The roadway was almost empty except for two heavy transport pods with their tractors holding to the right verge and a large lorry hauling a towering automatic fruit picker. It is dangerous to delay for long, the driver said, but I know a place where I think I can at least get you a quick bowl of soup. Anything would be welcome. I have not eaten for two days and there has been much activity.
They came to a crossroads, and the driver turned left onto a narrow track through tall, evenly spaced conifers. Presently he turned onto a one-lane drive through the trees. The low building at the end of this track was built of dark stones and had a black plaza roof. The windows were narrow and glistened with protective burner nozzles. The driver said, Just a minute, sir. He got out, and Teg had his first look at the man's face. Extremely thin, with a long nose and tiny mouth. The visible tracery of surgical reconstruction laced his cheeks. The eyes glowed silver, obviously artificial. He turned away and went into the house. When he returned, he opened Teg's door. Please be quick, sir. The one inside is heating suit for you. I've said you were a banker. No need to pay. The ground was icy crisp underfoot. Teg had to stoop slightly for the doorway. He entered a dark hallway, wood-panelled and with a well-lighted room at the end. The smell of food there drew him like a magnet. His arms were trembling once more. A small table had been set beside a window with a view of an enclosed and covered garden. Bushes heavy with red flowers almost concealed the stone wall that defined the garden. Yellow hot plas gleamed over the space, bathing it in a summery artificial light. Teg sank gratefully into the single chair at the table. White linen, he saw, with an embossed edge. A single soup spoon. A door creaked at his right, and a squat figure entered carrying a bowl from which steam arose. The man hesitated when he saw Teg, then brought the bowl to the table and placed it in front of Teg. Alerted by that hesitation, Teg forced himself to ignore the tempting aroma drifting to his nostrils and concentrated instead on his companion. It is good soup, sir. I made it myself. An artificial voice. Teg saw the scars at the sides of the jaw. There was the look of an ancient mechanical about this man, an almost necklace head attached to thick shoulders, arms that seemed oddly jointed at both shoulders and elbows, legs that appeared to swing only from the hips. He stood motionless now, but he had entered here with a slightly jerking sway that said he was mostly replacement artificials. The look of suffering in his eyes could not be avoided. I know I'm not pretty, sir, the man rasped. I was ruined in the Alajori explosion. Teg had no idea what the Alajori explosion might have been, but it obviously was presumed he knew. Ruined, however, was an interesting accusation against fate. I was wondering if I knew you, Teg said. No one here knows anyone else, the man said. Eat your soup. He pointed upward at the coiled tip of quiescent snooper, the glow of its lights revealing that it read its surroundings and found no poison. The food is safe here. Teg looked at the dark brown liquid in his bowl. Lumps of solid meat were visible in it. He reached for the spoon. His trembling hand made two attempts before grasping the spoon, and even then he sloshed most of the liquid out of the spoon before he could lift it a millimeter. A steadying hand gripped Teg's wrist, and the artificial voice spoke softly in Teg's ear. I do not know what they did to you, Basha, but no one will harm you here without crossing my dead body. You know me? Many would die for you, Basha. My son lives because of you. Teg allowed himself to be helped. It was all he could do to swallow the first spoonful. The liquid was rich, hot, and soothing. His hand steadied presently, and he nodded to the man to release the wrist. More, sir? Teg realized then that he had emptied the bowl. It was tempting to say yes, but the driver had said to make haste. Thank you, but I must go. You have not been here, 
the man said. When they were once more back on the main road, Teg sat back against the ground car's cushions and reflected on the curious, echoing quality of what the ruined man had said. The same words the farmer had used, you have not been here. It had the feeling of a common response, and it said something about changes in Gamo since Teg had surveyed the place. They entered the outskirts of Yasai presently, and Teg wondered if he should attempt to disguise. The ruined man had recognized him quickly. Where do the honored Matres hunt for me now? Teg asked. Everywhere, Basha. We cannot guarantee your safety, but steps are being taken. I will make it known where I have delivered you. Do they say why they hunt me? They never explain, Basha. How long have they been on Gamo? Too long, sir. Since I was a child, and I was a Bolton at Randatai. A hundred years at least, Teg thought. Time to gather many forces into their hands, if Taraza's fears were to be credited. Teg credited them. Trust no one those whores can influence, Taraza had said. Teg sensed no threat to him in his present position, though. He could only absorb the secrecy that obviously enclosed him now. He did not press for more details. They were well into Yasai, and he glimpsed the black bulk of the ancient Harkonnen seat of Barony through occasional gaps between the walls that enclosed the great private residences. The car turned onto a street of small commercial establishments, cheap buildings constructed for the most part of salvaged materials that displayed their origins in poor fits and unmatched colours. Gaudy signs advised that the wares inside were the finest, the repair services better than those elsewhere. It was not that Yasai had deteriorated or even gone to seed, Teg thought. Growth here had been diverted into something worse than ugly. Someone had chosen to make this place repellent. That was the key to most of what he saw in the city. Time had not stopped here. It had retreated. This was no modern city full of bright transport pods and insulated usiform buildings. This was random jumbles, ancient structures joined to ancient structures, some built to individual tastes and some obviously designed with some long-gone necessity in mind. Everything about Yasai was joined in a proximity whose disarray just managed to avoid chaos. What saved it, Teg knew, was the old pattern of thoroughfares along which this hodgepodge had been assembled. Chaos was held at bay, although what pattern there was in the streets conformed to no master plan. Streets met and crossed at odd angles, seldom squared. Seen from the air, the place was a crazy quilt with only the giant black rectangle of ancient barony to speak of an organizing plan. The rest of it was architectural rebellion. Teg saw suddenly that this place was a lie, plastered over with other lies based on previous lies, and such a mad mix-up that they might never dig through to a usable truth. All of Gamu was that way. Where could such insanity have had its beginnings? Was it the Harkonnens doing? We are here, sir. The driver drew up to the curb in front of a windowless building face, all flat black plasteel and with a single ground-level door. No salvaged material in this construction. Teg recognized the place, the bolt hole he had chosen. Unidentified things flickered in Teg's second vision, but he sensed no immediate menace. The driver opened Teg's door and stood to one side. Not much activity here at this hour, sir. I will get inside quickly. Without a backward glance, Teg darted across the narrow walk and into the building, a small brightly lighted foyer of polished white plas, and only banks of commies to greet him. He ducked into a lift tube and punched the remembered coordinates.
This tube, he knew, angled upward through the building to the 57th floor rear, where there were some windows. He remembered a private dining room of dark reds and heavy brown furnishings, a hard-eyed female with the obvious signs of Bene Gesserit training, but no reverend mother. The tube disgorged him into the remembered room, but there was no one to receive him. Teg glanced around at the solid brown furnishings. Four windows along the far wall were concealed behind thick, maroon draperies. Teg knew he had been seen. He waited patiently, using his newly learned doubling vision to anticipate trouble. There was no indication of attack. He took up a position to one side of the tube outlet and glanced around him once more. Teg had a theory about the relationship between rooms and their windows, the number of windows, their placement, their size, height from the floor, relationship of room size to window size, the elevation of the room, windows curtained or draped, and all of this meant at interpreted against knowledge of the uses to which a room was put. Rooms could be fitted to a kind of pecking order, defined with extreme sophistication. Emergency uses might throw such distinctions out the window, but they otherwise were quite reliable. Lack of windows in an above-ground room conveyed a particular message. If humans occupied such a room, it did not necessarily mean secrecy was the main goal. He had seen unmistakable signs in scholastic settings that windowless schoolrooms were both a retreat from the exterior world and a strong statement of dislike for children. This room, however, presented something different. Conditional secrecy, plus the need to keep occasional watch on that exterior world. Protective secrecy when required. His opinion was reinforced when he crossed the room and twitched one of the draperies aside. The windows were tripled armor plaz. So, keeping watch on that world outside might draw attack. That was the opinion of whoever had ordered the room protected this way. Once more, Teg twitched the drapery aside. He glanced at the corner glazing. Prismatic reflectors there amplified the view along the adjacent wall to both sides and from roof to ground. Well, his previous visit had not given him time for this closer examination, but now he made a more positive assessment. A very interesting room. Teg dropped the drapery and turned just in time to see a tall man enter from the tube slot. Teg's doubled vision provided a firm prediction on the stranger. This man brought concealed danger. The newcomer was plainly military. The way he carried himself. The quick eye for details that only a trained and experienced officer would observe. And there was something else in his manner that made Teg stiffen. This was a betrayer. A mercenary available to the highest bidder. Damned nasty the way they treated you, the man greeted Teg. The voice was a deep baritone, with an unconscious assumption of personal power in it. The accent was one Teg had never before heard. This was someone from the scattering, a basha or equivalent, Teg estimated. Still, there was no indication of immediate attack. When Teg did not answer, the man said, Oh, sorry, I am Muzafar, Jafar Muzafar. Regional commander for the forces of Dur. Teg had never heard of the forces of Dur. Questions crowded Teg's mind, but he kept them to himself. Anything he said here might betray weakness. Where were the people who had met him here before? Why did I choose this place? The decision had been made with such inner assurance. Place be comfortable, Muzavar said, indicating a small divan with a low serving table in front of it. I assure you that none of what has happened to you was of my doing. 
tried to put a stop to it when I heard, but you'd already left the scene. Tag heard the other thing in this Muzaffar's voice now, caution bordering on fear. So this man had either heard about or seen the shack and the clearing. Damned clever of you, Muzaffar said, having your attack force Wait until your captors were concentrating on trying to get information out of you. Did they learn anything? Teg shook his head silently from side to side. He felt on the edge of being ignited into a blurred response to attack, yet he sensed no immediate violence here. What were these lost ones doing? But Muzaffar and his people had made a wrong assessment of what had happened in the room of the tea probe. That was clear. Please, be seated, Muzaffar said. Teg took the proffered seat on the divan. Muzaffar sat in a deep chair facing Teg at a slight angle on the other side of the serving table. There was a crouching sense of alertness in Muzaffar. He was prepared for violence. Teg studied the man with interest. Muzaffar had revealed no real rank, only commander. Tall fellow with a wide, ruddy face and a big nose. The eyes were grey-green and had the trick of focusing just behind Teg's right shoulder when either of them spoke. Teg had known a spy once who did that. Well, well, Muzaffar said, I've read and heard a great deal about you since coming here. Teg continued to study him silently. Muzaffar's hair had been cropped close and there was a purple scar about three millimetres long across the scalp line above the left eye. He wore an open bush jacket of light green and matching trousers, not quite a uniform, but there was a neatness about him that spoke of customary spit and polish. The shoes attested to this. Teg thought he probably could see his own reflection in their light brown surfaces if he bent close. Never expected to meet you personally, of course, Muzaffar said. Consider it a great honor. I know very little about you except that you command a force from the scattering, Teg said. Hmph. Not much to know, really. Once more, hunger pangs gripped Teg. His gaze went to the button beside the tube slot, which he remembered would summon a waiter. This was a place where humans did the work usually assigned to automata, an excuse for keeping a large force assembled at the ready. Misinterpreting Teg's interest in the tube slot, Muzaffar said, Please don't think of leaving. Having my own medic come in to take a look at you. Shouldn't be but a moment. Appreciate it if you'd wait quietly until he arrives. I was merely thinking of placing an order for some food, Teg said. Advise you to wait until the doctor's had his look-see. Stunners leave some nasty after-effects. So you know about that. Know about the whole damned fiasco. You and your man Bursmali are a force to be reckoned with. Before Teg could respond, the tube slot disgorged a tall man in a jacketed red single suit, a man so bone-skinny that his clothing gaped and flapped about him. The diamond tattoo of a souk doctor had been burned into his high forehead, but the mark was orange and not the customary black. The doctor's eyes were concealed by a glistening orange cover that hid their true colour. An addict of some kind? Teg wondered. There was no smell of the familiar narcotics around him, not even melange. There was a tart smell, though, almost like some fruit. There you are, Solitz, Muzaffar said. He gestured at Teg. Give him a good scan. 
Stunner hit him day before yesterday. Solitz produced a recognizable souk scanner, compact and fitting into one hand. Its probe field produced a low hum. Oh, you're a souk doctor, Teg said, looking pointedly at the orange brand on the forehead. Yes, Basha. My training and conditioning are the finest in our ancient tradition. I've never seen the identifying mark in that color, Teg said. The doctor passed his scanner around Teg's head. The color of the tattoo makes no difference, Basha. What is behind it is all that matters. He lowered the scanner to Teg's shoulders, then down across the body. Teg waited for the humming to stop. The doctor stood back and addressed Muzavar. He is quite fit, Field Marshal. Remarkably fit, considering his age, but he desperately needs sustenance. Yes, well, that's fine then, Solitz. Take care of that. The Bashar is our guest. I will order a meal suited to his needs, Solitz said. Eat it slowly, Bashar. Solitz did a smart about face that set his jacket and trousers flapping. The tube slot swallowed him. Field Marshal? Teg asked. A revival of ancient titles in the door, Muzaffar said. The door? Teg ventured. Stupid of me! Muzaffar produced a small case from a side pocket of his jacket and extracted a thin folder. Teg recognized a holostat similar to one he had carried himself during his long service, pictures of home and family. Muzaffar placed the holostat on the table between them and tapped the control button. The full-color image of a bushy green expanse of jungle came alive in miniature above the tabletop. Home, Muzaffar said. Frame bush in the center there. A finger indicated a place in the projection. First one that ever obeyed me. People laughed at me for choosing the first one that way and sticking with it. Teg stared at the projection, aware of a deep sadness in Muzaffar's voice. The indicated bush was a spindly grouping of thin frames with bright blue bulbs dangling from the tips. Frame bush? Rather thin thing, I know, Muzaffar said, removing his pointing finger from the projection. Not secure at all. Had to defend myself a few times in the first months with it. Grew rather fond of it, though. They respond to that, you know. It's the best home in all the deep valleys now, by the eternal rock of Dur. Muzaffar stared at Teg's puzzled expression. Damn, you don't have frame bushes, of course. You must forgive my crashing ignorance. We've a great deal to teach each other, I think. You called that home, Teg said. Oh, yes. With proper direction, once they learn to obey, of course, a frame bush will grow itself into a magnificent residence. It only takes four or five standards. Standards, Teg thought. So the Lost Ones still used the standard year. The tube slot hissed and a young woman in a blue serving gown backed into the room towing a suspenser-boyed hot pod, which she positioned near the table in front of Teg. Her clothing was of the type Teg had seen during his original inspection, but the pleasantly round face she turned to him was unfamiliar. Her scalp had been depilated, leaving an expanse of prominent veins. Her eyes were watery blue and there was something cowed in her posture. She opened the hot pod and the spicy odors of the food wafted across Teg's nostrils. Teg was alerted, but he sensed no immediate threat. He could see himself eating the food without ill effect. The young woman put a row of dishes on the table in front of him 
and arranged the eating implements neatly at one side. I've no snooper, but I'll taste the foods if you wish, Muzaffar said. Not necessary, Teg said. He knew this would raise questions, but felt they would suspect him of being a truth-sayer. Teg's gaze locked onto the food. Without any conscious decision, he leaned forward and began eating. Familiar with Mentat hunger, he was surprised at his own reactions. Using the brain in Mentat mode consumed calories at an alarming rate, but this was a new necessity driving him. He felt his own survival controlling his actions. This hunger went beyond anything of previous experience. The soup he had eaten with some caution at the house of the ruined man had not aroused such a demanding reaction. The souk doctor chose correctly, Teg thought. This food had been selected directly out of the scanner's summation. The young woman kept bringing more dishes from hot pods ordered via the tube slot. Teg had to get up in the middle of the meal and relieve himself in an adjoining washroom, conscious there of the hidden commies that were keeping him under surveillance. He knew by his physical reactions that his digestive system had speeded up to a new level of bodily necessity. When he returned to the table, he felt just as hungry as though he had not eaten. The serving woman began to show signs of surprise, and then alarm. Still, she kept bringing more food at his demand. Muzaffar watched with growing amazement but said nothing. Teg felt the supportive replacement of the food, the precise caloric adjustment that the souk doctor had ordered. They obviously had not thought about quantity, though. The girl obeyed his demands in a kind of walking shock. Muzaffar spoke finally. Must I say, I've never before seen anyone eat that much at one sitting. Can't see how you do it, nor why. Teg sat back, satisfied at last, knowing he had aroused questions that could not be answered truthfully. A mentat thing, Teg lied. I've been through a very strenuous time. Amazing, Muzaffar said. He arose. When Teg started to stand, Muzaffar gestured for him to remain. No need. We've prepared quarters for you right next door. Safer not to move you yet. The young woman departed with the empty hot pods. Teg studied Muzaffar. Something had changed during the meal. Muzaffar watched him with a coldly measuring stare. You've an implanted communicator, Teg said. You have received new orders. It would not be advisable for your friends to attack this place, Muzaffar said. You think that's my plan? What is your plan, Bashar? Teg smiled. Very well. Muzaffar's gaze went out of focus as he listened to his communicator. When he once more concentrated on Teg, his gaze had the look of a predator. Teg felt himself buffeted by that gaze, recognizing that someone else was coming to this room. The field marshal thought of this new development as something extremely dangerous to his dinner guest, but Teg saw nothing that could defeat his new abilities. You think I am your prisoner, Teg said. By the eternal rock, Bashar, you are not what I expected. The honored Matre who is coming. What does she expect? Ted asked. Bashar, I warn you, do not take that tone with her. You have not the slightest concept of what is about to happen to you. An honored matre is about to happen to me, Teg said. And I wish you well of her. Muzaffar pivoted and left via the tube slot. Teg stared after him. He could see the flickering of second vision 
like a light blinking around the tube slot. The Andmatre was near but not yet ready to enter this room. First, she would consult with Muzaffar. The field marshal would not be able to tell this dangerous female anything really important. Memory never recaptures reality. Memory reconstructs. All reconstructions change the original, becoming external frames of reference that inevitably fall short. Bentat Handbook Lucilla and Basmali entered Yasai from the south into a lower-class quarter with widely spaced streetlights. It lacked only an hour of midnight, and yet people thronged the streets in this quarter. Some walked quietly, some chatted with drug-enhanced vigour, some only watched expectantly. They wadded up at the corners and held Lucilla's fascinated attention as she passed. Busmali urged her to walk faster, an eager customer anxious to get her alone. Lucilla kept her covert attention on the people. What did they do here? Those men waiting in the doorway, for what did they wait? Workers in heavy aprons emerged from a wide passage as Lucilla and Busmali passed. There was a thick smell of rank sewage and perspiration about them. The workers, almost equally divided between male and female, were tall, heavy-bodied, and with thick arms. Lucilla could not imagine what their occupation might be, but they were of a single type, and they made her realize how little she knew of Gamel. The workers hawked and spat into the gutter as they emerged into the night. Ridding themselves of some contaminant? Busmari put his mouth close to Lucilla's ear and whispered, Those workers are the Bordanos. She risked a glance back at them where they walked toward a side street. Bordanos? Ah, yes. People trained and bred to work the compression machinery that harnessed sewer gases. They had been bred to remove the sense of smell, and the musculature of shoulders and arms had been increased. Rosmali guided her around a corner and out of sight of the Bordanos. Five children emerged from a dark doorway beside them and wheeled into line following Lucilla and Bosmali. Lucilla noted their hands clutching small objects. They followed with a strange intensity. Abruptly, Bosmali stopped and turned. The children also stopped and stared at him. It was clear to Lucilla that the children were prepared for some violence. Bosmali clasped both hands in front of him and bowed to the children. He said, Guldur. When Bosmali resumed guiding her down the street, the children no longer followed. They would have stoned us he said. Why? They are children of a sect that follows Guldur, the local name for the tyrant. Lucilla looked back, but the children were no longer in sight, and they had set off in search of another victim. Bosmali guided her around another corner. Now they were in a street crowded with small merchants selling their wares from wheeled stands, food, clothing, small tools, and knives. A sing-song of shouts filled the air as the merchants tried to attract buyers. Their voices had that end of the workday lift, a false brilliance composed of the hope that old dreams would be fulfilled, yet coloured by the knowledge that life would not change for them. It occurred to Lucilla that the people of these streets pursued a fleeting dream, that the fulfilment they sought was not the thing itself, but a myth they had been conditioned to seek, the way racing animals were trained to chase after the whirling bait on the endless oval of the racetrack. In the street directly ahead of them, a burly figure in a thickly padded coat was engaged in loud-voiced argument with a merchant who offered a string bag filled with the dark red bulbs of a sweetly acid fruit. The fruit smell was thick all around them. The merchant complained, You would steal the food from the mouths of my children! 
The bulky figure spoke in a piping voice, the accent chillingly familiar to Lucilla. I too have children. Lucilla controlled herself with an effort. When they were clear of the market street, she whispered to Bursmali, That man in the heavy coat back there, a Tlelaxu master. Couldn't be, Bursmali protested. Too tall. Two of them, one on the shoulders of the other. You're sure? I'm sure. I've seen others like that since we arrived, but I didn't suspect. Many searchers are in these streets, she said. Lucilla found that she did not much care for the everyday life of the gutter inhabitants of this gutter planet. She no longer trusted the explanation for bringing the Gola here. Of all those planets on which the precious Gola could have been raised, why had the sisterhood chosen this one? Or was the Gola truly precious? Could it be that he was merely bait? Almost blocking the narrow mouth of an alley beside them was a man plying a tall device of whirling lights. Live! he shouted. Live! Lucilla slowed her pace to watch a passerby step into the alleyway and pass a coin to the proprietor, then lean into a concave basin made brilliant by the lights. The proprietor stared back at Lucilla. She saw a man with a narrow, dark face, the face of a Caledonian primitive on a body only slightly taller than that of a Tleilaxu master. There had been a look of contempt on his brooding face as he took the customer's money. The customer lifted his face from the basin with a shudder and then left the alley, staggering slightly, his eyes glazed. Lucilla recognized the device. Users called it a hypnobong, and it was outlawed on all of the more civilized worlds. Bosmali hurried her out of the view of the brooding hypnobong proprietor. They came to a wider side street with a corner doorway set into the building across from them. Foot traffic all around, not a vehicle in sight. A tall man sat on the first step in the corner doorway, his knees drawn up close to his chin. His long arms were wrapped around his knees, the thin-fingered hands clasped tightly together. He wore a wide-brimmed black hat that shaded his face from the street lights, but twin gleams from the shadows under that brim told Lucilla that this was no kind of human she had ever before encountered. This was something about which the Bene Gesserit had only speculated. Vosmali waited until they were well away from the seated figure before satisfying her curiosity. Futa, he whispered. That's what they call themselves. They've only recently been seen here on Gamo. A Tleilaxu experiment, Lucilla guessed, and she thought, a mistake that has returned from the scattering. What are they doing here? she asked. Trading colony, so the natives here tell us. Don't you believe it? Those are hunting animals that have been crossed with humans. Ah, here we are, Bosmali said. He guided Lucilla through a narrow doorway into a dimly lighted eating establishment. This was part of their disguise, Lucilla knew. Do what others in this quarter did. But she did not relish eating in this place, not with what she could interpret from the smells. The place had been crowded, but it was emptying as they entered. This commercial was recommended highly, Bosmali said as they seated themselves in a mecca slot and waited for the menu to be projected. Lucilla watched the departing customers. Night workers from nearby factories and offices, she guessed. They appeared anxious in their hurry, perhaps fearful of what might be done to them if they were tardy. How insulated she had been at the keep, she thought. She did not like what she was learning of Gamel. What a scruffy place this commercial was. The stools at the counter to her right had been scarred and chipped, 
The tabletop in front of her had been scored and rubbed with gritty cleaners until it no longer could be kept clean by the vacuum sweep whose nozzle she could see near her left elbow. There was no sign of even the cheapest sonic to maintain cleanliness. Food and other evidence of deterioration had accumulated in the table's scratches. Lucilla shuddered. She could not avoid the feeling that it had been a mistake to separate from the gola. The menu had been projected, she saw, and Bersmali already was scanning it. I will order for you, he said. Bersmali's way of saying he did not want her to make a mistake by ordering something a woman of the Hormu might avoid. It galled her to feel dependent. She was a reverend mother. She was trained to take command in any situation, mistress of her own destiny. How tiring all of this was. She gestured at the dirty window on her left where people could be seen passing on the narrow street. I am losing business while we dally, Scar. There, that was in character. Bosmali almost sighed. At last, he thought. She had begun to function once more as a reverend mother. He could not understand her abstracted attitude, the way she looked at the city and its people. Two milky drinks slid from the slot onto the table. Basmali drank his in one swallow. Lucilla tested her drink on the tip of her tongue, sorting the contents, an imitation caffeate diluted with a nut-flavoured juice. Basmali gestured upward with his chin for her to drink it quickly. She obeyed, concealing a grimace at the chemical flavours. Basmali's attention was on something over her right shoulder, but she dared not turn. That would be out of character. Come! He placed a coin on the table and hurried her out into the street. He smiled the smile of an eager customer, but there was weariness in his eyes. The tempo of the streets had changed. There were fewer people. The shadowy doors conveyed a deeper sense of menace. Lucilla reminded herself that she was supposed to represent a powerful guild whose members were immune to the common violence of the gutter. The few people on the street did make way for her, eyeing the dragons of her robe with every appearance of awe. Vasmali stopped at a doorway. It was like the others along this street, set back slightly from the walkway, so tall that it appeared narrower than it actually was. An old-fashioned security beam guarded the entrance. None of the newer systems had penetrated to the slum, apparently. The streets themselves were testimony to that, designed for ground cars. She doubted that there was a roof pad in the entire area. No sign of flitters or thopters could be heard or seen. There was music, though a faint susurration reminiscent of Semuta. Something new in Semuta addiction? This would certainly be an area where addicts would go to ground. Lucilla looked up at the face of the building as Bosmali moved ahead of her and made their presence known by breaking the doorway beam. There were no windows in the building's face, only the faint glitterings of surface eyes here and there in the dull sheen of ancient plasteel. They were old-fashioned commies, she noted, much bigger than modern ones. A door deep in the shadows swung inward on silent hinges. This way. Bosmali reached back and urged her forward with a hand on her elbow. They entered a dimly lighted hallway that smelled of exotic foods and bitter essences. She was a moment identifying some of the things that assailed her nostrils. Melange. She caught the unmistakable cinnamon ripeness. And yes, Samuta. She identified burned rice, Higgert salts, Someone was masking another kind of cooking. There were explosives being made here. 
She thought of warning Bosmari, but reconsidered. It was not necessary for him to know, and there might be ears in this confined space to hear whatever she said. Bosmari led the way up a shadowy flight of stairs with a dim glow strip along the slanting baseboard. At the top he found a hidden switch concealed behind a patch in the patched and repatched wall. There was no sound when he pushed the switch, but Lucilla felt a change in the movement all around them. Silence. It was a new kind of silence in her experience. A crouching preparation for flight or violence. It was cold in the stairwell and she shivered, but not from the chill. Footsteps sounded beyond the doorway beside the patch-masked switch. A grey-haired hag in a yellow smock opened the door and peered up at them past her straggling eyebrows. It's you, she said, her voice wavering. She stood aside for them to enter. Lucilla glanced swiftly around the room as she heard the door close behind them. It was a room the unobservant might think shabby, but that was superficial. Underneath, it was quality. The shabbiness was another mask, partly a matter of this place having been fitted to a particularly demanding person. This goes here and nowhere else. That goes over there, and it stays there. The furnishings and bric-a-brac looked a little worn, but someone here did not object to that. The room felt better this way. It was that kind of room. Who possessed this room? The old woman? She was making her painful way toward a door on their left. We are not to be disturbed until dawn, Basmali said. The old woman stopped and turned. Lucilla studied her. Was this another who shammed advanced age? No, the age was real. Every motion was diffused by unsteadiness, a trembling of the neck, a failure of the body that betrayed her in ways she could not prevent. Even if it's somebody important, the old woman asked in her wavering voice. The eyes twitched when she spoke. Her mouth moved only minimally to emit the necessary sounds, spacing out her words as though she drew them from somewhere deep within. Her shoulders, curved from years of bending at some fixed work, would not straighten enough for her to look Bursmali in the eyes. She peered upward past her brows instead, an oddly furtive posture. What important person are you expecting? Bursmali asked. The old woman shuddered and appeared to take a long time understanding. Important people come here, she said. Lucilla recognized the body signals and blurted it because Bursmali must know. She's from Rakis. The old woman's curious upward gaze locked on Lucilla. The ancient voice said, I was a priestess, Hormo lady. Of course, she's from Rakis, Basmali said. His tone warned her not to question. I would not harm you, the hag whined. Do you still serve the divided god? Again there was that long delay for the old woman to respond. Many serve the great Guldur, she said. Lucilla pursed her lips and once more scanned the room. The old woman had been reduced greatly in importance. I am glad I do not have to kill you, Lucilla said. The old woman's jaw drooped open in a parody of surprise, while spittle dripped from her lips. This was a descendant of Fremen? Lucilla let her revulsion come out in a long shudder. This mendicant bit of flotsam had been shaped from a people who walked tall and proud, a people who died bravely. This one would die whining. Please trust me, the hag whined and fled the room. Why did you do that? Basmali demanded. These are the ones who will get us to Rakis. 
She merely looked at him, recognizing the fear in his question. It was fear for her. But I did not imprint him back there, she thought. With a sense of shock, she realized that Bursmali had recognized hate in her. I hate them, she thought. I hate the people of this planet. That was a dangerous emotion for a reverend mother. Still it burned in her. This planet had changed her in a way she did not want. She did not want the realization that such things could be. Intellectual understanding was one thing, experience was another. Damn them! But they already were damned. Her chest pained her. Frustration! There was no escaping this new awareness. What had happened to these people? People? The shells were here, but they no longer could be called fully alive. Dangerous, though. Supremely dangerous. We must rest while we can, Bosmali said. I do not have to earn my money, she demanded. Bosmali paled. What we did was necessary. We were lucky, and were not stopped. But it could have happened. And this place is safe? As safe as I can make it. Everyone here has been screened by me or by my people. Lucilla found a long couch that smelled of old perfumes and composed herself there to scour her emotions of the dangerous hate. Where hate entered, love might follow. She heard Bursmali stretching out to rest on cushions against a nearby wall. Soon he was breathing deeply, but sleep evaded Lucilla. She kept sensing crowds of memories, things thrust forward by the others who shared her inner storerooms of thinking. Abruptly, inner vision gave her a glimpse of a street and faces, people moving in bright sunlight. It took a moment for her to realize that she saw all of this from a peculiar angle, that she was being cradled in someone's arms. She knew then that this was one of her own personal memories. She could place the one who held her, feel the warm heartbeat next to a warm cheek. Lucilla tasted the salt of her own tears. She realized then that Gamu had touched her more deeply than any experience since her first days in the Bene Gesserit schools. Concealed behind strong barriers, the heart becomes ice. Darwi Adred, Argument in Council It was a group filled with fierce tensions. Teraza, wearing secret mail under her robe and mindful of the other precautions she had taken, Odrade, certain that there could be violence and consequently wary, Shiana, thoroughly briefed on the probabilities here and shielded behind three security mothers who moved with her like fleshly armour, Waff, worried that his reason might have been clouded by some mysterious Bene Gesserit artifice, the false Tuak, giving every evidence that he was about to erupt in rage, and nine of Tuak's Rakian counsellors, each angrily engaged in seeking ascendancy for self or family. In addition, five guardian acolytes, bred and trained by the Sisterhood for Physical Violence, stayed close to Teraza. Waff moved with an equal number of new face dancers. They had convened in the penthouse atop the Dar es Balat Museum. It was a long room with a wall of plaz facing west across a roof garden of lacy greenery. The interior was furnished with soft divans and was decorated with artful displays from the tyrant's no-room. Odrade had argued against, including Shiana, but Teraza remained adamant. The girl's effect on Waff and some of the priesthood represented an overwhelming advantage for the Bene Gesserit. There were Dolben screens over the long wall of windows to keep out the worst glare of a westering sun. 
that the room faced west said something to Adrade. The windows looked into the land of gloaming, where Shai Khulud took his repose. It was a room focused on the past, on death. She admired the dolbans in front of her. They were flat, black slats, ten molecules wide, and rotating in a transparent, liquid medium. Set automatically, the best Ixian dolbans admitted a predetermined level of light without much diminishing the view. Artists and antique dealers preferred them to polarizing systems, Odrade knew, because they admitted a full spectrum of available light. Their installation spoke of the uses to which this room was put, a display case for the best of the god-emperor's horde. Yes, there was a gown that had been worn by his intended bride. The priestly counselors were arguing fiercely among themselves at one end of the room, ignoring the false Turk. Teraza stood nearby, listening. Her expression said she thought the priests fools. Waff stood with his face-dancer entourage near the wide entrance door. His attention shifted from Shiana to Odrade to Teraza, and only occasionally to the arguing priests. Every movement Waff made betrayed his uncertainties. Would the Bene Gesserit really support him? Could they, together, override Rakian opposition by peaceful means? Shiana and her shielding escort came to stand beside Odrade. The girl still showed stringy muscles, Odrade observed, but she was filling out, and the muscles had taken on a recognizable Bene Gesserit definition. The high planes of her cheekbones had grown softer under that olive skin, the brown eyes more liquid, but there were still red sunstreaks in her brown hair. The attention she spared for the arguing priests said she was assessing what had been revealed to her in the briefing. Will they really fight? she whispered. Listen to them, Odraid said. What will the Mother Superior do? Watch her carefully. Both of them looked at Teraza standing in her group of muscular acolytes. Teraza now looked amused as she continued to observe the priests. The Rakian group had started their argument out in the roof garden. They had brought it inside as the shadows lengthened. They breathed angrily, muttering sometimes, and then raising their voices. Did they not see how the mimic Tuek watched them? Odrade returned her attention to the horizon visible beyond the roof garden. Not another sign of life out there in the desert. Any direction you looked outward from Daris Balat showed empty sand. People born and raised here had a different view of life and their planet than most of these priestly counselors. This was not the rackers of green belts and watered oases, which abounded in the higher latitudes like flowered fingers pointing into the long desert tracks. Out from Daris Balat was the meridian desert that stretched like a cummerbund around the entire planet. I have heard enough of this nonsense, the false Turk exploded. He pushed one of the counselors roughly aside and strode into the middle of the arguing group, pivoting to stare into each face. Are you all mad? One of the priests, it was old Albertus by the gods, looked across the room at Waff and called out, Sir Waff, will you please control your face dancer? Waff hesitated and then moved toward the disputants, his entourage close behind. The false Tuik whirled and pointed a finger at Waff. You stay where you are. I will brook no Tleilaxu interference. Your conspiracy is quite clear to me. O'Red had been watching Waff as the mimic Tuex spoke. Surprise. The Bene Tleilax master had never before been addressed thus by one of his minions. What a shock. Rage convulsed his features. Humming sounds like the noises of angry insects came from his mouth, a modulated thing that clearly was some kind of language. 
The face dancers of his entourage froze, but the false Tuik merely returned attention to his counsellors. Waff stopped humming. Consternation. His face dancer Tuik would not come to heel. He lurched into motion toward the priests. The false Tuik saw it and once more leveled a hand at him, the finger quivering. I told you to stay out of this. You might be able to do away with me, but you'll not saddle me with your Tlelaxufils. That did it. Waff stopped. Realization came over him. He shot a glance at Teraza, seeing her amused recognition of his predicament. Now he had a new target for his rage. You knew! I suspected. You, you, you fashioned too well, Teraza said. It's your own doing. The priests were oblivious to this exchange. They shouted at the false Tuik, ordering him to shut up and remove himself, calling him a damned face dancer. Audrade studied the object of this attack with care. How deep did the prince go? Had he really convinced himself that he was Tuik? In a sudden lull, the mimic drew himself up with dignity and sent a scornful glance at his accusers. You all know me, he said. You all know my years of service to the divided God who is one God. I will go to him now if your conspiracy extends to that, but remember this, he knows what is in your hearts. The priests looked as one man to Waff. None of them had seen a face dancer replace their high priest. There had been no body to see. Every bit of evidence was the evidence of human voices saying things that might be lies. Belatedly, several looked at Odraid. Her voice was one of those that had convinced them. Waff, too, was looking at Odraid. She smiled and addressed herself to the Tleilaxu master. It suits our purposes that the high priest would not pass into other hands at this time she said. Waff immediately saw the advantage to himself. This was a wedge between priests and Bene Gesserit. This removed one of the most dangerous holds the sisterhood had on the Tleilaxu. It suits my purposes too, he said. As the priests once more lifted their voices in anger, Teraza came in right on cue. Which of you will break our accord? she demanded. Tuik thrust two of his counselors aside and strode across the room to the Mother Superior. He stopped only a pace from her. What game is this? he asked. We support you against those who would replace you, she said. The Benet Lelaxu join us in this. It is our way of demonstrating that we too have a vote in selecting the High Priest. Several priestly voices were raised in unison. Is he or is he not a face dancer? Teresa looked benignly at the man in front of her. Are you a face dancer? Of course not. Teresa looked at Odraid, who said, There seems to have been a mistake. Odraid singled out Albertus among the priests and locked eyes with him. Gianna, Odraid said, What should the Church of the Divided God do now? As she had been briefed to do, Gianna stepped out of her guardian enclosure and spoke with all of the auteurs she had been taught. They shall continue to serve God. The business of this meeting appears to have been concluded, Teraza said. If you need protection, High Priest Duick, a squad of our guardians awaits in the hall. They are yours to command. They could see acceptance and understanding in him. He had become a creature of the Bene Gesserit. He remembered nothing of his face-dancer origins. When the priests and Tuik had gone, Waff sent a single word at Teraza, speaking in the language of the Islamiyat. Explain! Teraza stepped away from her guards, appearing to make herself vulnerable. 
It was a calculated move they had debated in front of Shiana. In the same language, Teraza said, We release our grip on the Benet Lelax. They waited while he weighed her words. Teraza reminded himself that the Lelaxu name for themselves could be translated as the unnameable. That was a label often reserved for gods. This god obviously had not extended the discovery in here to what might be happening with his mimics among Ixians and fish speakers. Waff had more shocks coming. He appeared quite puzzled, though. Waff confronted many unanswered questions. He was not satisfied with his reports from Gamu. It was a dangerous double game he played now. Did the Sisterhood play a similar game? But the Tleilaxu lost ones could not be shunted aside without inviting attack by the honoured Matres. Teraza herself had warned of this. Did the old Bashar on Gamu still represent a force worthy of consideration? He voiced this question. Teraza countered with her own question. How did you change Argola? What did you hope to gain? She felt certain she already knew, but the pose of ignorance was necessary. Waff wanted to say, The death of all Bene Gesserit! They were too dangerous. Yet their value was incalculable. He sank into a sulking silence, looking at the reverend mothers with a brooding expression that made his elfin features even more childlike. A petulant child, Teraza thought. She warned herself then that it was dangerous to underestimate Waff. You broke the Tleilaxu egg only to find another egg inside. Ad infinitum. Everything circled back to Adraid's suspicions about the contentions that might still lead them to bloody violence in this room. Had the Tleilaxu really revealed what they had learned from the whores and the other lost ones? Was the Gola only a potential Tleilaxu weapon? Teraza decided to prod him once more, using the approach of her counsel's Analysis 9. Still in the language of the Islamiyat, she said, Would you dishonor yourself in the land of the Prophet? You have not shared openly as you said you would. We told you the sexual— You do not share all, she interrupted. It's because of the Gola, and we know this. She could see his reactions. He was a cornered animal. Such animals were dangerous in the extreme. She had once seen a mongrel hound, a feral and tail-tucked survivor of ancient pets from Dan, cornered by a pack of youths. The animal turned on its pursuers, slashing its way to freedom in totally unexpected savagery. Two youths crippled for life and only one without injuries. Waff was like that animal right now. She could see his hands longing for a weapon, but Tleilaxu and Bene Gesserit had searched one another with exquisite care before coming here. She felt sure he had no weapon. Still. Waff spoke, baited suspense in his manner. You think me unaware of how you hope to rule us? And there is the rot that the people of the scattering took with them, she said. Rot at the core. Waff's manner changed. It did not do to ignore the deeper implications of Bene Gesserit thought. But was she sowing discord? The prophet set a locator ticking in the minds of every human, scattered or not, Teraza said. He has brought them back to us with all of the rot intact. Waff ground his teeth. What was she doing? He entertained the mad thought that the sisterhood had clogged his mind with some secret drug in the air. They knew things denied to others. He stared from Teraza to Odraid and back to Teraza. He knew he was old with serial Gola resurrections, but not old in the way of the Bene Gesserit. These people were old. They seldom looked old, 
but they were old, old beyond anything he dared imagine. Teresa was having similar thoughts. She had seen the flash of deeper awareness in Waff's eyes. Necessity opened new doors of reason. How deep did the Tleilaxu go? His eyes were so old. She had the feeling that whatever had been a brain in these Tleilaxu masters was now something else, a hollow recording from which all weakening emotions had been erased. She shared the distrust of emotions that she suspected in him. Was that a bond to unite them? The tropism of common thoughts. You say you release your grip on us, Waff growled, but I feel your fingers around my throat. Then here is a grip on our throat, she said. Some of your lost ones have returned to you. Never has a reverend mother come back to us from the scattering. But you said you knew all of the... We have other ways of gaining knowledge. What do you suppose happened to the reverend mothers we sent out into the scattering? A common disaster? He shook his head. This was absolutely new information. None of the returned Tleilaxu had said anything at all about this. The discrepancy fed his suspicions. Whom was he to believe? They were subverted, Teresa said. Audrade, hearing the general suspicion voiced for the first time by the Mother Superior, sensed the enormous power implicit in Teresa's simple statement. Audrade was cowed by it. She knew the resources, the contingency plans, the improvised ways a Reverend Mother might use to surmount barriers. Something out there could stop that? When Waff did not respond, Teresa said, You come to us with dirty hands. You dare say this? Waff asked. You who continue to deplete our resources in the ways taught you by the Basha's mother? We knew you could afford the losses if you had resources from the scattering, Teresa said. Waff inhaled a trembling breath. So the Bene Gesserit knew even this. He saw in part how they had learned it. Well, a way would have to be found to bring the false Tuik back under control. Rakis was the prize the scattered ones really sought, and it might yet be demanded of the Tleilaxu. Teraza moved even closer to Waff, alone and vulnerable. She saw her guards grow tense. Shiana took a small step toward the Mother Superior and was pulled back by Odraid. Odraid kept her attention on the Mother Superior and not on potential attackers. Were the Tleilaxu truly convinced that the Bene Gesserit would serve them? Teraza had tested the limits of it, no doubt of that and in the language of the Islamiyat, but she looked very alone out there, away from her guards, and so near Waff and his people. Where would Waff's obvious suspicions lead him now? Teresa shivered. Odraid saw it. Teresa had been abnormally thin as a child and had never put on an excess ounce of fat. This made her exquisitely sensitive to temperature changes, intolerant of cold, but Odraid sensed no such change in the room. Teresa had made a dangerous decision then, so dangerous that her body betrayed her. Not dangerous to herself, of course, but dangerous to the sisterhood. There was the most awful Bene Gesserit crime, disloyalty to their own order. We will serve you in all ways except one, Teresa said. We will never become receptacles for golas. Waff paled. Teresa continued. None of us is now nor will ever become, she paused, an axolotl tank. 
Wuff raised his right hand in the start of a gesture every reverend mother knew, the signal for his face dancers to attack. Teraza pointed at his upraised hand. If you complete that gesture, the Telaxu will lose everything. The messenger of God, Teraza nodded over a shoulder toward Shiana, will turn her back upon you, and the words of the prophet will be dust in your mouths. In the language of the Islamiat, such words were too much for Wuff. He lowered his hand, but he continued to glower at Teraza. My ambassador said we would share everything we know, Teraza said. You said you too would share. The messenger of God listens with the ears of the prophet. What pours forth from the Abdul of the Tleilaksu? Waf's shoulders sagged. Teraza turned her back on him. It was an artful move, but both she and the other reverend mothers present knew she did it now in perfect safety. Looking across the room at Odraid, Teraza allowed herself a smile that she knew Odraid would interpret correctly. Time for a bit of Bene Gesserit punishment. The Trelaxu desire an Atreides for breeding, Teraza said. I give you Darwi Odraid. More will be supplied. Waff came to a decision. You may know much about the honored Matres, he said, but you whores, Teraza whirled on him. As you will, but there is a thing from them that your words reveal you do not know. I seal our bargain by telling you this. They can magnify the sensations of the orgasmic platform, transmitting this throughout a male body. They elicit the total sensual involvement of the male. Multiple orgasmic waves are created and may be continued by the, the female for an extended period. Total involvement? Teresa did not try to hide her astonishment. Odraid, too, listened with a sense of shock that she saw was shared by her sisters present, even the acolytes. Only Shiana seemed not to understand. I tell you, Mother Superior Teresa, Waff said, a gloating smile on his face, that we have duplicated this with our own people, myself even. In my anger, I caused the face dancer who played the female part to destroy itself. No one, I say no one, may have such a hold on me. What hold? If it had been one of these, these whores, as you call them, I would have obeyed her without question in anything, he shuddered. I barely had the will to, to destroy. He shook his head in bewilderment at the memory. Anger saved me. Teraza tried to swallow in a dry throat. How? How is it done? Very well. But before I share this knowledge, I warn you. If one of you ever tries to use this power over one of us, bloody slaughter will follow. We have prepared our Doma and all of our people to respond by killing all reverend mothers they can find at the slightest sign that you seek this power over us. None of us would do that, but not because of your threat. We are restrained by the knowledge that this would destroy us. Your bloody slaughter would not be necessary. Oh, then why does it not destroy these, these whores? It does, and it destroys everyone they touch. It has not destroyed me. God protects you, my Abdul, Teraza said, as he protects all of the faithful. Convinced, Waf glanced around the room and back to Teraza. Let all know that I fulfill my bond in the land of the prophet. This is the way of it, then. 
He waved a hand to two of his face dancer guards. We will demonstrate. Much later, alone in the penthouse room, Audrey wondered if it had been wise to let Shiana see the whole performance. Well, why not? Shiana already was committed to the sisterhood, and it would have aroused Woff's suspicions to send Shiana away. There had been obvious sensual arousal in Shiana as she watched the face dancer performance. The training proctors would have to call in their male assistants earlier than usual for Shiana. What would Shiana do then? Would she try this new knowledge on the men? Inhibitions must be raised in Shiana to prevent that. She must be taught the dangers to herself. The sisters and acolytes present had controlled themselves well, storing what they learned firmly in memory. Shiana's education must be built on that observation. Others mastered such internal forces. The face dancer observers had remained inscrutable, but there had been things to see in Waff. He said he would destroy the two demonstrators, but what would he do first? Would he succumb to temptation? What thoughts went through his mind as he watched the face dancer male squirm in mind-blanking ecstasy? In a way, the demonstration reminded Odraid of the Rakian dance she had seen in the Great Square of Keene. In the short term, the dance had been deliberately unrhythmic, but the progression created a long-term rhythm that repeated itself in some two hundred steps. The dancers had stretched out their rhythm to a remarkable degree, as had the face-dancer demonstrators. Sianuk become a sexual grip on uncounted billions in the scattering. Odraid thought about the dance, the long rhythm followed by chaotic violence. Sianuk's glorious focusing of religious energies had devolved into a different kind of exchange. She thought about Shiana's excited response to her glimpses of that dance in the Great Square. Odraid remembered asking Shiana, What did they share down there? The dancers, silly. That response had not been permissible. I've warned you about that tone, Shiana. Do you wish to learn immediately what a reverend mother can do to punish you? The words played themselves like ghost messages in Odraid's mind as she looked at the gathering darkness outside the Darius Balat penthouse. A great loneliness welled up in her. All the others had gone from this room. Only the punished one remains. How bright-eyed Shiana had been in that room above the great square, her mind so full of questions. Why do you always talk about hurting and punishment? You must learn discipline. How can you control others when you cannot control yourself? I don't like that lesson. None of us does very much. Until later, when we've learned the value of it by experience. As intended, that response had festered long in Shiana's awareness. In the end, she had revealed all she knew about the dance. Some of the dancers escape. Others go directly to Shaitan. The priests say they go to Shaihulud. What are the ones who survive? When they recover, they must join a great dance in the desert. If Shaitan comes there, they die. If Shaitan does not come, they are rewarded. Odraid had seen the pattern. Shiana's explanatory words had not been necessary beyond that point, even though the recital had been allowed to continue. How bitter Shiana's voice had been. They get the money, space in a bazaar, that kind of reward. The priests say they have proved that they are human. Are the ones who fail not human? Shiana had remained silent for a long time in deep thought. The track was clear to Adraid, though. The sisterhood's test of humanity. 
Her own passage into the acceptable humanity of the sisterhood had already been duplicated by Shiana. How soft that passage seemed in comparison to the other panes. In the dim light of the museum penthouse, Audrade held up her right hand, looking at it, remembering the agony box and the gomjabar poised at her neck, ready to kill her if she flinched or cried out. Shiana had not cried out either, but she had known the answer to Audrade's question even before the agony box. They are human, but different. Audrade spoke aloud in the empty room with its displays from the tyrant's no-chamber horde. What did you do to us, Leto? Are you only Shaitan talking to us? What would you force us to share now? Was the fossil dance to become fossil sex? Who are you talking to, mother? It was Shiana's voice from the open doorway across the room. Her grey postulant's robe was only a faint shape there, growing larger as she approached. Mother Superior sent me for you, Shiana said, as she came to a stop near Odrade. I was talking to myself, Odrade said. She looked at the strangely quiet girl, remembering the gut-wrenching excitement of that moment when the fulcrum question had been asked of Shiana. Do you wish to be a reverend mother? Why are you talking to yourself, mother? There was a load of concern in Shiana's voice. The teaching proctors would have their hands full removing those emotions. I was remembering when I asked you if you wished to be a reverend mother, Odrade said. It prompted other thoughts. You said I must give myself to your direction in all things, holding back nothing, disobeying you in nothing. And you said, is that all? I didn't know very much, did I? I still don't know very much. None of us does, child, except that we're all in the dance together, and Shaitan will certainly come if the least of us fails. When strangers meet, great allowance should be made for differences of custom and training. The Lady Jessica from Wisdom of Arrakis The last greenish line of light fell out of the horizon before Basmali gave the signal for them to move. It was dark by the time they reached the far side of Yasai and the perimeter road that was to lead them to Duncan. Clouds covered the sky, reflecting the city's lights downward onto the shapes of the urban hovels through which their guides directed them. These guides bothered Lucilla. They appeared out of side streets and from suddenly opened doorways to whisper new directions. Too many people knew about the fugitive pair and their intended rendezvous. She had come to grips with her hatred, but the residue was a profound distrust of every person they saw. Hiding this behind the mechanical attitudes of a playfem with her customer had become increasingly difficult. There was slush on the pedestrian way beside the road, most of it scattered there by the passage of ground cars. Lucilla's feet were cold before they had gone half a kilometre, and she was forced to expend energy compensating for the added blood flow in her extremities. Bosmali walked silently, his head down, apparently lost in his own worries. Lucilla was not fooled. He heard every sound around them, saw every approaching vehicle. He hustled them off the pathway each time a ground car approached. The cars went swishing past on their suspensers, the dirty slush flying from under their fan skirts and peppering the bushes along the road. Bosmali held her down beside him in the snow until he was sure the cars were out of sight and sound. Not that anyone riding in them could hear much, except their own whirling passage. They had been walking for two hours before Bismali stopped and took stock of the way ahead. 
Their destination was a perimeter community that had been described to them as completely safe. Lucilla knew better. No place on Gamu was completely safe. Yellow lights cast an undershot glow on the clouds ahead of them, marking the location of the community. Their slushy progress took them through a tunnel under the perimeter road and up a low hill planted to some sort of orchard. The limbs were stark in the dim light. Lucilla glanced upward. The clouds were thinning. Gamu had many small moons, fortress, no ships. Some of them had been placed by Teg, but she glimpsed lines of new ones sharing the guardian role. They appeared to be about four times the size of the brightest stars, and they often travelled together, which made their reflected light useful but erratic because they moved fast, up across the sky and below the horizon in only a few hours. She glimpsed a string of six such moons through a break in the clouds, wondering if they were part of Teg's defence system. Momentarily, she reflected on the inherent weakness of the siege mentality that such defences represented. Teg had been right about them. Mobility was the key to military success, but she doubted that he had meant mobility on foot. There were no easy hiding places on the snow-whitened slope, and Lucilla felt Bosmali's nervousness. What could they do here if someone came? A snow-covered depression led down from their position to the left, angling toward the community. It was not a road, but she thought it might be a path. Down this way, Bosmali said, leading them into the depression. The snow came up to their calves. I hope these people are trustworthy, she said. They hate the honoured matres, he said. That's enough for me. The gola had better be there. She held back an even more angry response, but could not keep herself from adding, their hatred isn't enough for me. It was better to expect the worst, she thought. She had come to a reassuring thought about Bosmali, though. He was like Teg. Neither of them pursued a course that would lead them into a dead end, not if they could help it. She suspected there were support forces concealed in the bushes around them even now. The snow-covered trail ended in a paved pathway, gently curved inward from the edges and kept free of snow by a melt system. There was a trickle of dampness in the centre. Lucilla was several steps onto this path before she recognised what it must be, a mag chute. It was an ancient magnetic transport base that once had carried goods or raw materials to a pre-scattering factory. It gets steeper here, Bosmali warned her. They've carved steps in it, but watch it. They're not very deep. They came presently to the end of the mag chute. It stopped at a decrepit wall, local brick atop a plasteel foundation. The faint light of stars in a clearing sky revealed crude workmanship in the bricks, typical famine times construction. The wall was a mass of vines and mottled fungus. The growth did little to conceal the cracked courses of the bricks and the crude efforts to fill chinks with mortar. A single row of narrow windows looked down onto the place where the mag chute debouched into a mass of bushes and weeds. Three of the windows glowed electric blue with some inner activity that was accompanied by faint crackling sounds. There was a factory in the old days, Bismali said. I have eyes and a memory, Lucilla snapped. Did this grunting male think her completely devoid of intelligence? Something creaked dismally off to their left. A patch of sod and weeds lifted atop a cellar door accompanied by an upward glow of brilliant yellow light. Quick! Bismali led her at a swift run across thick vegetation and down a flight of steps exposed by the lifting door. The door creaked closed behind them in a grumbling of machinery. Lucilla found herself in a large space with a low ceiling. 
Light came from long lines of modern glow globes strung along massive plasteel girders overhead. The floor was swept clean, but showed scratches and indentations of activity, the locations, no doubt, of bygone machinery. She glimpsed movement far off across the open space. A young woman in a version of Lucilla's dragon robe trotted toward them. Lucilla sniffed. There was a stink of acid in the room and undertones of something foul. This was a Harkonnen factory, Basmali said. I wonder what they made here. The young woman stopped in front of Lucilla. She had a willowy figure, elegant in shape and motion under the clinging robe. A subcutaneous glow came from her face. It spoke of exercise and good health. The green eyes, though, were hard and chilling in the way they measured everything they saw. So they sent more than one of us to watch this place, she said. Lucilla put out a restraining hand as Basmali started to respond. This woman was not what she seemed. No more than I am, Lucilla chose her words carefully. We always know each other, it seems. The young woman smiled. I watched your approach. I could not believe my eyes. She swept a sneering glance across Basmali. This was supposed to be a customer? And guide, Lucilla said. She noted the puzzlement on Bosmali's face and prayed he would not ask the wrong question. This young woman was danger. Weren't we expected? Bosmali asked. Ah, it speaks, the young woman said, laughing. Her laugh was as cold as her eyes. I prefer that you do not refer to me as it, Bosmali said. I call Gamu scum anything I wish, the young woman said. Don't speak to me of your preferences. What did you call me? Basmali was tired and his anger came boiling up at this unexpected attack. I call you anything I choose, scum. Basmali had suffered enough. Before Lucilla could stop him, he uttered a low growl and aimed a heavy slap at the young woman. The blow did not land. Lucilla watched in fascination as the woman dropped under the attack, caught Basmali's sleeve as one might catch a bit of fabric blowing in the wind and in a blindingly fast pirouette whose speed almost hid its delicacy, sent Bosmali skidding across the floor. The woman dropped to a half-crouch on one foot, the other prepared to kick. I shall kill him now, she said. Lucilla, not knowing what might happen next, folded her body sideways, barely avoiding the woman's suddenly outthrust foot, and countered with a standard Bene Gesserit Sabad that dumped the young woman on her back, doubled up where the blow had caught her in the abdomen. A suggestion that you kill my guide is uncalled for, whatever your name is, Lucilla said. The young woman gasped for breath then, panting between words. I am called Marbella, great honoured Matre. You shame me by defeating me with such a slow attack. Why do you do that? You needed a lesson, Lucilla said. I am only newly robed, great honoured Matre. Please forgive me. I thank you for the splendid lesson and will thank you every time I employ your response, which I now commit to memory. She bowed her head, then leaped lightly to her feet, an impish grin on her face. In her coldest voice, Lucilla asked, Do you know who I am? Out of the corners of her eyes, she saw Bismali regain his feet with painful slowness. He remained at one side watching the women, but anger burned his face. From your ability to teach me that lesson, I see that you are who you are, great honoured Matri. Am I forgiven? The impish grin had vanished from Mabella's face. She stood with head bowed. You are forgiven. 
Is there a no-ship coming? So they say here. We are prepared for it. Mabella glanced at Bursmali. He is still useful to me, and it is required that he accompany me, Lucilla said. Very good, great honoured Matri. Does your forgiveness include your name? No. Mabella sighed. We have captured the Gola, she said. He came as a Tleilaxu from the south. I was just about to bed him when you arrived. Busmali hobbled toward them. Lucilla saw that he had recognized the danger. This completely safe place had been infested by enemies. But the enemies still knew very little. The Gola was not injured? Busmali asked. It still speaks, Mabella said. How odd. You will not bed the Gola, Lucilla said. That is my special charge. Fair game, great honoured Matre. And I marked him first. He is already partly subdued. She laughed once more with a callous abandonment that shocked Lucilla. This way. There is a place where you can watch. May you die on Caladan. Ancient drinking toast. Duncan tried to remember where he was. He knew Tormsa was dead. Blood had spurted from Tormsa's eyes. Yes, he remembered that clearly. They had entered a dark building and light had flared abruptly all around them. Duncan felt an ache in the back of his head. A blow? He tried to move and his muscles refused to obey. He remembered sitting at the edge of a wide lawn. There was some kind of bowling game in progress. Eccentric balls, they bounced and darted with no apparent design. The players were young men in a common costume of Giddy Prime. They are practicing to be old men, he said. He remembered saying that. His companion, a young woman, looked at him blankly. Only old men should play these outdoor games, he said. Oh? It was an unanswerable question. She put him down with only the simplest of verbal gestures. And betrayed me the next instant to the Harkonnens. So that was a pre-Gola memory. Gola. He remembered the Bene Gesserit keep on Gamel, the library, holophotos and triphotos of the Atreides Duke later the first. Teg's resemblance was not an accident. A bit taller, but otherwise it was all there, that long, thin face with its high-bridged nose, the renowned Atreides charisma. Teg. He remembered the old Basha's last gallant stand in the Gamu night. Where am I? Tormsa had brought him here. They had been moving along an overgrown track on the outskirts of Yasai, Barony. It started to snow before they were two hundred meters up the track. Wet snow that clung to them, cold, miserable snow that set their teeth chattering within a minute. They paused to bring up their hoods and close the insulated jackets. That was better. But it would be night soon. Much colder. There is a shelter of sorts up ahead, Tormsa said. We will wait there for the night. When Duncan did not speak, Tormsa said, It won't be warm, but it will be dry. Duncan saw the grey outline of the place in about three hundred paces. It stood out against the dirty snow some two stories tall. He recognised it immediately, a Harkonnen counting outpost. Observers here had counted and sometimes killed the people who passed. It was built of native dirt turned into one giant brick, by the simple expedient of preforming it in mud bricks and then superheating it with a wide-bore burner, the kind the Harkonnens had used to control mobs. As they came up to it, 
Duncan saw the remains of a full-field defensive screen with fire-lance gaps aimed at the approaches. Someone had smashed the system a long time ago. Twisted holes in the field net were partly overgrown with bushes, but the fire-lance gaps remained open. Oh, yes. To allow people inside a view of the approaches. Tonser paused and listened, studying their surroundings with care. Duncan looked at the counting station. He remembered them well. What confronted him was a thing that had sprouted like a deformed growth from an original tubular seed. The surface had been baked to a glassine finish. Warts and protrusions betrayed where it had been superheated. The erosion of eons had left fine scratches in it, but the original shape remained. He looked upward and identified part of the old suspensor lift system. Someone had jury-rigged a block and tackle to the outbar. So the opening through the full field screen was of recent making. Tormsa disappeared into this opening. As though a switch had been thrown, Duncan's memory vision changed. He was in the No-Globe's library with Teg. The projector was producing a series of views through modern Yosai. The idea of modern took on an odd overtone for him. Barony had been a modern city, if you thought of modern as meaning technologically useiform up to the norms of its time, it had relied exclusively on suspensor guide beams for transport of people and materials, all of them high up. No ground-level openings. He was explaining this to Teg. The plan translated physically into a city that used every possible square meter of vertical and horizontal space for things other than movement of goods and humans. The guide beam openings required only enough headroom and elbow room for the universal transport pods. Teg spoke. The ideal shape would be tubular, with a flat top for the thopters. The Harkonnens preferred squares and rectangles. That was true. Duncan remembered Barony with a clearness that made him shiver. Suspensor tracks shot through it like wormholes, straight, curved, flipping off at oblique angles, up, down, sideways. Except for the rectangular absolute imposed by Harkonnen whim. Barony was built to a particular population design criterion, maximum stuffing with minimum expenditure of materials. The flat top was the only human-oriented space in the damned thing, he remembered telling that to Teg and Lucilla both. Up there on top were penthouses, guard stations at all the edges, at the thopter pads, at all the entries from below, around all of the parks. People living on the top could forget about the mass of flesh, squirming in close proximity just below them. No smell or noise from that jumble was allowed on top. Servants were forced to bathe and change into sanitary clothing before emerging. Teg had a question. Why did that massed humanity permit itself to live in such a crush? The answer was obvious and he explained it. The outside was a dangerous place. The city's managers made it appear even more dangerous than it actually was. Besides, Few in there knew anything about a better life outside. The only better life they knew about was on top, and the only way up there was through an absolutely abasing civility. It will happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. That was another voice echoing in Duncan's skull. He heard it clearly. Paul. How odd it was, Duncan thought. There was an arrogance in the prescient, like the arrogance of the Mentat seated in his most brittle logic. I've never before thought of Paul as arrogant. Duncan stared at his own face in a mirror. He realized with part of his mind that this was a pre-Gola memory. Abruptly, it was another mirror, his own face but different.
That darkly rounded face had begun to shape into the harsher lines it could have if it matured. He looked into his own eyes. Yes, those were his eyes. He had heard someone describe his eyes once as cave-sitters. They were deeply inset under the brows and riding atop high cheeks. He had been told it was difficult to determine if his eyes were dark blue or dark green unless the light were just right. A woman said that. He could not remember the woman. He tried to reach up and touch his hair, but his hands would not obey. He remembered then that his hair had been bleached. Who did that? An old woman. His hair was no longer a cap of dark ringlets. There was the Duke Leto staring at him in the doorway to the dining room on Caladan. We will eat now, the Duke said. It was a royal command saved from arrogance by a faint grin that said somebody had to say it. What is happening to my mind? He remembered following Tormsa to the place where Tormsa said the no-ship would meet them. It was a large building bulking in the night. There were several smaller outbuildings below the larger structure. They appeared to be occupied. Voices and machine sounds could be heard in them. No faces showed at the narrow windows. No door opened. Duncan smelled cooking as they passed the larger of the outbuildings. This reminded him that they had only eaten dry strips of leathery stuff that Tormsa called travel food that day. They entered the dark building. Light flared. Tormsa's eyes exploded in blood, darkness. Duncan looked at a woman's face. He had seen a face like this one before. A single treed taken from a longer hollow sequence. Where was that? Where had he seen that? It was an almost oval face with just a small widening at the brow to mar its curved perfection. She spoke. My name is Mobella. You will not remember that, but I share it now as I mark you. I have selected you. I do remember you, Mobella. Green eyes set wide under arched brows gave her features a focal region that left chin and small mouth for later examination. The mouth was full-lipped and he knew it could become pouting in repose. The green eyes stared into his eyes. How cold that look, the power in it. Something touched his cheek. He opened his eyes. This was no memory. This was happening to him. It was happening now. Mabella. She had been here and she had left him. Now she was back. He remembered awakening naked on a soft surface, a sleeping pad. His hands recognized it. Mabella unclothed, just above him, green eyes staring at him with a terrible intensity. She touched him simultaneously in many places. A soft humming issued from between her lips. He felt the swift erection painful in its rigidity. No power of resistance remained in him. Her hands moved over his body, her tongue, the humming. All around him, her mouth touched him. The nipples of her breasts grazed his cheeks, his chest. When he saw her eyes, he saw conscious design. Mobella had returned and she was doing it once more. Over her right shoulder, he glimpsed a wide plaz window. Lucilla and Bursmali behind that barrier. A dream? Bursmali pressed his palms against the plaz. Lucilla stood with folded arms, a look of mingled rage and curiosity on her face. Mobella murmured in his right ear, My hands are fire. Her body hid the faces behind the plaz. He felt the fire wherever she touched him. 
Abruptly, the flame engulfed his mind. Hidden places within him came alive. He saw red capsules like a string of gleaming sausages passing before his eyes. He felt feverish. He was an engorged capsule, excitement flaring throughout his awareness. Those capsules, he knew them. They were himself. They were... All of the Duncan Idahos, original and the serial goalers, flowed into his mind. They were like bursting seed pods, denying all other existence except themselves. He saw himself crushed beneath a great worm with a human face. Damn you, Leto! Crushed, and crushed, and crushed time and again. Damn you, damn you, damn you! He died under a Sadhuka sword. Pain exploded into a bright glare swallowed by darkness. He died in a thopter crash. He died under the knife of a fish-speaker assassin. He died, and died, and died. And he lived. The memories flooded him until he wondered how he could hold them all. The sweetness of a newborn daughter held in his arms, the musky odors of a passionate mate, the cascade of flavors from a fine Danian wine, the panting exertions of the practice floor, the axolotl tanks. He remembered emerging time after time, bright lights and padded mechanical hands, the hands rotated him, and in the unfocused blurs of the newborn he saw a great mound of female flesh, monstrous in her almost immobile grossness. A maze of dark tubes linked her body to giant metal containers. Axolotl tank? He gasped in the grip of the serial memories that cascaded into him. All of those lives! All of those lives! Now he remembered what the Zlelaxu had planted in him the submerged awareness that awaited only this moment of seduction by a Bene Gesserit imprinter. But this was Mobella, and she was not Bene Gesserit. She was here, though, ready at hand, and the Tleilaxu pattern took over his reactions. Duncan hummed softly and touched her, moving with an agility that shocked Mobella. He should not be this responsive, not this way. His right hand fluttered against the lips of her vagina, while his left hand caressed the base of her spine. At the same time his mouth moved gently over her nose, down to her lips, down to the crease of her left armpit. And all the time he hummed softly in a rhythm that pulsed through her body, lulling, weakening. She tried to push away from him as he increased the pace of her responses. How did he know to touch me there at just that instant? And there? And there? A holy rock of Dur, how does he know this? Duncan marked the swelling of her breasts and saw the congestion in her nose. He saw the way her nipples stood out stiffly, the areoli darkening around them. She moaned and spread her legs wide. Great Matre, help me! But the only great Matre she could think of was locked securely away from this room, restrained by a bolted door and a plas barrier. Desperate energy flowed into Mobella. She responded in the only way she knew, touching, caressing, using all of the techniques she had learned so carefully in the long years of her apprenticeship. To each thing she did, Duncan produced a wildly stimulating counter-move. Mobella found that she no longer could control all of her own responses. She was reacting automatically from some well of knowledge deeper than her training. She felt her vaginal muscles tighten. She felt the swift release of lubricant fluid. When Duncan entered her, she heard herself groan. 
Her arms, her hands, her legs, her entire body moved with both of the response systems, well-trained automation and the deeper, deeper plunging awareness of other demands. How did he do this to me? Waves of ecstatic contractions began in the smooth muscles of her pelvis. She sensed his simultaneous response and felt the hard slap of his ejaculation. This heightened her own response. Ecstatic pulsations drove outward from the contractions in her vagina. Outward, outward. The ecstasy engulfed her entire sensorium. She saw a spreading blaze of whiteness against her eyelids. Every muscle quivered with an ecstasy she had not imagined possible for herself. Again, the waves spread outward. Again and again. She lost count of the repetitions. When Duncan moaned, she moaned, and the waves swept outward once more. And again. There was no sensation of time or surroundings. Only this immersion in a continuing ecstasy. She wanted it to go on forever, and she wanted it to stop. This should not be happening to a female. An honoured matre must not experience this. These were the sensations by which men were governed. Duncan emerged from the response pattern that had been implanted in him. There was something else he was supposed to do. He could not remember what it was. Lucilla? He imagined her dead in front of him. But this woman was not Lucilla. This was... This was Mabella. There was very little strength in him. He lifted himself off Mabella and managed to sink back onto his knees. Her hands were fluttering in an agitation he could not understand. Mabella tried to push Duncan away from her, and he was not there. Her eyes snapped open. Duncan knelt above her. She had no idea how much time had passed. She tried to find the energy to sit up and failed. Slowly, reason returned. She stared into Duncan's eyes, knowing now who this man must be. Man? He was only a youth. But he had done things. Things. All of the honoured matres had been warned. There was a gola armed with forbidden knowledge by the Tleilaxu. That gola must be killed. A small burst of energy surged into her muscles. She raised herself on her elbows. Gasping for breath, she tried to roll away from him and fell back to the soft surface. By the holy rock of Dur, this male could not be permitted to live. He was a gola, and he could do things permitted only to honoured matres. She wanted to strike out at him, and, at the same time, she wanted to pull him back onto her body. The ecstasy! She knew that whatever he asked of her at this moment she would do. She would do it for him. No, I must kill him. Once more she raised herself onto her elbows and from there managed to sit up. Her weakened gaze crossed the window where she had confined the great honoured matre and the guide. They still stood there looking at her. The man's face was flushed. The face of the great honoured matre was as unmoving as the rock of Dur itself. How can she just stand there after what she has seen here? The great honoured matre must kill this cola. Mabella beckoned to the woman behind the plaz and rolled toward the locked door beside the sleeping pad. She barely managed to unbolt and open the door before falling back. Her eyes looked up at the kneeling youth. Sweat glistened on his body. His lovely body. No. 
Desperation drove her off onto the floor. She was on her knees there, and then, mostly by willpower, she stood. Energy was returning, but her legs trembled as she staggered around the foot of the sleeping pad. I will do it myself without thinking. I must do it. Her body swayed from side to side. She tried to steady herself and aimed a blow at his neck. She knew this blow from long hours of practice. It would crush the larynx. The victim would die of asphyxiation. Duncan dodged the blow easily, but he was slow. Slow. Mabella almost fell beside him, but the hands of the great honored Matre saved her. Kill him, Mabella gasped. He's the one we were warned about. He's the one. Mabella felt hands on her neck, the fingers pressing fiercely at the nerve bundles beneath the ears. The last thing Mabella heard before unconsciousness was the great honored Matre saying, We will kill no one. This gola goes to Rackus. The worst potential competition for any organism can come from its own kind. A species consumes necessities. Growth is limited by that necessity which is present in the least amount. The least favorable condition controls the rate of growth. Law of the minimum. From Lessons of Arrakis. The building stood back from a wide avenue behind a screen of trees and carefully tended flowering hedges. The hedges had been staggered in a maze pattern with man-high white posts to define the planted areas. No vehicle entering or leaving could do so at any speed above a slow crawl. Tegg's military awareness took all of this in as the armoured ground car carried him up to the door. Field Marshal Muzaffar, the only other occupant in the rear of the car, recognised Tegg's assessment and said, We're protected from above by a beam-enfilading system. A soldier in camouflage uniform with a long laser gun on a sling over one shoulder opened the door and snapped to attention as Muzaffar emerged. Tegg followed. He recognized this place. It was one of the safe addresses Bene Gesserit's security had provided for him. Obviously, the Sisterhood's information was out of date. Recently out of date, though, because Muzaffar gave no indication that Tegg might know this place. As they crossed to the door, Tegg noted that another protective system he had seen on his first tour of Yasai remained intact. It was a barely noticeable difference in the posts along the trees and hedges barriers. Those posts were scanlizers operated from a room somewhere in the building. Their diamond-shaped connectors read the area between them and the building. At the gentle push of a button in the watcher's room, the scanlizers would make small chunks of meat out of any living flesh crossing their fields. At the door, Muzaffar paused and looked at Tegg. The honored Matre you are about to meet is the most powerful of all who have come here. She does not tolerate anything but complete obedience. I take it you are warning me? I thought you would understand. Call her Honored Matre. Nothing else. In we go. I've taken the liberty of having a new uniform made for you. The room where Muzaffar ushered him was one Tegg had not seen on his previous visit. Small and crammed with ticking black-panelled boxes, it left little room for the two of them. A single yellow glow-globe at the ceiling illuminated the place. Muzaffar crowded himself into a corner while Tegg got out of the grimed and wrinkled single suit he had worn since the no-globe. Sorry I can't offer you a bath as well. Muzaffar said. 
But we must not delay. She gets impatient. A different personality came over Teg with the uniform. It was a familiar black garment, even to the starbursts at the collar. So he was to appear before this honoured matre as the Sisterhood's Basha. Interesting. He was once more completely the Basha, not that this powerful sense of identity had ever left him. The uniform completed it and announced it, though. In this garment there was no need to emphasize in any other way precisely who he was. That's better, Muzaffar said as he led Teg out into the entry hallway and through a door Teg remembered. Yes, this was where he had met the safe contacts. He had recognized the room's function then and nothing appeared to have changed it. Rows of microscopic commies lined the intersections of ceiling and walls disguised as silver guide strips for the hovering glow globes. The one who is watched does not see, Teg thought, and the watchers have a billion eyes. His doubled vision told him there was danger here, but nothing immediately violent. This room, about five meters long and four wide, was a place for doing very high-level business. The merchandise would never be an actual exposure of money. People here would see only portable equivalents of whatever passed for currency, melange, perhaps, or milky sous-stones about the size of an eyeball, perfectly round, at once glossy and soft in appearance, but radiant with rainbow changes directed by whatever light fell on them or whatever flesh they touched. This was a place where a danakin of melange or a small fold-pouch of sous-stones would be accepted as a natural occurrence. The price of a planet could be exchanged here with only a nod, an eye-blink, or a low-voiced murmur. No wallets of currency would ever be produced here. The closest thing might be a thin case of translux, out of whose poison-guarded interior would come thinner sheets of redulian crystal with very large numbers inscribed on them by unforgivable data print. This is a bank, Teg said. What? Muzavar had been staring at the closed door in the opposite wall. Oh, yes. She'll be along presently. She is watching us now, of course. Muzaffar did not answer, but he looked gloomy. Teg glanced around him. Had anything been changed since his previous visit? He saw no significant alterations. He wondered if shrines such as this one had undergone much change at all over the eons. There was a dew carpet on the floor as soft as brant down and as white as the underbelly of a fur whale. It shimmered with a false sense of wetness that only the eye detected. A bare foot not that this place had ever seen a barefoot, would feel caressing dryness. There was a narrow table, about two metres long, almost in the centre of the room. The top was at least twenty millimetres thick. Teg guessed it was a Danian jacaranda. The deep brown surface had been polished to a sheen that drank the vision and revealed far underneath veins like river currents. There were only four admiral's chairs around the table, chairs crafted by a master artisan from the same wood as the table, cushioned on seat and back with leer leather, of the exact tone of the polished wood. Only four chairs. More would have been an overstatement. He had not tried one of the chairs before, and he did not seat himself now, but he knew what his flesh would find there. Comfort almost up to the level of a despised chair dog. Not quite at that degree of softness and conformity to bodily shape, of course, too much comfort could lure the sitter into relaxation. This room and its furnishings said, Be comfortable here, but remain alert. You not only had to have your wits about you in this place, but also a great power of violence behind you, Teg thought. 
He had summed it up that way before, and his opinion had not changed. There were no windows, but the ones he had seen from the outside had danced with lines of light, energy barriers to repel intruders and prevent escape. Such barriers brought their own dangers, Take knew, but the implications were important. Just keeping the energy flow in them would feed a large city for the lifetime of its longest-lived inhabitant. There was nothing casual about this display of wealth. The door that Muzaffar watched opened with a gentle click. Danger. A woman in a shimmering golden robe swept into the room. Lines of red-orange danced in the fabric. She is old. Teg had not expected her to be this ancient. Her face was a wrinkled mask. The eyes were deeply set green ice. Her nose was an elongated beak whose shadow touched thin lips and repeated the sharp angle of the chin. A black skullcap almost covered her grey hair. Muzaffar bowed. Leave us, she said. He left without a word, going out through the door by which she had entered. When the door closed behind him, Teg said, Honoured Matre. So you recognize this as a bank? Her voice carried only a slight trembling. Of course. There are always means of transferring large sums or selling power, she said. I do not speak of the power that runs factories, but of the power that runs people. And that usually passes under the strange names of government or society or civilization, Teg said. I suspected you would be very intelligent, she said. She pulled out a chair and sat, but did not indicate that Teg should seat himself. I think of myself as a banker. That saves a lot of muddy and distressful circumlocutions. Teg did not respond. There seemed no need. He continued to study her. Why are you looking at me like that? she demanded. I did not expect you to be this old, he said. <laughs> we have many surprises for you, Basha. Later, a young honored matre may murmur her name to mark you. Praise Dur if that happens. He nodded, not understanding much of what she said. This is a very old building, she said. I watched you when you came in. Does that surprise you too? No. This building has remained essentially unchanged for several thousand years. It is built of materials that will last much longer still. He glanced at the table. Oh, not the wood, but underneath it's polastine, polaz, and pormabat. The three P.O.s are never sneered at where necessity calls for them. Teg remained silent. Necessity, she said. Do you object to any of the necessary things that have been done to you? My objections don't matter, he said. What was she getting at? Studying him, of course, as he studied her. Do you think others have ever objected to what you did to them? Undoubtedly. You're a natural commander, Basha. I think you'll be very valuable to us. I've always thought I was most valuable to myself. Asha, look at my eyes. He obeyed, seeing little flecks of orange drifting in across the whites. The sense of peril was acute. If you ever see my eyes fully orange, beware, she said. 
you will have offended me beyond my ability to tolerate. He nodded. I like it that you can command, but you cannot command me. You command the muck, and that is the only function we have for such as you. The muck? She waved a hand, a negligent motion, out there. You know them. Their curiosity is narrow gauge. No great issues ever enter their awareness. I thought that was what you meant. We work to keep it that way, she said. Everything goes to them through a tight filter, which excludes all but that which has immediate survival value. No great issues, he said. You are offended, but it doesn't matter, she said. To those out there, a great issue is, will I eat today? Do I have shelter tonight that will not be invaded by attackers or vermin? Luxury? Luxury is the possession of a drug or a member of the opposite sex who can, for a time, keep the beast at bay. And you are the beast, he thought. I am taking some time with you, Basha, because I see that you could be more valuable to us even than Muzaffar. And he is extremely valuable indeed. Even now, we are repaying him for bringing you to us in a receptive condition. When Teg still remained silent, she chuckled. You do not think you are receptive? Teg held himself quiet. Had they given him some drug in his food? He saw the flickering of doubled vision, but the movements of violence had receded as the orange flecks left the honoured Matre's eyes. Her feet were to be avoided, though. They were deadly weapons. It's just that you think of the muck in the wrong way, she said. Luckily, they are most self-limiting. They know this somewhere in the damps of their deepest consciousness, but cannot spare the time to deal with that or anything else except the immediate scramble for survival. They cannot be improved, he asked. They must not be improved. Oh, we see to it that self-improvement remains a great fad among them. Nothing real about it, of course. Another luxury they must be denied, he said. Not a luxury. Non-existent. It must be occluded at all times, behind a barrier that we like to call protective ignorance. What you don't know cannot hurt you. I don't like your tone, Basha. Again the orange flecks danced in her eyes. The sense of violence diminished, however, as she once more chuckled. The thing you beware of is the opposite of what you don't know. We teach that new knowledge can be dangerous. You see the obvious extension? All new knowledge is non-survival. The door behind the honoured Matre opened and Muzaffar returned. It was a changed Muzaffar, his face flushed, his eyes bright. He stopped behind the honoured Matre's chair. One day I will be able to permit you behind me this way, she said. It is in my power to do this. What have they done to Muzaffar? Teg wondered. The man looked almost drugged. You do see that I have power? she asked. He cleared his throat. That's obvious. I am a banker, remember? We have just made a deposit with our loyal Muzaffar. 
Do you thank us, Muzaffar? I do, honored Matre. His voice was hoarse. I'm sure you understand this kind of power generally, Basha, she said. The Bene Gesserit trained you well. They are quite talented, but not, I fear, as talented as we are. And I am told you are quite numerous, he said. Our numbers are not the key, Basha. Power such as ours has a way of becoming channeled so that it can be controlled by small numbers. She was like a reverend mother, he thought, in the way she could appear to answer without revealing much. In essence, she said, power such as ours is allowed to become the substance of survival for many people. Then the threat of withdrawal is all that's required for us to rule. She glanced over her shoulder. Would you wish us to withdraw our favor from you, Muzaffar? No, honored Matre. He was actually trembling. You have found a new drug, Teg said. Her laughter was spontaneous and loud, almost raucous. No, Basha, we have made an old one. And you would make an addict of me? Like all the others we control, Basha, you have a choice. Death or obedience. That is a rather old choice, he agreed. What was her immediate threat? He could sense no violence, quite the contrary. His doubled vision showed him broken glimpses of extremely sensuous overtones. Did they think they could imprint him? She smiled at him, a knowing expression with something frigid under it. Will he serve us well, Muzaffar? I believe so, honored Matre. Teg frowned in thought. There was something deeply evil about this pair. They went against every morality by which he modelled his behaviour. It was well to remember that neither of them knew this strange thing that had speeded his reactions. They seemed to be enjoying his puzzled discomfiture. Teg took some reassurance from the realisation that neither of these two really enjoyed life. He could see that in them clearly, with eyes the sisterhood had educated. The honoured Matre and Muzaffar had forgotten, or most likely abandoned everything that supported the survival of joyous humans. He thought they probably no longer were capable of finding a real wellspring of joy in their own flesh. Theirs would have to be a mostly voyeur's existence, the eternal observer, always remembering what it had been like before they had taken the turning into whatever it was they had become. Even when they wallowed in the performance of something that once had meant gratification, they would have to reach for new extremes each time just to touch the edges of their own memories. The honoured Matre's grin widened, showing a line of gleaming white teeth. Look at him, Muzavar. He has not the slightest conception of what we can do. Take heard this, but he also saw with eyes trained by the Bene Gesserit. Not a milligram of naivety remained in either of these two. Nothing was expected to surprise them. Nothing could be truly new for them. Still, they plotted and devised, hoping that this extreme would produce the remembered thrill. They knew it would not, of course, and they expected to carry away from the experience only more burning rage out of which to fashion another attempt at the unreachable. That was how their thinking went. Teg designed a smile for them, using all of the skills he had learned at Bene Gesserit hands. It was a smile full of compassion, of understanding, and real pleasure in his own existence. He knew it for the most deadly insult he could hurl at them, and he saw it hit. 
Muzaffar glowered at him. The honoured Matre went from orange-eyed rage to an abrupt surprise, and then, quite slowly, to dawning pleasure. She had not expected this. It was something new. Muzaffar, she said, the orange receding from her eyes. Bring the honoured Matre, who has been chosen to mark our basha. Teg, his doubled vision showing the immediate peril, understood at last. He could feel awareness of his own future spreading outward like waves as the power grew in him. A wild change in him was continuing. He felt the energy expand. With it came understanding and choices— he saw himself as the whirlwind rampaging through this building, bodies scattered behind him, Muzaffar and the honoured Matre among them, and the whole complex looking like an abattoir when he departed. Must I do that? he wondered. For each one he killed, more would have to be killed. He saw the necessity of it, though, as he saw at last the tyrant's design. The pain he could see for himself almost made him cry out, but he held it back. Yes. Bring this honoured Matre to me, he said, knowing that this would be one less for him to seek out and destroy elsewhere in the building. The room of the Scanlizer controls must be taken out first. O oh, you who know what we suffer here, do not forget us in your prayers. Sign over Arakeen Landing Field. Historical Records, Dar es Balat. Teraza watched a snow flutter of falling blossoms against the silvery sky of Arachian morning. There was an opalescent sheen to the sky that, despite all of her preparatory briefings, she had not anticipated. Rakis held many surprises. The smell of mock orange was powerful here at the edge of the Dares Balat roof garden, overriding all other odours. Never believe that you have plumbed the depths of any place, or of any human, she reminded herself. Conversation was ended out here, but not the echoes of the spoken thoughts they had exchanged only minutes ago. All agreed, though, that it was time for action. Soon, Shiana would dance a worm for them, and once more demonstrate her mastery. Waff and a new priestly representative would share this holy event, but Teraza was sure neither of them knew the real nature of what they were about to witness. Waff bore watching, of course. He still carried that air of irritated disbelief in everything he saw or heard. It was a strange mixture with his underlying awe at being on Rackers. The catalyst was obviously his rage over the fact that fools ruled here. Audrade returned from the meeting room and stopped beside Teraza. I am extremely disquieted by the reports from Gamu, Teraza said. Do you bring something new? No, things are obviously still chaotic there. Tell me, Da, what do you think we should do? I keep remembering the tyrant's words to Chenoue. The Bene Gesserit are so close to what they should be, yet so far. Teraza pointed at the open desert beyond the museum city's Kanat. He's still out there, Da. I'm sure of it. Teraza turned to face Odraid. And Shiana speaks to him. He told so many lies, Odraid said. But he didn't lie about his own incarnation. Remember what he said, every descendant part of me will carry some of my awareness locked away within it, lost and helpless. Pearls of me moving blindly in the sand, caught in an endless dream. You bank a great deal on your belief in the power of that dream, Odraid said. We must recover the tyrant's design, all of it. Odraid sighed but did not speak. 
Never underestimate the power of an idea, Teraza said. The Atreides were ever philosophers in their governance. Philosophy is always dangerous because it promotes the creation of new ideas. Still, Odrade did not respond. The worm carries it all within him, Da. All of the forces he set in motion are still in him. Are you trying to convince me or yourself, Ta? I am punishing you, Da, just as the tyrant is still punishing us. For not being what we should be? Ah, here comes Shiana and the others. The worm's language, Da. That is the important thing. If you say so, Mother Superior. Teraza sent an angry stare at Adred, who moved forward to greet the newcomers. There was a disturbing gloom in Odred. The presence of Shiana, though, restored Teraza's sense of purpose. An alert little thing, Shiana. Very good material. Shiana had demonstrated her dance the previous night, performing in the great museum room against a tapestry background, an exotic dance against an exotic spice fibre hanging with its image of desert and worms. She appeared to be almost a part of the hanging, a figure projected forward from the stylized dunes and their elaborately detailed coursing worms. Teraza recalled how Shiana's brown hair had been thrown outward by the whirling movements of the dance, swinging in a fuzzy arc. Side-lighting accented the reddish glints in her hair. Her eyes had been closed, but it was not a face in repose. Excitement betrayed itself in the passionate set of her wide mouth, the flaring of her nostrils, the forward thrust of her chin. Her motions had conveyed an inner sophistication that belied her youth. The dance is her language, Teraza thought. Odrade is correct. Seeing it, we will learn it. Woff had something of a withdrawn look this morning. It was difficult to determine if his eyes were looking outward or inward. With Waf was Talushan, a darkly handsome Rakian, the priesthood's chosen representative at today's holy event. Teraza, meeting him at the demonstration dance, had found it extraordinary how Talushan never needed to say but, and yet the word was always there in everything he uttered. A perfect bureaucrat. He rightly expected to go far, but those expectations would soon encounter their ultimate surprise. She felt no pity for him at this knowledge. Tolushan was a soft-faced youth, of too few standards for such a position of trust. There was more to him than met the eye, of course. And less. Waff moved to one side in the garden, leaving Odrade and Shiana with Tolushan. The young priest was expendable, naturally. That explained much about why he had been chosen for this venture. It told her that she had achieved the proper level of potential violence. Teraza did not think, though, that any of the priestly factions would dare harm Shiana. We will stay close to Shiana. They had spent a busy week since the demonstration of the whore's sexual accomplishments. A very disturbing week when it came to that. Odrade had been kept busy with Shiana. Teraza would have preferred Lucilla for this educational chore, but she made do with what was available and Odrade obviously was the best available on Rakis for such teaching. Teraza looked back toward the desert. They were waiting for the Thopters from Keen with their cargoes of very important observers. The VIOs were not yet late, but crowding it as such people always did. Shiana seemed to be taking the sexual education well, although Teraza's estimation of the sisterhood's available teaching males on Rakis was not high. Her first night here, Teraza had called in one of the servant males, Afterward, she had judged it too much trouble for the little joy and forgetfulness it provided. Besides, what was there to forget? 
To forget was to allow a weakness. Never forget. That's what the whores did, though. They traded in forgetfulness, and they had not the least awareness of the tyrant's continuing, vice-like hold on human destiny, nor of the need to break that hold. Teraza had listened secretly to the previous day's session between Shiana and Odraid. What was I listening for? Young girl and teacher had been out here in the roof garden, facing each other on two benches, a portable Ixian damper hiding their words from anyone who did not have the coded translator. The suspenser boy damper hovered between the two like a strange umbrella, a black disc projecting distortions that hid the precise movements of lips and the sounds of voices. To Teraza, standing within the long meeting room, the tiny translator in her left ear, the lesson had occurred like an equally distorted memory. When I was taught these things, we had not seen what the whores of the scattering could do. Why do you say it's the complexity of sex? Shiana asked. The man you sent last night kept saying that. Many believe they understand it, Shiana. Perhaps no one has ever understood it because such words require more of the mind than they do of the flesh. Why must I not use any of the things we saw the face dancers do? Shiana, complexity hides within complexity. Great deeds and foul ones have been done at the goading of sexual forces. We speak of sexual strength and sexual energies and such things as the overmounting urge of desire. I don't deny that such things are observable, but what we are looking at here is a force so powerful that it can destroy you and everything you hold worthwhile. That's what I'm trying to understand. What is it the horrors are doing wrong? They ignore the species at its work, Shiana. I think you can already sense this. The tyrant certainly knew about it. What was his golden path but a vision of sexual forces at work, recreating humankind endlessly? And the horrors don't create? They mostly try to control their worlds with this force. They seem to be doing that. Ah, but what counter-forces do they call forth? I don't understand. You know about voice and how it can control some people, but not control everybody? Exactly. A civilization subjected to voice over a long period develops ways of adapting to this force, preventing manipulation by those who use voice. So there are people who know how to resist the horse. We see unmistakable signs of it and that is one of the reasons we are here on Rakis. Will the whores come here? I'm afraid so. They want to control the core of the old empire, because they see us as an easy conquest. Aren't you afraid they'll win? They won't win, Shiana. Depend on it. But they are good for us. How is that? Shiana's tone echoed Teraz's own shock at hearing such words from Odraid. How much did Odraid suspect? In the next instant, Teraza understood, and she wondered if the lesson was equally understandable to the young girl. The core is static, Shiana. We have been almost at a standstill for thousands of years. Life and movement are out there with the people of the scattering who resist the whores. Whatever we do, we must make that resistance even stronger. The sound of approaching thopters broke Teraza from her reverie of remembrance, the VIOs were arriving from Keene, still at some distance, but the sound carried far in the clear air. Odraid's teaching method was a good one, Teraza had to admit as she scanned the sky for a first glimpse of the thopters. Apparently they were coming in low and from the other side of the building. That was the wrong direction, 
but perhaps they had taken the VIOs on a short excursion over the remains of the tyrant's wall. Many people were curious about the place where Odraid had found the spice hoard. Shiana, Odraid, Waff, and Lucian went back into the long meeting room. They had heard the thopters too. Shiana was anxious to show her power over the worms. Teraza hesitated. There was a laboring sound in the approaching thopters. Were they overloaded? How many observers had they brought? The first thopter lifted over the penthouse roof and Teraza saw the armored cockpit. She recognized treachery even before the first beam arced out of the machine, slicing through her legs below the knees. She fell heavily against a potted tree, her legs completely severed. Another beam slashed out at her, slicing at an angle across her hip. The thopter swept over her in an abrupt roar of booster jets and banked away to the left. Teraza clung to the tree, shunting the agony aside. She managed to cut off most of the blood flow from her wounds, but the pain was great. Not as great as the spice agony, though, she reminded herself. That helped, but she knew she was doomed. She heard shouts and the multiple sounds of violence all around the museum now. I have won, Teraza thought. Odraid darted from the penthouse and bent over Teraza. They said nothing, but Odraid showed that she understood by putting her forehead to Teraza's temple. It was the ages-old cue of the Bene Gesserit. Teraza began pouring her life into Odraid. Other memories, hopes, fears, everything. One of them might yet escape. Shiana watched from the penthouse, staying where she had been ordered to wait. She knew what was happening out there in the roof garden. This was the ultimate mystery of the Bene Gesserit, and every postulant was aware of it. Waff and Talushan, already out of the room when the attack came, did not return. Shiana shuddered with apprehension. Abruptly, Odraid stood and ran back into the penthouse. There was a wild look in her eyes, but she moved with purpose. Leaping up, she gathered glow globes, grabbing them in bundles by their toggle cords. She thrust several bundles into Shiana's hands, and Shiana felt her body grow lighter with the lift of the globe's suspensor fields. Trailing more clusters of the globes beyond their field range, Odraid hurried across to the narrow end of the room where a grill in the wall indicated what she sought. With Shiana's help, she lifted the grill out of its slots, revealing a deep air shaft. The light of the clustered glow globes showed rough walls inside. Hold the globes close to get the maximum field effect, Odraid said. Push them away to lower yourself. In you go. Shiana clutched the toggle cords in a sweaty hand and hopped over the sill. She let herself fall, then fearfully clutched the globes close. Light from above told her Odraid was following. At the bottom they emerged into a pump room, the susurrations of many fans a background for the sounds of violence from outside. We must get to the no room and then to the desert, Odraid said. All of these machinery systems are interconnected. There will be a passage. Is she dead? Shiana whispered. Yes. Poor Mother Superior. I am the Mother Superior now, Shiana, at least temporarily. She pointed upward. Those were the whores attacking us. We must hurry. The world is for the living. Who are they? We dared the dark to reach the white and warm. She was the wind when the wind was in my way. Alive at noon I perished in her form. Who rise from the flesh to spirit know the fall. The word outleaps the world, and light is all. Theodore Retke, Historical Quotations, 
Doris Ballard. It required little conscious volition for Tegg to become the whirlwind. He had recognized at last the nature of the threat from the honored Martres. Recognition fitted itself into the blurred requirements made upon him by the new mentat awareness that went with his magnified speed. Monstrous threat required monstrous countermeasures. Blood spattered him as he drove himself through the headquarters building, slaughtering everyone he met. As he had learned from his Bene Gesserit teachers, the great problem of the human universe lay in how you managed procreation. He could hear the voice of his first teacher as he carried destruction through the building. You may think of this only as sexuality, but we prefer the more basic term, procreation. It has many facets and offshoots, and it has apparently unlimited energy. The emotion called love is only one small aspect. Tegg crushed the throat of a man standing rigidly in his path and, at last, found the control room for the building's defences. Only one man was seated in it, his right hand almost touching a red key on the console in front of him. With a slashing left hand, Teg almost decapitated the man, the body tipped backward in slow motion, blood welling from the gaping neck. The sisterhood is right to call them whores. You could drag humankind almost anywhere by manipulating the enormous energies of procreation. You could goad humans into actions they would never have believed possible. One of his teachers had said it directly. This energy must have an outlet. Bottle it up and it becomes monstrously dangerous. Redirect it and it will sweep over anything in its path. This is an ultimate secret of all religions. Tegg was conscious of leaving more than fifty bodies behind him as he left the building. The last fatality was a soldier in camouflage uniform standing in the open doorway apparently about to enter. As he ran past apparently unmoving people and vehicles, Tegg's revved-up mind had time to reflect on what he had left behind him. Was there any consolation, he wondered, in the fact that the old honoured Matre's last living expression was one of real surprise? Could he congratulate himself that Muzaffar would never again see his frame-bush home? The necessity for what he had accomplished in a few heartbeats was very clear, though, to one trained by the Bene Gesserit. Teg knew his history. There were many paradise planets in the old empire, probably many more among the people of the scattering. Humans always seemed capable of trying that foolish experiment. People in such places mostly lazed along. A quick, smart analysis said this was because of the easy climates on such planets. He knew this for stupidity. It was because sexual energy was easily released in such places. Let the missionaries of the divided god or some denominational construct enter one of these paradises and you got outrageous violence. We of the Sisterhood know, one of Tegg's teachers had said, we have put a flame to that fuse more than once with our Missionaria Protectiva. Tegg did not stop running until he was in an alley at least five kilometres from the abattoir that had been the headquarters for the old honoured Matre. He knew that very little time had passed, but there was something much more important upon which he had to focus. He had not killed every occupant of that building, There were eyes back there belonging to people who knew now what he could do. They had seen him kill honored matres. They had seen Muzaffar topple dead at his hands. The evidence of the bodies left behind and the slowed replay of recordings would tell it all. Teg leaned against a wall. Skin was torn from his left palm. He let himself return to normal time as he watched blood oozing from the wound, 
The blood was almost black. More oxygen in my blood? He was panting, but not as much as these exertions would seem to require. What has happened to me? It was something from his Atreides ancestry, he knew. Crisis had tipped him over into another dimension of human possibilities. Whatever the transformation, it was profound. He could see outward now into many necessities, and the people he had passed on his run to this alley had seemed like statues. Will I ever think of them as muck? It could only happen if he let it happen, he knew. But the temptation was there, and he allowed himself a brief commiseration for the honoured matres. Great temptation had toppled them into their own muck. What to do now? The main line lay open to him. There was a man here in Yasai, one man who would be sure to know everything Teg required. Teg looked around the alley. Yes, that man was near. The fragrance of flowers and herbs wafted to Teg from somewhere down this alley. He moved toward this fragrance, aware that it led him where he needed to go and that no violent attack awaited him here. This was temporarily a quiet backwater. He came to the fragrant source quickly. It was an inset doorway marked by a blue awning with two words on it in modern Gallic: Personal service. Teg entered and saw immediately what he had found. They were to be seen at many places in the old empire, eating establishments harking back to ancient times, eschewing automata from kitchen to table. Most of them were in establishments, you told friends about your latest discovery with an admonition to them not to spread the word. Don't want to spoil it with crowding. This idea had always amused Teg. You spread the word about such places, but you did it under the guise of keeping a secret. Mouth-watering odors of cooking emerged from the kitchen at the rear. A waiter passed bearing a tray from which steam lifted, carrying the promise of good things. A young woman in a short black dress with a white apron came up to him. This way, sir. We have a table open in the corner. She held a chair for him to be seated with his back to the wall. Someone will be with you in a moment, sir. She passed him a stiff sheet of cheap, double-thickness paper. Our menu is printed. I hope you won't mind. He watched her leave. The waiter he had seen passed going the other way toward the kitchen. The tray was empty. Take's feet had led him here as though he had been running on a fixed track. And there was the man he required, dining nearby. The waiter had stopped to talk to the man Teg knew held the answer to the next moves required here. The two were laughing together. Teg scanned the rest of the room, only three other tables occupied. An older woman sat at a table in the far corner, nibbling at some frosty confection. She was dressed in what Teg thought must be the peak of current fashion, a clinging short red gown cut low at the neck. Her shoes matched. A young couple sat at a table off to his right. They saw no one except each other. An older man in a tightly fitted old-fashioned brown tunic ate sparingly of a green vegetable dish near the door. He had eyes only for his food. The man talking to the waiter laughed loudly. Teg stared at the back of the waiter's head. Tufts of blonde hair sprang from the nape of the waiter's neck like broken bunches of dead grass. The man's collar was frayed beneath the tufted hair. Teg lowered his gaze. The waiter's shoes were run over at the heels. The hem of his black jacket had been darned. Was it thrift in this place? Thrift or some other form of economic pressure? The odors from the kitchen did not suggest any stinting here. The tableware was shining and clean, 
no cracked dishes. But the striped red and white cloth on the table had been darned in several places, care taken to match the original fabric. Once more, Teg studied the other customers. They looked substantial. None of the starving poor in this place. Teg had it registered then. Not only was this an in place, somebody had designed it for just that effect. There was a clever mind behind such an establishment. This was the kind of restaurant that rising young executives revealed to make points with prospective customers or to please a superior. The food would be superb and the portions generous. Teg realized that his instincts had led him here correctly. He bent his attention to the menu then, allowing hunger to enter his consciousness at last. The hunger was at least as fierce as that which had astonished the late Field Marshal Muzaffar. The waiter appeared beside him with a tray on which were placed a small open box and a jar from which wafted the pungent odour of new-skin ointment. "'I see you have injured your hand, Basha,' the man said. He placed the tray on the table. "'Allow me to dress the injury before you order.' Teg lifted the injured hand and watched the swift competence of the treatment. "'You know me?' Teg asked. "'Yes, sir. And after what I've been hearing—' It seems strange to see you in full uniform. There, he finished the dressing. What have you been hearing? Teg spoke in a low voice. That the honoured Martres hunt you. I've just killed some of them, and many of their... What should we call them? The man paled, but he spoke firmly. Slaves would be a good word, sir. You were at Rondetai, weren't you? Teg said. Yes, sir. Many of us settled here afterward. I need food, but I cannot pay you, Teg said. No one from Rondetai has need of your money, Basha. Do they know you came this way? I don't believe they do. The people here now are regulars. None of them would betray you. I will try to warn you if someone dangerous comes. What did you wish to eat? A great deal of food. I will leave the choice to you. About twice as much carbohydrate as protein. No stimulants. What do you mean by a great deal, sir? Keep bringing it until I tell you to stop. Or until you feel I have overstepped your generosity. In spite of appearances, sir, this is not a poor establishment. The extras here have made me a rich man. Score one for his assessment, Teg thought. The thrift here was a calculated pose. The waiter left and again spoke to the man at the central table. Teg studied the man openly after the waiter went on into the kitchen. Yes, that was the man. The diner concentrated on a plate heaped with some green-garnished pasta. There was very little sign in this man of a woman's care, Teg thought. His collar had been closed awry, the cling straps tangled. Spots on the greenish sauce soiled his left cuff. He was naturally right-handed, but ate while his left hand remained in the path of spillage. Frayed cuffs on his trousers, one trouser hem partly released from its threaded bondage, dragged at the heel. Stockings mismatched, one blue and one pale yellow. None of this appeared to bother him. No mother or other woman had ever dragged this one back from a doorway with orders to make himself presentable. His basic attitude was announced in his whole appearance. What you see is as presentable as it gets. The man looked up suddenly a jerking motion as though he had been goosed. He sent a brown-eyed gaze around the room, pausing at each face in turn as though he looked for a particular visage. This done, he returned his attention to his plate. The waiter returned with a clear soup in which shreds of egg 
and some green vegetables could be seen. While the rest of your meal is being prepared, sir, he said. Did you come here directly after Rondetai? Teg asked. Yes, sir, but I served with you also at a Klein. The 67th Gamu, Teg said. Yes, sir. We saved a good many lives that time, Teg said. Theirs and ours. When Teg still did not begin eating, the waiter spoke in a rather cold voice. Would you require a snooper, sir? Not while you're serving me, Teg said. He meant what he said, but he felt a bit of a fraud, because doubled vision told him the food was safe. The waiter started to turn away, pleased. One moment, Teg said. Sir? The man at that central table. He is one of your regulars? Professor Delnay? Oh, yes, sir. Delnay. Yes, I thought so. Professor of martial arts, sir. And the history of same? I know. When it comes time to serve my dessert, please ask Professor Delnay if he would join me. Shall I tell him who you are, sir? Don't you think he already knows? That would seem likely, sir, but still. Caution where caution belongs, Teg said. Bring on the food. Delnay's interest was fully aroused long before the waiter relayed Teg's invitation. The professor's first words as he seated himself across from Teg were, That was the most remarkable gastronomic performance I have ever seen. Are you sure you can eat a dessert? Two or three of them at least, Teg said. Astonishing! Teg sampled a spoonful of a honey-sweetened confection. He swallowed it, then, This place is a jewel. I have kept it a careful secret, Delnay said, except for a few close friends, of course. To what do I owe the honour of your invitation? Have you ever been, ah, uh, marked by an honoured matre? Lords of perdition, no. I'm not important enough for that. I was hoping to ask you to risk your life, Delnay. In what way? No hesitation. That was reassuring. There is a place in Yasai where my old soldiers meet. I want to go there and see as many of them as possible. Through the streets in full regalia the way you are now? In any way you can arrange it. Delnay put a finger to his lower lip and leaned back to stare at Teg. You're not an easy figure to disguise, you know. However, there may be a way, he nodded thoughtfully. Yes, he smiled. You won't like it, I'm afraid. What do you have in mind? Some padding and other alterations. We will pass you off as a Bordano overseer. You'll smell of the sewer, of course, and you'll have to carry it off that you don't notice. Why do you think that will succeed? Teg asked. Oh, there's going to be a storm tonight. Regular thing this time of year, laying down the moisture for next year's open crops and filling the reservoirs for the heated fields, you know. I don't understand your reasoning, but when I've finished another of these confections, we'll go, Teg said. You'll like the place where we take refuge from the storm, Delnay said. I'm mad, you know, to do this, but the proprietor here said I was to help you or never come here again. It was an hour after dark when Delnay led him to the rendezvous point. Teg, dressed in leathers and affecting a limp, was forced to use much of his mental power to ignore his own odours. Delnay's friends had plastered Teg with sewage and then hosed him off. The forced air drying brought back most of the effluent aromas. A remote reading weather station at the door of the meeting place told Teg it had dropped fifteen degrees outside in the preceding hour. Delnay preceded him and hurried away into the crowded room, where there was much noise and the sound of clinking glassware. Teg paused to study the doorside station, 
The wind was gusting to thirty clicks, he saw, barometric pressure down. He looked at the sign above the station. A service to our customers. Presumably a service to the bar as well. Departing customers might well take one look at these readings and return to the warmth and camaraderie behind them. In a large fireplace with Inglenook at the far end of the bar, there was a real fire burning. Aromatic wood. Delnay returned, wrinkled his nose at Teg's smell, and led him around the edge of the crowd into a back room, then through this into a private bathroom. Teg's uniform, cleaned and pressed, was laid out over a chair there. I'll be in the Inglenook when you come out, Delnay said. In full regalia, eh? Teg asked. It's only dangerous out in the streets, Delnay said. He went back the way they had come. Teg emerged presently and found his way to the Inglenook through groups that turned suddenly silent as people recognized him. Murmurous comments swept through the room. The old basher himself. Oh yes, it's Teg. Served with him, I did. Know that face and figure anywhere. Customers had crowded into the atavistic warmth of the fireside. There was a rich smell of wet clothing and drink-fogged breaths there. So the storm had driven this crowd into the bar? Teg looked at the battle-hardened military faces all around him, thinking that this was not a usual gathering, no matter what Delnay said. The people here knew one another, though, and had expected to meet one another here at this time. Delnay was sitting on one of the benches in the Inglenook, a glass containing an amber drink in his hand. You put out the word to meet us here, Teg said. Isn't that what you wanted, Basha? Who are you, Delnay? I own a winter farm a few clicks south of here and I have some banker friends who will occasionally loan me a ground car. If you want me to be more specific, I'm like the rest of the people in this room, someone who wants the honoured matres off our necks. A man behind Teg asked, Is it true that you killed a hundred of them today, Basha? Teg spoke dryly without turning. The number is greatly exaggerated. Could I have a drink, please? From his greater height, Teg scanned the room while someone was getting him a glass. When it was thrust into his hand, it was, as he expected, the deep blue of Danian Marinette. These old soldiers knew his preferences. The drinking activity in the room continued, but at a more subdued pace. They were waiting for him to state his purpose. Gregarious human nature got a natural boost on such a stormy night, Teg thought. Band together behind the fire in the mouth of the cave, fellow tribesmen. Nothing dangerous will get past us, especially when the beasts see our fire. How many other similar gatherings were there around Gamu on such a night, he wondered, sipping his drink. Bad weather could mask movements that the gathered companions did not want observed. The weather might also keep certain people inside who were otherwise not supposed to remain inside. He recognized a few faces from his past, officers and ordinary soldiers, a mixed bag. For some of them he had good memories, reliable people. Some of them would die tonight. The noise level began to increase as people relaxed in his presence. No one pressed him for an explanation. They knew that about him, too. Teg set his own timetable. The sounds of conversation and laughter were of a kind he knew must have accompanied such gatherings since the dawn times when humans clustered for mutual protection. Clinking of glassware, sudden bursts of laughter, a few quiet chuckles. Those would be the ones more conscious of their personal power. Quiet chuckles, said you could be amused, but you did not have to make a guffawing fool of yourself. Delnay was a quiet chuckler. 
Tegg glanced up and saw that the beamed ceiling had been built conventionally low. It made the enclosed space seem at once more extended and yet more intimate. Careful attention to human psychology here. It was a thing he had observed many places on this planet. It was a care to keep a damper on unwanted awareness, make them feel comfortable and secure. They were not, of course, but don't let that get through to them. For a few moments longer, Teg watched the drinks being distributed by the skilled waiting staff, dark local beers and some expensive imports. Scattered along the bar and on the softly illuminated tables were bowls containing crisp fried local vegetables, heavily salted. Such an obvious move to heighten thirst apparently offended no one. It was merely expected in this trade. The beers would be heavily salted, too, of course. They always were. Brewers knew how to kick off the thirst response. Some of the groups were getting louder. The drinks had begun to work their ancient magic. Bacchus was here. Teg knew that if this gathering were allowed to run its natural course, the room would reach a crescendo later in the night, and then gradually, very gradually, the noise level would subside. Someone would go look at the doorside weather station. Depending on what that one saw, the place might wind down immediately or continue at the more subdued pace for some time. He realized then that somewhere behind the bar there would be a way to distort the weather station's readouts. This bar would not overlook such a way of extending its trade. Get him inside and keep him here by any means they don't find objectionable. The people behind this institution would fall in with the honoured Martres and not blink an eye. Teg put his drink aside and called out, May I have your attention, please? Silence. Even the waiting staff stopped in what they were doing. Some of you guard the doors. Teg said. No one goes in or out until I give the order. Those back doors too, if you please. When this had been sorted out, he stared carefully around the room, picking the ones his doubled vision and old military experience told him could be most trusted. What he had to do now had become quite plain to him. Marley, Lucilla and Duncan were out there at the edge of his new vision, their needs easily seen. I presume you can get your hands on weapons rather quickly, he said. We came prepared, Basha, someone out in the room shouted. Teg heard the drink in that voice, but also the old adrenaline pumping that would be so dear to these people. We are going to capture a no-ship, Teg said. That grabbed them. No other artifact of civilization was as closely guarded. These ships came to the landing fields and other places, and they left. Their armoured surfaces bristled with weapons. Crews were on constant alert in vulnerable locations. Trickery might succeed, open assault stood little chance. But here in this room, Teg had reached a new awareness, driven by necessity and the wild genes in his Atreides ancestry. The positions of the no-ships on and around Gamu were visible to him. Bright dots occupied his inner vision, and, like threads leading from one bauble to another, his doubled vision saw the way through this maze. Oh, but I do not want to go, he thought. The thing driving him would not be denied. Specifically, we are going to capture a no-ship from the scattering, he said. They are some of the best. You, you and you and you, he pointed, singling out individuals. You will stay here and see that no one leaves or communicates with anyone outside of this establishment. I think you will be attacked. Hold out as long as you can. The rest of you, get your weapons, and let's go. Justice?
Who asks for justice? We make our own justice. We make it here on Arrakis, win or die. Let us not rail about justice as long as we have arms and the freedom to use them. Leto II, Bene Gesserit Archives The no-ship came in low over the Rakian sands. Its passage stirred up dusty whirlwinds that drifted around it as it settled in a crunching disturbance of the dunes. The silvered yellow sun was sinking into a horizon disturbed by the heat devils of a long, hot day. The no-ship sat there creaking, a glistening, steely ball whose presence could be detected by the eyes and ears, but not by any prescient or long-range instrument. Tegg's doubled vision made him confident that no unwanted eyes saw his arrival. "'I want the armoured thoptos and cars out there in no more than ten minutes,' he said. People stirred into action behind him. "'Are you certain they're here, Basha?' The voice was that of a drinking companion from the Gamu Bar, a trusted officer from Rondatai whose mood no longer was that of someone recapturing the thrills of his youth. This one had seen old friends die in the battle on Gamu. As with most of the others who survived to come here, he had left a family whose fate he did not know. There was a touch of bitterness in his voice, as though he were trying to convince himself that he had been tricked into this venture. They will be here soon, Teg said. They will arrive riding on the back of a worm. How do you know that? It was all arranged. Teg closed his eyes. He did not need eyes to see the activity all around him. This was like so many command posts he had occupied, an oval room of instruments and people who operated them, officers waiting to obey. What is this place? someone asked. Those rocks to the north of us, Teg said. See them? They were a high cliff once. It was called Wind Trap. There was a Fremen Sietch there, little more than a cave now. A few Rakian pioneers live in it. Fremen, someone whispered. Gods, I want to see that worm coming. I never thought I'd ever see such a thing. Another one of your unexpected arrangements, eh? asked the officer of the growing bitterness. What would he say if I revealed my new abilities? Teg wondered. He might think I concealed purposes that would not bear close examination. And he would be right. That man is on the edge of a revelation. Would he remain loyal if his eyes were opened? Teg shook his head. The officer would have little choice. None of them had much choice except to fight and die. It was true, Teg thought then, that the process of arranging conflicts involved the hoodwinking of large masses. How easy it was to fall into the attitude of the honoured matres. Muck. The hoodwinking was not as difficult as some supposed. Most people wanted to be led. That officer back there had wanted it. There were deep tribal instincts, powerful unconscious motivations to account for this. The natural reaction when you began to recognize how easily you were led was to look for scapegoats. That officer back there wanted a scapegoat now. Basmali wants to see you, someone off to Teg's left said. Not now, Teg said. Basmali could wait. He would have his day of command soon enough. Meanwhile, he was a distraction. There would be time later for him to skirt dangerously near the role of scapegoat. How easy it was to produce scapegoats and how readily they were accepted. This was especially true when the alternative was to find yourself either guilty or stupid or both. Teg wanted to say for all of those around him, Look to the hoodwinking, then you'll know our true intentions. The communications officer on Teg's left said, That Reverend Mother is with Bosmali now. 
She insists they be allowed in to see you. Tell Bursmardi I want him to go back and stay with Duncan, Teg said, and have him look in on Mabella. Make sure she's secured. Lucilla can come in. It had to be, Teg thought. Lucilla was increasingly suspicious about the changes in him. Trust a reverend mother to see the difference. Lucilla swept in, her robes swishing to accent her vehemence. She was angry, but concealing it well. I demand an explanation, Miles. That was a good opening line, he thought. Of what? he said. Why didn't we just go in at the— Because the honoured matres and their Trilaxu companions from the scattering hold most of the Rakian centres. How? How do you— They've killed Taraza, you know, he said. That stopped her, but not for long. Miles, I insist that you tell me— We don't have much time, he said. The next satellite passage will show us on the surface here. But the defences of Rakis— Are as vulnerable as any other defences when they become static, he said. The families of the defenders are down here. Take the families, and you have effective control of the defenders. But why are we out here in— To pick up Odraid and that girl with her. Oh, and their worm, too. What will we do with a— Odraid will know what to do with a worm. She's your mother superior now, you know. So you're going to whisk us off into— You'll whisk yourselves. My people and I will remain to create a diversion. That brought a shocked silence throughout the command station. Diversion, take thought. What an inadequate word. The resistance he had in mind would create hysteria among the honoured matres, especially when they were made to believe the Gola was here. Not only would they counterattack, they eventually would resort to sterilization procedures. Most of Rakis would become a charred ruin. There was little likelihood that any humans, worms, or sand trout would survive. The honoured matres have been trying to locate and capture a worm without success, he said. I really don't understand how they could be so blind in their concept of how you transplant one of them. Transplant? Lucilla was floundering. Take had seldom seen a reverend mother at such a loss. She was trying to assemble the things he had said. The sisterhood had some of the Mentat's capabilities, he had observed. A Mentat could come to a qualified conviction without sufficient data. He thought that he would be long out of her reach, or the reach of any other reverend mother, before she assembled this data. Then there would be a scrambling for his offspring. They would pick up Demela for their breeding mistresses, of course, and Odraid. She would not escape. They had the key to the Tleilaxu axolotl tanks, too. It would be only a matter of time now until the Bene Gesserit overcame its scruples and mastered that source of the spice. A human body produced it. We're in danger here, then, Lucilla said. Some danger, yes. The trouble with the honoured matres is that they're too wealthy. They make the mistakes of the wealthy. Depraved whores, she said. I suggest you get to the entry port, he said. Odraid will be here soon. She left him without another word. Armory's all out and deployed, the communications officer said. Alert Busmali to be ready for command here, Teg said. The rest of us will be going out soon. You expect all of us to join you? That was the one who looked for a scapegoat. I am going out, Teg said. I will go alone if necessary. Only those who wish need join me. After that, all of them would come, he thought. Peer pressure was little understood by anyone except those trained by the Bene Gesserit. 
It grew silent in the command station except for the faint hummings and clicks of instruments. Teg fell to thinking about the depraved whores. It was not correct to call them depraved, he thought. Sometimes the supremely rich did become depraved. That came from believing that money, power, could buy anything and everything. And why shouldn't they believe this? They saw it happening every day. It was easy to believe in absolutes. Hope springs eternal and all of that gornor. It was like another faith. Money would buy the impossible. Then came depravity. It was not the same for the honoured matres. They were somehow beyond depravity. They had come through it, he could see that. But now they were into something else so far beyond depravity that Teg wondered if he really wanted to know about it. The knowledge was there, though, inescapable in his new awareness. Not one of those people would hesitate an instant before consigning an entire planet to torture, if that meant personal gain, or if the payoff were some imagined pleasure, or if the torture produced even a few more days or hours of living. What pleased them? What gratified? They were like Samuta addicts. Whatever simulated pleasure for them, they required more of it every time. And they know this. How they must rage inside, caught in such a trap. They had seen it all and none of it was enough, not good enough nor evil enough. They had entirely lost the knack of moderation. They were dangerous, though, and perhaps he was wrong about one thing. Perhaps they no longer remembered what it had been like before the awful transformation of that strange, tart-smelling stimulant that painted orange in their eyes. Memories of memories could become distorted. Every mentat was sensitized to this flaw in himself. There's the worm! It was the communications officer. Teg swiveled in his chair and looked at the projection, a miniature hollow of the exterior to the southwest. The worm with its two tiny dots of human passengers was a distant sliver of wriggling movement. Bring Audrey in here alone when they arrive, he said. Shiana, that's the young girl, will remain behind to help herd that worm into the hold. It will obey her. Be sure Basmali is standing ready nearby. We won't have much time for the transfer of command. When Audrey entered the command station, she was still breathing hard and exuding the smells of the desert, a compound of melange, flint, and human perspiration. Teg sat in his chair, apparently resting. His eyes remained closed. Audrey thought she had caught the Basha in an uncharacteristic attitude of repose, almost pensive. He opened his eyes then, and she saw the change about which Lucilla had only been able to blurt a small warning, along with a few hasty words about the Gola's transformation. What was it that had happened to Teg? He was almost posing for her, daring her to see it in him. The chin was firm and held slightly upthrust in his normal attitude of observation. The narrow face with its webwork of age lines had lost none of its alertness. The long, thin nose, so characteristic of the Corinos and Atreides in his ancestry, had grown a bit longer with advancing years, but the grey hair remained thick and that small peak at the forehead centred the observing gaze on his eyes. How did you know to meet us here? Audrey demanded. We had no idea where the worm was taking us. There are very few inhabited places here in the Meridian Desert, he said. Gambler's choice. This seemed likely. Gambler's choice? She knew the Mentat phrase, but had never understood it. Teg lifted himself from his chair. Take this ship and go to the place you know best, 
he said. Chapter House? She almost said it, but thought of the others around her, these military strangers Teg had assembled. Who were they? Lucilla's brief explanation did not satisfy. We changed Taraz's design somewhat, Teg said. The Gola does not stay. He must go with you. She understood. They would need Duncan Idaho's new talents to counter the whores. He was no longer merely bait for the destruction of Rakis. He will not be able to leave the no-ship's concealment, of course, Teg said. She nodded. Duncan was not shielded from prescient searchers, such as the guild navigators. Basha! It was the communications officer. We've been bleeped by a satellite. All right, you groundhogs, Teg shouted. Everybody outside get Basmali in here. A hatch at the rear of the station flew open. Basmali lunged through. Basha, what are we? No time. Take over. Teg lifted himself from his command chair and waved for Bursmali to take it. Odraid here will tell you where to go. On an impulse that he knew was partly vindictive, Teg grasped Odraid's left arm, leaned close and kissed her cheek. Do what you must, daughter, he whispered. That worm in the hold may soon be the only one in the universe. Odraid saw it then. Teg knew Teraz's complete design and intended to carry out his mother superior's orders to the very end. Do what you must. That said it all. We are not looking at a new state of matter, but at a newly recognized relationship between consciousness and matter, which provides a more penetrating insight into the workings of prescience. The oracle shapes a projected inner universe to produce new external probabilities out of forces that are not understood. There is no need to understand these forces before using them to shape the physical universe. Ancient metal workers had no need to understand the molecular and submolecular complexities of their steel, bronze, copper, gold, and tin. They invented mystical powers to describe the unknown while they continued to operate their forges and wield their hammers. Mother Superior Teraza, Argument in Council The ancient structure in which the Sisterhood secreted its chapter house, its archives, and the offices of its most sacrosanct leadership did not just make sounds in the night. The noises were more like signals. Odraid had learned to read those signals over her many years here. That particular sound there, that strained creaking, was a wooden beam in the floor not replaced in some eight hundred years. It contracted in the night to produce those sounds. She had Teraz's memories to expand on such signals. The memories were not fully integrated. There had been very little time. Here at night in Teraz's old working room, Odraid used a few available moments to continue the integration. Da and ta, one at last. That was a quite identifiable Teraza comment. To haunt the other memories was to exist on several planes simultaneously, some of them very deep, but Teraza remained near the surface. Odraid allowed herself to sink farther into the multiple existences. Presently she recognized a self who was currently breathing but remote, while others demanded that she plunge into the all-enfolding visions, everything complete with smells, touches, emotions, all of the originals held intact within her own awareness. It is unsettling to dream another's dreams. Teraza again. Teraza, 
who had played such a dangerous game with the future of the entire sisterhood hanging in the balance. How carefully she had timed the leaking of word to the whores that the Tleilaxu had built dangerous abilities into the Gola, and the attack on the Gamu Keep confirmed that the information had reached its source. The brutal nature of that attack, though, had warned Teraza that she had little time. The whores would be sure to assemble forces for the total destruction of Gamo just to kill that one Gola. So much had depended on Teg. She saw the Basha there in her own assemblage of other memories, the father she had never really known. I didn't know him at the end, either. It could be weakening to dig into those memories, but she could not escape the demands of that luring reservoir. Audrey thought of the tyrant's words, the terrible field of my past. Answers leap up like a frightened flock, blackening the sky of my inescapable memories. Odraid held herself like a swimmer, balanced just below the water's surface. I most likely will be replaced, Odraid thought. I may even be reviled. Melonda certainly was not giving easy agreement to the new state of command. No matter. Survival of the sisterhood was all that should concern any of them. Odraid floated up out of the other memories and lifted her gaze to look across the room into the shadowy niche where the bust of a woman could be discerned in the low light of the room's glow globes. The bust remained a vague shape in its shadows, but Odraid knew that face well. Chenoe, guardian symbol of Chapter House. There but for the grace of God. Every sister who came through the spice agony, as Chenoe had not, said or thought that same thing. But what did it really mean? Careful breeding and careful training produced the successful ones in sufficient numbers. Where was the hand of God in that? God certainly was not the worm they had brought from Rakis. Was the presence of God felt only in the successes of the sisterhood? I fall prey to the pretensions of my own missionaria protectiva. She knew that these were similar to thoughts and questions that had been heard in this room on countless occasions. Bootless. Still, she could not bring herself to remove that guardian bust from the niche where it had reposed for so long. I am not superstitious, she told herself. I am not a compulsive person. This is a matter of tradition. Such things have a value well known to us. Certainly, no bust of me will ever be so honoured. She thought of Wuff and his face dancers, dead, with Miles Tegg, in the terrible destruction of Rackus. It did not do to dwell on the bloody attrition being suffered in the old empire. Better to think about the muscles of retribution being created by the blundering violence of the honoured matres. Teg knew. The recently concluded council session had subsided in fatigue without firm conclusions. Audrey counted herself lucky to have diverted attention into a few immediate concerns dear to them all. The punishments. Those had occupied them for a time. Historical precedents fleshed out the archival analyses to a satisfying form. Those assemblages of humans who allied themselves with the honoured matres were in for some shocks. Ix would certainly overextend itself. They had not the slightest appreciation of how competition from the scattering would crush them. The guild would be shunted aside and made to pay dearly for its melange and its machinery. Guild and Ix, thrown together, would fall together. The fish speakers could be mostly ignored. Satellites of Ix, they were already fading into a past that humans would abandon. And the Bennett Tleilaks. Ah, yes, the Tleilaksu.
Waff had succumbed to the honored matres. He had never admitted it, but the truth was plain. Just once and with one of my own face dancers. Audrey smiled grimly, remembering her father's bitter kiss. I will have another niche made, she thought. I will commission another bust, Miles Tegg, the great heretic. Lucilla's suspicions about Tegg were disquieting, though. Had he been prescient at last and able to see the no-ships? Well, the breeding mistresses could explore those suspicions. We have lagered up, Belonda accused. They all knew the meaning of that word. They had retreated into a fortress position for the long night of the whores. Audrey realized she did not much care for Belonda, the way she laughed occasionally to expose those wide, blunt teeth. They had discussed the cell samples from Shiana for a long time. The proof of Siona was there. She had the ancestry that shielded her from prescience and could leave the no-ship. Duncan was an unknown. Audrey turned her thoughts to the gola out there in the grounded no-ship. Lifting herself from the chair, she crossed to the dark window and looked in the direction of the distant landing field. Did they dare risk releasing Duncan from the shielding of that ship? The cell studies said he was a mixture of many Idaho golas, some descendant of Siona. But what of the taint from the original? No, he must remain confined. And what of Mabella? Pregnant Mabella. An honored matre dishonored. The Trilaxu intended for me to kill the imprinter, Duncan said. Will you try to kill the whore? That was Lucilla's question. She is not an imprinter. Duncan said. The council had discussed at length the possible nature of the bonding between Duncan and Mabella. Lucilla maintained there was no bonding at all, that the two remained wary opponents. Best not to risk putting them together. The sexual prowess of the whores would have to be studied at length, though. Perhaps a meeting between Duncan and Mabella in the no-ship could be risked, with careful, protective measures, of course. Lastly, she thought about the worm in the no-ship's hold, a worm nearing the moment of its metamorphosis. A small earth-dammed basin filled with melange awaited that worm. When the moment came, it would be lured out by Shiana into the bath of melange and water. The resulting sand trout could then begin their long transformation. You were right, father. It was so simple when you looked at it clearly. No need to seek a desert planet for the worms. The sand trout would create their own habitat for Shai Hulud. It was not pleasant to think of Chapter House Planet transformed into vast areas of wasteland, but it had to be done. The last will and testament of Miles Tegg, which he had planted in the no-ship's submolecular storage systems, could not be discredited. Even Belonda agreed to that. Chapter House required a complete revision of all its historical records. A new look had been demanded of them by what Tegg had seen of the Lost Ones, the whores from the scattering. You seldom learn the names of the truly wealthy and powerful. You see only their spokesmen. The political arena makes a few exceptions to this, but does not reveal the full power structure. The Mentat philosopher had chewed deep into everything they accepted, and what he disgorged did not agree with archival dependence upon our inviolate summations. We knew it, Miles. We just never faced up to it. We're all going to be digging in our other memories for the next few generations. Fixed data storage systems could not be trusted. If you destroy most copies, time will take care of the rest.
how the archives had raged at that telling pronouncement by the basher. The writing of history is largely a process of diversion. Most historical accounts divert attention from the secret influences around the recorded events. That was the one that had brought down Belonda. She had taken it up on her own, admitting, The few histories that escape this restrictive process vanish into obscurity through obvious processes. Teg had listed some of the processes. Destruction of as many copies as possible, burying the two revealing accounts in ridicule, ignoring them in the centres of education, ensuring that they are not quoted elsewhere, and, in some cases, elimination of the authors. Not to mention the scapegoat process that brought death to more than one messenger bearing unwelcome news, Odraid thought. She recalled an ancient ruler who kept a pike staff handy with which to kill messengers who brought bad news. We have a good base of information upon which to build a better understanding of our past, Odraid had argued. We've always known that what was at stake in conflicts was the determination of who would control the wealth or its equivalent. Maybe it was not a real, noble purpose, but it would do for the time being. I am avoiding the central issue, she thought. Something would have to be done about Duncan Idaho, and they all knew it. With a sigh, Audrade summoned a thopter and prepared herself for the short trip to the no-ship. Duncan's prison was at least comfortable, Audrade thought when she entered it. This had been the ship commander's quarters, lately occupied by Miles Tegg. There were still signs of his presence here. A small holostat projector revealing a scene of his home on Leoness, the stately old house, the long lawn, the river. Tegg had left a sewing kit behind on a bedside table. The gola sat in a sling chair staring at the projection. He looked up listlessly when Odraid entered. You just left him back there to die, didn't you? Duncan asked. We do what we must, she said, and I obeyed his orders. I know why you're here, Duncan said, and you're not going to change my mind. I'm not a damned stud for the witches. You understand me? Odraid smoothed her robe and sat on the edge of the bed, facing Duncan. "'Have you examined the record my father left for us?' she asked. "'Your father?' "'Miles Tegg was my father. I commend his last words to you. He was our eyes there at the end. He had to see the death on Rackus. The mind at its beginning understood dependencies and key logs.' When Duncan looked puzzled, she explained, We were trapped too long in the tyrant's oracular maze. She saw how he sat up more alertly, the feline movements that spoke of muscles well-conditioned to attack. There is no way you can escape alive from this ship, she said. You know why. Siona. You are a danger to us, but we would prefer that you lived a useful life. I'm still not going to breed for you. Especially not with that little twit from Rackis. Audrade smiled, wondering how Shiana would respond to that description. You think it's funny? Duncan demanded. Not really. But we'll still have Mabella's child, of course. I guess that will have to satisfy us. I've been talking to Mabella on the com, Duncan said. She thinks she's going to be a reverend mother, that you're going to accept her into the Bene Gesserit. Why not? Her cells pass the proof of Siona. I think she will make a superb sister. Has she really taken you in? You mean, have we failed to observe that she thinks she will go along with us 
until she learns our secrets and then she will escape? Oh, we know that, Duncan. You don't think she can get away from you? Once we get them, Duncan, we never really lose them. You don't think you lost the Lady Jessica? She came back to us in the end. Why did you really come out here to see me? I thought you deserved an explanation of the Mother Superior's design. It was aimed at the destruction of Rakis, you see. What she really wanted was the elimination of almost all of the worms. Great gods below! Why? They were an oracular force holding us in bondage. Those pearls of the tyrant's awareness magnified that hold. He didn't predict events. He created them. Duncan pointed toward the rear of the ship. But what about that one? It's just one now. By the time it reaches sufficient numbers to be an influence once more, humankind will have gone its own way beyond him. We'll be too numerous by then, doing too many different things on our own. No single force will rule all of our futures completely. Never again. She stood. When he did not respond, she said, Within the imposed limits, which I know you appreciate, please think about the kind of life you want to lead. I promise to help you in any way I can. Why would you do that? Because my ancestors loved you. Because my father loved you. Love? You witches can't feel love. She stared down at him for almost a minute. The bleached hair was growing out dark at the roots and curling once more into ringlets, especially at his neck, she saw. I feel what I feel, she said, and your water is ours, Duncan, Idaho. She saw the Fremen admonition have its effect on him and then turned away and was passed out of the room by the guards. Before leaving the ship, she went back to the hold and stared down at the quiescent worm on its bed of Rakian sand. Her viewport looked down from some two hundred meters onto the captive. As she looked, she shared a silent laugh with the increasingly integrated Teraza. We were right, and Shuang Yu and her people were wrong. We knew he wanted out. He had to want that after what he did. She spoke aloud in a soft whisper, as much for herself as for the nearby observers stationed there to watch for the moment when metamorphosis began in that worm. We have your language now, she said. There were no words in the language, only a moving, dancing adaptation to a moving, dancing universe. You could only speak the language, not translate it. To know the meaning, you had to go through the experience, and even then the meaning changed before your eyes. Noble purpose was, after all, an untranslatable experience. But when she looked down at the rough, heat-immune hide of that worm from the Rakian desert, Odraid knew what she saw. The visible evidence of noble purpose. Softly, she called down to him. Hey, old worm, was this your design? There was no answer. But then she had not really expected an answer. We hope you've enjoyed Heretics of Dune, a Macmillan audiobook from Tor Books. 
Text Copyright 1984 by Herbert Properties, LLC. Production Copyright 2008 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved. <laughs>